As always, it is my pleasure that you join me for today's podcast of Second Chance Coaching. My name is Dr. Richard Lewis. If you'd be so kind as to leave me a rating and your feedback, I would very much appreciate it, and it will help others like you to optimally discover this podcast wherever you listen to this and your other favorite podcast. As you know, at Second Chance Coaching, we focus on seeing everyday life through the eyes of the returning citizen and highlighting the resiliency of the human spirit. I would love to work with you one-on-one, whether you're a returning citizen or coaching client seeking your second chance, or you're a representative of a business, college, or university seeking to integrate and support returning citizens in your respective organizational and learning environments. Please feel free to contact me via email at richard at secondchancecoaching.com or via Instagram at the Dr. Richard Lewis. Welcome to another edition of Second Chance Coaching. Hopefully all is going well on your side of the world. Everything is going well on this side of the world. Uh, this this week is marks the first week of us returning back to school. So I have new classes, new students. So it's always really exciting to see the students discover or at least start to get on the journey of discovering their voices and, and not being nervous to do speeches in front of each other or definitely in front of the professor. This week at Second Chance Coaching, I wanted to, us to take a look back as far as all the interviews that we've done and really give a chance to listen to a lot of voices of reentry that we have have had here at Second Chance Coaching. Um, this is an omnibus collection of 10 interviews, 10 complete interviews that we've done with so many various people from various spectrums of the reentry space. So we hope you enjoy it. Um, you may not in it, listen to it all at one time, but certainly listen to it a little bit at a time. If you want more of the information of a lot of the people that we did interview, you go back in the archives and listen to the interview and its completion and you would have the contact information of those folks that we interviewed. So if there's anybody that strikes that strikes you, that interests you, and you want to follow them some more, that'd be great. We look forward to having more people interview um, with us and join us at Second Chance Coaching. Um, please listen to the intro and outro um, information, the emails, and how you could contact us on social media. I'd love to hear and engage with more voices of reentry. So please reach out to us. In the meantime, whether you're listening to it all at one time or listen to it a little bit at a time, um, definitely I wanted to take the time to say enjoy the the throwback that we're doing right now of all the voices that we've had in Second Chance Coaching, all 10 interviews of this of the interviews that we've had at Second Chance Coaching for all the seasons we've, we've been on the air. Thank you so much to those guests again for sharing their stories and sharing their voices with us. And thank you for the time that you're giving us to listen to their voices and continuing to be engaged in this reentry movement. We look forward to seeing you again next week. For the episode that we have today, today we have Emmy-nominated producer and director Ms. Shirley Vinay Williams, who's working on a great project called A Break in Belonging. And this is our very first interview in our in the history of this podcast. So I'm very excited that we were able to get Ms. Williams. And I'd love for you guys to hear her message and hear about the project she's doing. And without further ado, let's get to it. Here's Second Chance Coaching with our guest, Ms. Shirley Vinay Williams.
Welcome to Second Chance Coaching. Once again, I'm Dr. Richard Lewis, and today we have a very special treat, our very first interview for this podcast with Miss Shirley Renee Williams. I'll take my time to introduce uh, Miss Williams to everyone. Uh, Shirley Renee Williams is a director and Emmy-nominated producer who has overseen television series such as History Channel's Alone and American Restoration, and she also story-produced series for Refinery29, including Shady and Anomaly which generated millions of online views. Other work she's done includes producing high-profile brand content for Vanier Media and Public Record TV. In 2019, Shirley produced eight short films for the New York Times and a documentary for the Annenberg Space of Photography. In 2020, Shirley directed a five-part series for Adidas and a three-part series for the U.S. Virgin Islands. This past year, Shirley has also directed and produced short films for First Response, and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. In 2017, Shirley Post produced a documentary film, Intent to Destroy, with the award-winning director, Joe Bellinger. Intent to Destroy premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Historical Documentary. Shirley owns and operates Willie B Productions, a production company focusing on film, television, and digital content. At this time, it is my pleasure to welcome director and producer extraordinaire Shirley Vernay Williams to the Second Chance Coaching Podcast. How are you doing today, Shirley? Oh my gosh, it feels so weird to hear you read that. I'm over here blushing. I don't I don't know if you looked up and saw me. I had like my head down and it's just so it's so weird. It's like it it causes you to or cause me to take a moment and to reflect, especially like with all of the 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 sadness that occurred in 2020 to you know to just hear that I was still able to create and to do is such a blessing but just it felt so weird hearing that read it's always weird for me too when I hear I'm okay with talking about myself but even when I talk about myself it's only at a certain limit when I hear someone speak about me I'm, I sometimes I'm looking around like, well, who are they talking about? Because they're not talking about me. <laughs> Can't be me. No, that's not me. That's not me. But it exactly. is. It is. It absolutely is. You should be very proud of yourself. But that was my intro for you. But can you share a little bit about yourself? You know, what what do you want to share with us? Like where you're from, anything personal or professional that you, or any other past work that we didn't cover in our intro? What do you want to share with us about you? Yeah, so... I um, I'm based in New York City. I uh, I've been here. I think this this past summer made either 16 or 17 years. I love 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 New York. I'm originally from Connecticut, and I'm super proud of being from Connecticut. Um, one of the things that I, that is not in my bio, but I am super duper proud of, is I am a super auntie. And I love my nieces and nephews so much. They are a big, big part of my life and they bring me a whole lot of joy. I think that's one thing that's uh, very personal and super important to me. Um, I think about them a lot in the things that I create uh, and the work that I put out. Um, yeah, I, I, think that that, I think that's probably the only thing that was missed. No, that's great. Super auntie, that is a gold star. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Tell us about one significant challenge and one significant accomplishment from your professional journey. Um, 
challenge. I think where I am right now is like one of the biggest challenges that I have ever faced. So, you know, as my my experience so far has been I'm a I'm a producer, I'm a director. So, companies, organizations, institutions, right? Like when they need a director, when they ha- when they need a producer, when they have all the resources in place, they have clients in place, they have an idea of what it is that they want to create. They call me up and say they say, "Hey, we got this project. We want you on board," right? And I come on board um, to to something that's already in place, right? Um, and now I'm in a situation where uh, the resources are not in place, right? And that's a part of independent producing. Um, so I am the person who's responsible for ideation. I'm the person who's responsible for finding the money. I'm the person who's responsible for all staffing. I'm, res- I'm the person who's responsible for all the things that happen on the far, far back end, all the way to the front, as far as like managing. So, uh, so in terms of challenges, like I'm responsible for everything on the back, back end, all the way to the front, managing the, the talent, the subjects. <clears throat> and I've never, I've never had to do all of this, be responsible for all of this alone um especially starting from conception uh so i i would say that that is that is my current and so far the biggest challenge that i have had as a content creator as a producer as a director it's it's i always tell people like if you want to do independent producing um if you have an idea if you have a project and it is up to you and you don't have the resources in in play if you're not wealthy if you're not rich if you don't know someone who's a a fountain of money right and it is up to you to get this thing off the ground make sure it is a project that you are wildly passionate about and make sure that you have the stamp stamina and the guts to do the work because it's a different type of beast um yeah in terms of accomplishments that one i think that one's a a little challenging i'm like i don't know i mean it was super duper cool to be nominated for an emmy um i post-produced uh a documentary called intent to destroy about the armenian genocide (coughs) excuse me and we did this film back in 2017 and it was so so hard it was so hard i mean almost a year of waking up every day and looking at excuse me looking at images of um armenians sick being slain being murdered and especially being black and uh you you know having a history that is similar is that it felt familiar it felt very close to home so a lot of that experience was very triggering in a lot of different ways um but we actually got nominated for an emmy i think two years after it was released so when i got done with that project that was actually a really really hard project to produce too just very mentally and emotionally just exhausting um 
And Joe Berlinger, who's a phenomenal director, he is like, he plays no games in, in, in the best way possible. Um, I learned so much from him. He requires a game. He, his standards are high. So it was, it was, a, it took a lot. It was, it was a lot to, to create and to execute. Um, but that that was that was a challenging one at the same time very rewarding especially like you know years later it resurfacing and then resurfacing with us being nominated for an Emmy we didn't win but the nomination was very just it it was it was awesome it was really cool to be nominated and to be acknowledged for all the hard work that went into creating that that film no, the, the good thing is with challenges and accomplishments, they could always be at this point in time. So you could always have more challenges, but they could be the birth. Uh, they could be the foundation and the birth of more accomplishments in the future. So we're going to be keeping our eyes on you <laughs> for sure. Um, what? Where did you? Just a follow-up question. So, so you're, so you're an independent producer. Where Where did you go to school, or where did you get your training to do to to produce? Yeah. <coughs> so. My, uh, I actually went to on-camera acting school, and at the time it was called the School for Film and Television, and now it's called the New York Conservatory of Dramatic Arts. So it's a two-year program that trains their students uh, on-camera performance, which is very different from theater performance. Um, so you, you, we learned a lot of, um, we studied a, this guy, his name is Meisner, Meisner Technique, which is a phenomenal technique um, that a lot of actors used. Um, but after school, I had a hard time getting work. I am, you know, back then, I think this was maybe, I think I graduated in 2006 or 2007. Uh, one of those and um, like black girls who look like me were not popular like they wanted the mulatto black girls like the black girls who had like very soft bouncy beautiful curls and like you know very mixed looking skin and talked a certain type of way and I, I obviously am not that so I had a hard hard time booking gigs not that I wasn't talented it was just that I wasn't what people were writing in scripts. So uh, my mom was like, girl, you gotta pay these student loans. Like, I, I can't do this. <laughs> I had to hustle. I had to hustle to get, uh, get a job because I was being a burden on my parents. And then out of that, I, uh, a friend of mine like plugged me on. When Oprah was leaving her show to launch OWN, she had did a, a special called like Oprah's 25th anniversary or Oprah's 25th something and I, I got hired as a transcriber so I came in like and typed all the interviews so producers and directors could create their um their scripts and it just snowballed from there I got in and I loved that side of storytelling and I just I worked I worked really really hard and networked and grind and just climbed the ladder slowly but surely Oh, that's great. That's great. So talk to us about your current project, or it might be one of your many current projects, but this particular project that we're talking about, talk to us about your project and development of Breaking Belonging. 
Yes, it is one of many different projects, but it's my like, it's my baby. It's the thing that like, it not only does it keep me up all night, but it wakes me up at the crack of dawn. It's always on my mind. So it's called A Break in Belonging. And it's, as you can see, cause I'll just start smiling and blushing when I talk about it. Um, and it's about uh, Pastor Martin Thomas. Uh, he's a, oh, he is phenomenal. I love him so much. Uh, I met him, actually, first let me tell you, let me tell you, give you a snippet of what it's about and then I'll go to how I met him because I love telling that story. Um, so it is about Pastor Martin Thomas. I would say about 25 and a half now, maybe 26 years ago, he killed someone and he never told anybody why he did it. He, um, he accepted a 50 year guilty plea and he went on to Indiana State Prison and he served 23 years of his 50 year uh, uh, sentence. And while he was in prison, he did some just phenomenal things. Uh, he became the pastor of the, the prison's church and grew the church organization. I'm also a church girl, so like this, this part of the story is I've, I'm so intrigued and I, I love it. Um, he grew the church to be uh, one of the largest organizations there in Indiana State Prison. He, as an inmate, was working closely with like the warden and the commissioner and the governor to create special programs for um for inmates to that were preparing to transition out of uh prison into society to support set them up for success and and programming that could also support lifers um and he, while this was happening his five sons were feeling the impact of losing a parent to incarceration. They had a really big deal um, with Arista Records, phenomenal boys. Uh, well, they're men now, phenomenal men who I also love and admire so much, uh, greatly talented. Uh, they had a big deal with Arista Records and when their father was arrested, unfortunately, it all came tumbling down and they lost it. Um, so they, they, you know, this story explores what it was like for boys ages 12 to 20 at the time to lose a parent to incarceration, um, not know what happened, uh, just knowing that dad is no longer there, as well as what it was like to lose such a big dream. Um, I, I, you know, as I'm talking about this too, I, a lot of specifically like black boys, um, are either don't have the ability to dream for for so many reasons um are constantly stifled around dreaming and then and these these boys had access and they were on their way and an event happened that was beyond them and out of their control that resulted to the loss of their dream so it, it explores that it explores the hardships that they endured um and now martin is home and Listen, I've been to Indiana twice and I've seen firsthand work that he is doing post-prison, post-release uh, to support um, formerly incarcerated men uh, to have success post-release. Um, and it is hard and challenging work that he's doing down there. So we also explore that within this film. Um, and we, we get a chance to like 
see Martin where he is now, see his works, see his sons where they are now, um, and and seeing them uh, reconcile and and build and and grow. Um, and 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 I always love to tell this story, but I had um, I was in church one day. This was three years ago when I met Martin. I was in church, and he had been released from prison just a few a few um, months before. And he had came because he was a guest speaker for an an annual event we do, where our minister puts on a phenomenal event, brings. Uh, ministers from all over the country to talk on one specific topic to like edify the church, build the people up, make us stronger. And Martin was was heavily promoted. And, you know, I I remember the the energy around, oh, my gosh, Martin Thomas is coming back to Harlem for the first time in in 20 at that time. It was 23 years. So, yeah, I've been been away for 23 years. And um when I heard him speak, I literally was blown away. The way he worked in his prison experience and forwarding the congregation and sharing deep and dark thoughts and feelings that he had while he was in a cell. And this was this was all new to me. I never in my life had met a pastor who had been to prison for 23 years who was actually guilty. Um, so so yeah, that's like a, a a a big big picture about the details of what this story is about. But you know, there's so many things that I'm looking to accomplish within this story, um, and that's humanizing um, formerly incarcerated people, um, showing that they are deserving of second chances. And we don't like society, people who actually have made mistakes and just have not gotten caught. We don't get to label formerly incarcerated people or or decide that they are second class citizens like that. We don't we don't hold that power. Um, Yeah. And like uh, and and to to get the viewers to reimagine how we uh, how we view formerly incarcerated persons. Um, Bring attention to what parental incarceration does to the psyche of children. Um, It's bad, it's not good. Um, You know, and then there's another side of this story that's, um, that's, that's evolving too. And I think that's important as well is like the victim, the victim's children. They are, you know, I could imagine they endured a life that was hard and challenging because they lost their dad. Um, so there, there's so much loss, unfortunately, unfortunately, that occurred through this event. Um, but we, I want to use this as a vessel and a tool for healing and uh, to, 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 to show uh, the world what's possible when we forgive and when we love. Um, just show the other side of, of a lot of these hard topics. Of course. Was 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 Pastor Thomas coming to your church? Was that what brought you to developing and producing this project, or were there other factors involved besides that encounter at your church? Yeah, so, so I'm a very, very curious soul. Like, I'm curious about everything. Um, and I, when I, when I heard about him, that this was a pastor 
who has spent 23 years in prison and people didn't know why, immediately my antennas went up and I wanted to hear more. I wanted to learn more. And then when I, uh, when I went and I heard him speak and I just, I, he was so rich and dynamic and powerful and, and just like, his voice was like literally piercing through my through my soul and then that made me want to hear more i was like i need need to know like and there was still a lot of mystery around well what happened and i was like well i I need to know i need to know more because i'm a curious soul so then i uh i started doing some research on him there were there was a, a the event happened in 1996 the, the world wasn't deep into, we didn't have the internet the way that we do now. Uh, most of the, the news that we got was through printed articles on paper or through our news reporters do on the actual news, like news anchors. So it was very hard to find a lot of information about him, but the little I did continued to increase my curiosity. Um, so then I, I got his book. He has a book called On the Road to Manhood and I read it. And it basically is a tool that supports men in understanding like what may have caused them to get sidetracked in life uh, that took them off the road of road to manhood and what they could implement now to put them back on the road to manhood. And there were a lot of things in there, me as a woman, that I was able to extract and I felt like I could apply to my own life. So again, my, my more curiosity, I was like, oh man, he's he's I didn't even I didn't even know him at that time. And I was I was like, this man is so phenomenal. And then I came across his organization's website and I was reading about the reentry work that he's doing in Indianapolis, and I was like, oh, this is this is a story. So I actually reached out to him on Facebook. But Martin was was new back to society. Uh, So technology, he wasn't that savvy. He was still learning. So his wife, who is, uh, I call her Ma. She is just just the most, she's a saint. I just don't, she's incredible. (laughs) I just love her so much. She's phenomenal. Um, His wife was managing his social media account and uh she responded so me and her started talking we got on the phone and like i remember the first time i heard her voice the like the first thing i said to her was like your voice is just so soothing like i just talked to you you make me feel like everything's gonna be okay i didn't even know know the woman at the time i still tell her that to this day Uh but um (laughs) um me and her started talking and then uh just from talking to her and the way she talked about martin and i was just like y'all got a phenomenal story I was like I want to talk to Martin because I'm interested in potentially telling it and then I from there she connected me to her husband Martin and then we started to have conversations and the more he just uncovered and told me I mean like my mind was just exploding with just this is a story this is a story that the world needs to hear it's so rich and complex and just it's big and he he always says to me he's like i don't know what's wrong with you you are crazy i don't know why you want to do this but he's like okay go ahead and do it if that's what you want to do well you shared with us Shirley, your impressions of him when you when he was at your church and of course what you just told us when you made contact with him but what were some of your first impressions of martin 
when you got to Indianapolis, when you got to Indiana to actually start having boots on the ground regarding this project? What was some of your first impressions of them at that point? And then if you can compare it to after you finished filming, if you could compare those two impressions that you had of him. Yeah, so when I first met Martin, I I remember, um, and I think that I'm a really good discerner of, of persons or of character. And I, I listen to what people don't say just as much as what they do say. Um, but when I first met Martin, he was, uh, I remember him being so protective, first of his wife, and a very loving and compassionate and gentle way. And then of me as well. You know, he didn't want me to lift anything, to touch anything. He made sure that like, I mean, from the t- from him making sure all my accommodations, which I'm a producer, that's my job. But I wanted him to give I wanted to give him the space to do what he felt comfortable doing and for him to, you know, so I I let him do it. But I remember just how protective and loving and compassionate and gentle he was. Um and how how he was such a phenomenal listener. Um, he was very much open and curious about me and my life as much as I was about him, which was, for me was very telling. It, it wasn't this thing of it's about me, 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 me. He, w- he cared about me and my thoughts and my feelings and what I wanted. Um, and he was also very, um, he was very, he is, and, and when I met him, uh, he was then very responsible and accountable for what he did. He didn't shy away from it. Um, he owned it, uh, not in a way that would have him in a beat up or uh, have him living in this this world of guilt and shame, but in a in a more empowering way like an acknowledgement of yes this is what i did it was not good it was bad it got me where it got me but here's what i was able to get out of that and here's what i was able to do for the planet and for the world and for the cause of christ because of it um but but that was those were like my first impressions um of of martin i love i still do to this day how um how responsible he is around what he did and how he how how he holds himself accountable and he's very clear on like you know his role that he played in it who were the victims um and out of that you know he's looking to reconcile with the with everyone who was was hurt as a result of his um of his actions I forgot what part B of your questions were. What What were your impressions of him after you completed filming in Indiana, in Indianapolis? What were your, that you talked to us about how you felt when you encountered him, yeah. but then when you left, what was, was there anything, anything that changed? Was it enhanced? Your impressions enhanced? What were your feelings after you left him? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So, so, um, I went to Indianapolis twice to do some more like preliminary filming. I wanted to see what Martin was like on camera. I wanted to do an interview with him. I wanted to get into the the office 
of his organization and see him at work. Um, he has this home under his organization, Foresight Forgivers Foundation, called the Nazareth Man House, and it's not a, it's 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 set up like a tra- uh, transition home, but it's not your typical transition home. Like you know, a lot of transition homes have an expiration date on it for the residents, but this transition home. Uh, has no expiration date. Men can stay in there as long as they need to to get themselves on their feet. And uh, Martin provides all the all the the he pays the rent, the utilities, gives you food, and like he just wants you to focus on getting yourself on your feet so you can thrive in, out here in society and not go back to prison. Um, but in filming with Martin in the home and seeing him with uh the 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 men who have recently re-entered society and working to adjust um I saw a human who had a level of patience that I never have I I mean I saw a human who had a level of compassion that I have never seen uh the way in which the lengths that I've saw that I I witnessed him to go to make sure that men were okay or are okay and they have what they need, um, the understanding that I saw that exists there, and I I think a large part of that is because of his lived prison experience. I can't relate to them, nor can his wife, in a way that he can, uh, because he's been there. He's he's. He spent 23 years behind behind bars with these same men that he's serving. Um, but I, I saw, I, I just saw a different level of patience and compassion that I've, I haven't witnessed before. Did this project in any way change what views you have of the criminal justice system or did they reinforce or solidify any views you might've had of it? I think one of the biggest things that has, um, where I feel like the wool has been pulled over my eyes, and this is where my responsibility has, has come into play, especially with me being a player in media, a content creator, me working for these major companies and, and having power to tell story, um, is I never realized how much media influences the perspective that society has on formerly incarcerated people. And I did not know how much media influences the policies that affect currently and formerly incarcerated people, which has, um, and it was, it's, no one put the wool over my eyes. It was my own ignorance. But now that I know, I cannot unknow, and I have a responsibility to do my due diligence and to make sure that the way that I see Martin, that that is, that is very, very well communicated um, in how we do this project um, and make sure that uh, the way that I see Martin and his wife sees him and the the many other people that love and respect and adore him, that the rest of society has a chance to view him that way too. And the other millions of men and women 
who have been uh, impacted by incarceration. Thank you. You talked about the media's role as far as how we see things and the paradigm in which we look through things. At this podcast, we always talk about how people get their second chance in coming home and some of the issues that they face when they come home. But we know specifically that one in three men of color will have been incarcerated at some point in their lives here in the United States. That's part of the bigger carceral problem here. Um, And we're 25% of the world's population, world's incarcerated population, and that seems to continue to rise. After your experiences on this project and other projects, you talked about intent to destroy, how it triggered some things in you. What do you think would be the solution for, or, or, or what media could do to balance our nation's desire to over-incarcerate um, with the, as well as looking at the disproportionate criminalization and incarceration of black males and black females who are the highest rising population, carceral population right now? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I feel like there's, there's just, there's so many things that we can do. And I think one of the, one of the things that we can do is start with the approach that, that I'm taking. I think one thing is like, right, even with my team, I tell my team all the time, I, we are changing language. For so long, I've been calling Martin, you know, in write-ups or other people ex-felons. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Now that I know as the leader of this team, that's unacceptable. Now that I'm now that I'm learning, I'm gaining knowledge and information. I am not some guru and 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 not not wildly versed in terms of like the world of incarceration, but there's there's now things that I know that I know starting with me, I can shift and I'm powerful enough where I know me alone, I have the power to shift the planet. So if I can start with changing my language, changing my perspective, changing my outlook, changing the way that I engage with uh, a population that has been impacted with incarceration. I alone, with my power, can change, can reach so much further. I can change policy. I can change the way government officials think. And you know, look at the look at the work that was done with uh, Just Mercy. I I love the way um, uh, producer Scott. Uh, how he how he how he handled that whole thing with his impact work and going into prisons and like just going beyond the screen and pushing people and, and encouraging them to really rethink the way that they see people who have come through the system. Um, and it's a it's a big task, but, you know, like we just we just chew at what we can chew at and take it one step at a time but i think you know it it has to the the creators have to care the 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 people behind the camera they have to they have to first see formerly incarcerated people as human beings as as your equal as like I'd say all the time, we all have done stuff. We all have, have made horrible mistakes. Just There's a large portion of us that just have not gotten caught. That's it. That's the difference. Um, but I, I, it just, it starts with the content creators and like our paradigm and our, our perspective and our POV and how 
because that's going to inform our characters, our creation, and what we put out in the world. And if we are not doing it with a careful, conscious, deliberate hand, we'll continue to get nasty stereotypes um, and and negative negative images about the formerly incar- or the current or formerly incarcerated population in the media and in, 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 in on our screens. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Are you looking to produce any more projects in regards to the criminal justice system and reentry or reform or some of some of my brothers and sisters say the abolitionist movement? The, the abolitionist, abolitionist movement. movement. Yeah. So are you looking to produce any more um, projects in this or do you have any projects that you would think about that you'd want to do? Listen, you know, the I'm the girl who does entirely way too much. <laughs> so my <laughs> my goal is to focus on this one thing. I actually I actually transitioned out of my job at Vice Media so I could focus. This project could get all of my focus, all of my intention. Um, because if I'm not just focused on this thing and I have 10% of myself in another project, then that's 10% of myself that's not going into this project, right? But now, after this project has been wrapped, released, out in the world, which we're thinking will be around uh, a spring of 2022, um, this is... Uh, uh, the 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 current and form- formerly incarcerated population is a, po- a a population of people who need advocates with power, uh, the same way how BIPOC professionals need advocates with power, Latina professionals or people need p- folks with power. Um, so I want to continue to do whatever that may look like. Continue to do. Uh, necessary work to liberate the necessary voices yeah but in terms of like what that looks like right now I do not know because my brain is 100% focused in this and in a break in belonging no that's okay that's good that's 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 good work sis can you talk to us about what is the status of the of a break in belonging right now um how can the audience see it support it like where where are you at right now as far as a break in belonging? Yeah, so um, a break in belonging is in advanced development. We are ready to go into production. So what that means is we are ready to uh, put cameras up. We're ready to travel out to Indianapolis and Jacksonville to do our interviews and, and film our scenes. We need funding. Um, we're getting ready to launch a really big crowdfunding campaign uh, second week in February. Um, so we're, we're hopeful around that. So we're rally, rallying all of our supporters and our family and friends and colleagues and peers, letting them know what's on the horizon and what's, co- what's to come and what our financial goals are. Um, but we we need funding in order for us to move into the next phase. But we're ready to move into the next phase, and uh, we've we've been uh, building partnerships with organizations that we can uh, connect with that where we can tap into their talent 
to hire formerly incarcerated people to one provide them with income and jobs and two expose them to uh, career fields maybe they may not have been exposed to specifically the entertainment industry um, other organizations that are focused on going into businesses to uh, help uh, the people who are running it redefine how uh, they see formerly incarcerated people, which will then uh, open up formerly incarcerated people to more uh, op uh, employment opportunities. Um, so doing a, a lot of a lot of on the ground partnerships and work with people and organizations that uh, target and focus and love and care about uh, formerly incarcerated persons. Um, and also doing, you know, I, I'm being very deliberate in in my crew and my team, making sure that, you know, my crew is reflective of the subjects, which are majority black men, and I need to create safe spaces for them and where they can be open and vulnerable and share of themselves. So, you know, spending this time to do the very deliberate findings of of who works and and who can who can fit into our mold into our model but uh that's that's where we are in terms of uh stages and we we need support with with financing and funding uh we we do have a fiscal sponsor so every donation uh w when gone through our fiscal sponsor which is new york women in television and film is tax deductible which is a great incentive um but yeah yeah that's where we are and we're we're on every social media platform uh a b i b the film and then we have uh our website hold on there's just a, a car of ambulance going by Oh no, it's New York City. I know how it is. I remember I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm still that kid from New York. I know how it is. So yeah, we're on all social media platforms. A B I B, the initials for a break and belonging, the film, A B I B the film. Um and then we have our website, a break and belonging dot com. So you can find us find us everywhere. Oh, that's great. So A-B-I-B, -B, the film of breakingbelonging.com. And if anybody's interested in donating, they would go to New York Women in TV and Film and donate through there to support to support the advanced stage of the project. Okay. Yeah. Or they can go or or you can go you can go straight to a breakingbelonging.com and go to our donate page and it'll reroute you to everywhere you need you need to go. We've made it very simple and easy for everyone to find. And look, oh, all donations, great. donations are not, I'm I'm not making any money off, off this. <laughs> I'll pay for a lot of this stuff out of pocket. So this is, uh, you know, all donations are going towards labor and equipment costs so that we can get into production. Oh, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. So how could, so my last question for you is how can, the audience reach out to you and follow you and follow your progression and your future projects. Um, do, do, do you have uh, your following on social media or how do you, how do you want people to follow you? Yeah, I, my handle, I'm on all social, social media platforms um, at Shirley Vernay, V as in Victor, E-R-N-A-E. 
Um, and I love engaging with people. I love talking with people. So if you hit me up, like, let's have some fun. Let's talk. If you have ideas, if you have, uh, I, 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 I don't know everything. And I know I don't know everything. So, like, you know, if you think that there's ways that I can even more deeply support you know this this population of formerly incarcerated men and women like please shoot your ideas to me let me know your thoughts um i i would love to to talk to collaborate i am an open book oh thank you that's great well shirley thank you for spending time with us today on second chance coaching for our audience do not forget to see a break in belonging but before you can see it don't forget to support it so don't forget to go to a break belonging.com click on the donate button and every little bit makes a difference whether it be a dollar whether it be ten dollars whether it be ten thousand dollars you are supporting a great cause you're supporting a great cinematic project and i know that the final project will will, will be great shirley thank you so much for joining us again today Thank you. Thank you, Richard. I'm so grateful. You are phenomenal. I love your show. I love your voice. And I can't wait to hear this. Thank you so much. And take care. And have- I will read her bi- bi- biography so that I can introduce you- her to all of you. Dr. Zaria Davis is a mentor, educator, and advocate. She is a senior associate with the Pretrial Justice Institute, focusing on advocacy and community engagement. Dr. Davis serves as a coach and consultant for nonprofits, servicing directly impacted communities through New Direction Coaching and Consulting, LLC. Dr. Davis is also an experienced grant writer and reviewer, and she is passionate about working with women in reentry and and launched Filling the Gap Reentry Services in 2019. Filling the Gap Reentry Services addresses many of the voids of services in her community for formerly incarcerated women. Filling the Gap also serves on the Unlock Higher Ed Steering Committee, which advocates for the removal of barriers for incarcerated and formerly incarcerated scholars. She also serves on the Ed Trust Justice Fellows Advisory Board. Dr. Davis holds a Doctorate of Social Work from Capella University, an MSW from the University of Cincinnati, and a BA in Sociology from Wilberforce University. She is currently enrolled in Eden Theological Seminary, pursuing her Master's in Divinity. Dr. Davis is a member of various local and national organizations, such as Just Leadership USA, Leading with Conviction 2019 as a graduate. She also is the Community Leaders Institute 2019 graduate, Excel 14 2019-20 graduate, and currently a member of, of Leadership Cincinnati's class number 44. She serves as a board, board member for, Dress, for Success for Cincinnati, chairing the program committee and the the Robert O'Neill Multicultural Arts Center. Dr. Davis is also a member of the Rotary Club, Impact 100, Junior League of Cincinnati, International Coaching Federation, and she's a life member of the National Association of Blacks in Criminal Justice, as well as Wilberforce Alumni Association. She is also a member of the National Association of Social Workers. Dr. Davis is the recipient of the Restored Citizen Award in 2019 and the Mary Everett Success Award in 2020. She is actively engaged in her local community and developing and training new advocates, especially those impacted by the criminal legal system. Dr. Davis also has a wide range of experiences, which reflects her advocacy, training, and consulting. She's a subject matter expert with Jami Sisterhood, 
She's also served on panels as both a participant and moderator and is passionate about reducing the prison population, fully restoring directly impacted people's citizenship and access to higher education during and after incarceration. Dr. Davis provides individual and organizational coaching and consulting through conducting workshops, pre presentations, facilitation, as well as a public and keynote speaking engagements throughout the country. She is the proud mother of a freshman college student and two bonus children. Before we turn it over to Dr. Davis, I have to say I absolutely love the term bonus children. After my divorce, my children had the, had the lovely advantage of having the love of their stepfather, and I'm always appreciative of his role in their lives. And the term is just such a lovely manifestation of love between parents and children. With all that said, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome to Second Chance Coaching, Dr. Zaria Davis. Dr. Davis, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Dr. Davis, we gave you an extensive welcome and an extensive biographical introduction. Is there anything else that about you that you want to share with us that we may not have covered in your biographical introduction? Yes. Thank you again for um, just having the opportunity to speak with you today. So um, prior to all of the things that you heard in my bio, I actually served as a social worker for 20 years. Um, I worked as a clinical social worker in a variety of different settings. Um, and worked with adolescents and adults primarily in residential, outpatient, um, as well as doing couples therapy and employment assistance work. Um, and in 2013, I decided to um, open my own private practice and as a result um, was the subject of a federal investigation. Um, I actually served time in the federal prison system from 2016 to 2017. I was initially um, sentenced to 24 months in prison um, and thankfully had a reduction in my sentence and was able to come home after a year. But from that experience, um, the things that you've just read off as it relates to my current work is what really drove me to get into this space um, as far as advocacy and just speaking for the women who are still behind those walls and, and don't always have a voice in these spaces. So I'm really glad to be here today and just have the opportunity to speak with you all about this issue. Oh, that's great. That's great. Your work appears to concentrate about women and reentry. Before we get to reentry, can you share with the audience some of the specific issues that women face in their journey through the criminal justice system? I absolutely can. So um, when you when you think about people going to prison, oftentimes you don't think about women. Um, I literally heard during my journey um, in the prison system that women should not be in prison. And as a result, um, oftentimes there aren't resources and programs that are available for women because according to people, prisons were not made for women. So we had a variety of different barriers just in, in the experience that I had. Things such as, and you hear about things like this, um, such as access to sanitary products or issues around healthcare. Um, I have some people that I currently work with who are doing work around um, pregnancy and access to services while pregnant and incarcerated. But the other things that um, a lot of times people don't think about is just programmatic um, opportunities. So oftentimes they, there aren't the same programs that are provided in the women's prisons that exist in the men's prisons. There may not be things like weights. Um, and I know there aren't free weights in any of them at this point, but even when it came to like exercise equipment and things like that, we had challenges with being able to get access to those things. So um, what I realized in my journey 
of having to wear wear men's clothing, men's boots, um, and pretty much a lot of the things that were even on our commissary were ordered based off of what was being ordered at the men's facilities. So we actually had deodorant and other items that were not specific to women. Um, fortunately, we were able to get undergarments that were for women. But when, when we talk about like these barriers, I mean, we're talking about some of the basic essential things. We're not even talking about high level things. And I know there's been a lot of advocacy um, work around dignity for women and just being able to provide some of those supports and resources, but there's still a need to address this particular issue. And there's a need to really program and develop um, prisons that are, if, if we're going to have them, because I honestly would like to just see them all gone. But if we're going to have, you know, facilities for people, then we need to actually look at who we're serving and what type of resources and supports we're pouring in. And right now, I think there's a lot of um, resources that are lacking when it comes to women who are currently incarcerated. Okay, thank you for that. Wow, that's a lot. I know that I know that when we have spoken, there were a lot of issues regarding women and, and the criminal justice system that I was certainly not aware of. So I thank you for sharing that with us. In building on that previous question, can you explain, since you said there's differences in which the in which women travel through the criminal justice system as compared to men, could you explain and share with us the path of reentry and some for women specifically that women face in their path to reentry? And how does that, and and also give us an opportunity to share some of the projects that you're working on in regards to women and reentry. So I'll just start with um, the organization that I started, Filling the Gap, is a direct result of there being a lack of resources and supports for women that are currently in, um, in the system and coming home. So when I returned home in 2017, I was fortunate to have some supports and resources in place. Even with that in place, I still faced a lot of challenges. And I always tell people, for someone like me to be able to come home and have those supports, I can't imagine what life is like for people who don't have those supports. So the things that I experienced coming into a halfway house, um, when we initially get there, oftentimes there aren't the same actual programs and resources being held for the women that the men are experiencing. So we aren't in the same, in my area, we aren't in the same location. The men and women aren't together. So the men are having access to certain things, even as little things such as like a cell phone. So the place that I was at, only people who had state crimes could have a certain type of phone. People who had federal crimes could have a certain type of phone, but yet at the men's facility, they could all have smartphones. So, you know, it was just sometimes little things like that. Um, but it was also like the programmatic issues. We didn't have a lot of programming going on there. Um, when I actually sought out to get assistance and help, oftentimes at re-entry events in my city, I was the only woman in the facility full of men. And it was just a challenge because a lot of women didn't feel comfortable, especially women who had been dealing with trauma, had other issues, you know, going into the system, which a lot of women go into the criminal legal system with issues already that they're dealing with. Um, oftentimes they're already victimized. So to then be victimized and to be um, to experience trauma while you're incarcerated, because we all 
um, face some type of trauma when we're incarcerated and then to come home and then the same opportunities that you would like to have to to be able to re-enter and have resources and supports and you go to these events and there's a room full of men and no women so I, I mean there's so many things that i can think of as far as like health care um, being able to access certain um health care needs that you have specifically as a woman versus men they're they're going to be health differences women have cycles men do not women come into these facilities pregnant um and and they oftentimes leave after giving birth to a child and they don't always have those supports that they need um, a lot of times our women are coming home and they have their children that are involved with social services and so now they're having to deal with the social service agencies and trying to figure out a strategy to be able to get their children back while also trying to find housing trying to get employment and so the barriers that uh, people facing re-entry as far as like housing and and those types of things are often you know a reality for everyone but but what i see oftentimes is that there are certain positions um that are more geared towards men like construction or um maintenance or just different things like that and they i'm not saying that women can't do them but they don't oftentimes seek out women who are returning home or think that we are capable of doing those and then there are other positions that women are interested in but because of their felony conviction they're not able to get involved in and so i think that we have to always again take into consideration that um, there are going to be specific barriers that women face when they are transitioning home that men just don't have to deal with the programs and resources the way that um, programs are funded they're just heavily funded because there's so many men incarcerated that are coming home. However, the number of women that have been incarcerated lately is going up. And so with that uptick of people being incarcerated, we have to start really thinking about what are effective programming as we are welcoming women home as well. These women are coming home, you know, they have children, they have families. Oftentimes they've been like the primary caregiver, not just for a, a child, but also for a parent. And so when they're coming home, there's already a lot of pressure on them to come back, bounce back and start doing whatever they were doing prior to leaving to support the family. And so we have to figure out some ways to address the trauma, address the mental health, address these other, you know, physical barriers that they're dealing with as well. And so as a result of those experiences, that I went through and the, the women that I, you know, that I served time with, as well as the women who I met in my transition home, um, I decided to start an organization called Filling the Gap. And what Filling the Gap does is just, it does just that. So I don't try to duplicate services. The goal of my organization is to provide opportunities for services that are missing um, in those women's lives. So I partner with local organizations that may be doing re-entry work um, but I also make sure that we're addressing issues such as access to higher education, dealing with the trauma of coming home. And I just think that the trauma looks differently for men and women. So our program, which is called Women in Transition, specifically talks about health and healing um, and just talking about some of the barriers that women deal with as far as like with parenting and getting reintegrated back into their children's lives. Um, working with their family because oftentimes the family members who are taking care of the children are really ready to send the kids back and you know to the to the parent um, so how do we support the women in this journey and that is a big that's a big part of what I do um, I think that it's critical for the women to have the supports 
Um, so we provide mentoring for the women. So the, the mentors are actually formerly incarcerated women who've transitioned home successfully. And we say success, you know, that's always measured by the individuals, not a tool that we use. Um, but we want to make sure that the people who are serving as mentors are, you know, they are in a stable place in their own lives. And if they are in a place where they are ready, ready to give back um, to other individuals and to support them. So that is a big piece of the work that I do in the, in the reentry space. Um, I believe that you have to pour into other people and it, it always comes back to you. So being able to support the women that I left behind, whether it be through letter writing, whether it be through um, connecting them to resources and services when they come home, um, supporting their family while they're away, all of those things are really important to what I do and the work that I do. Dr. Davis, you and I met through the net through networking on Clubhouse. So Clubhouse is a new social media app for those of you who have an iPhone. It's in its beta stage, but I think that based on some of the interactions that we see on Clubhouse, it's probably well beyond the beta stage. Um, and you mentioned a couple of things already. You talked about the distinct differences between men and women, and, and we really appreciate you bringing that forward to us. But you also mentioned a couple of things in what you said about federal and state carceral journeys. Um, and I think that what we've seen, especially in the in the few month, in the few weeks prior to um, the transition of presidential administrations, we saw a lot of differences between federal and state carceral journeys, especially as it pertains to pardons and civil rights restorations and different other issues pertaining to that. And we spoke about that in Clubhouse. A lot of us spoke about that in Clubhouse. Can you share with the audience some of the noteworthy differences as far as federal and state carceral journeys? So as someone who has a federal case, I speak on this issue quite a bit, um, just from my own personal experience. And what a lot of people don't understand is that um, people automatically assume that if you have a felony conviction, that there is this opportunity for your rights to be restored. Um, the reason why I advocate as hard as I do around um, people being fully restored is because within the federal system, our only um, avenue to be restored is a presidential pardon. And I don't know if people follow how many presidential pardons um, go out, but they're not that many. I will say I'm fortunate to actually have known a few people that have recently gotten pardons, um, which really did my heart well because um, we just know how difficult that is. And right now there is no type of clean slate on a federal level that exists. So there's no expungement opportunity. Um, there's no ceiling opportunity. None of those things exist on a federal level. Um, if you go to the U.S. Pardons Office, you'll see, um, as I did, and actually I wrote to them and they sent me a packet and said, the only way that your rights can be restored is through this pardon package and it has to be approved and the president will have to sign off. Whereas on a state level, um, there are a lot of, and of course this is gonna vary from state to state, but there are a lot of opportunities for people to be able to seal their record or have their record expunged, or they can get a pardon from their governor. And also um, some states have um, like certificates where people have their rights restored and we don't have that opportunity. Ohio does have that, which is where I'm from, but not for people with federal charges, only for people who have state charges. So um, when we talk about holding positions and we talk about being able to um, access certain things, I, I know I was recently um, turned down. I had a credit card. It wasn't even turned down. I had a credit card. And I was recently told that my card was being closed because I, my reputation um, 
but my reputation was a risk to that particular company and they felt like I wasn't good for their reputation as a as a company because of my criminal record is basically what they said. Um, I've also been denied life insurance as a result of my um, my case um, and a variety of different things that you would think once a person has done their time, um, I got off of probation early or a supervised release um, with the, is what is called on a federal level um, that we would be able to have some normalcy in our lives. But if something was to happen to me right now, I wouldn't even be in a position for my daughter to be able to take care of me or to take care of a service if, if I was to have passed. So um, there are a lot of things that are keeping people back from being fully restored as citizens. And there are collateral consequences in, in the thousands um, for both state and federal level um, crimes. However, with the federal system, the way it's set up is everything goes through the president's office. Um, and so it just makes it even more challenging for the millions of people who have these federal records to be able to have any type of relief as it relates to um, their citizenship and their rights being restored. Thank you for sharing that with us. We're going to later on as we as we conclude this podcast we're gonna figure out how to get in contact with you stay in contact with you and myself and our worldwide audience are we're going to support the presidential pardon for dr zaria davis so we'll we're going to talk about that in our last question but our next to last question before we get to that what are some of the projects or specific events or projects that you and your organizations are doing in criminal justice and reentry that you're working on right now so I'm fortunate that I actually work with some amazing organizations um, out here. So not only do I have my organization filling the gap, which is based in Ohio, um, we are running a program that is about to get started. Um, and it's called From Prison Cell to, um, it's launched with From Prison Cell to PhD. Um, and the program is called Prison to Professional. And it's a four to five week course um, for people who are formerly incarcerated or have a conviction who are interested in pursuing higher education. So we are just launching the first cohort in Ohio for that organization um, and that particular um, program. The national um, program from um, from prison cell to PhD actually does um, host a cohort quarterly. Um, We call it, we have an outside cohort and then we also do work inside of the facilities. Um, We are gonna be hosting an event coming up and it's gonna be this Thursday at noon and it is actually going to be on the topic of dignity for women and there is a panel of women um, some awesome women that are going to be a part of that just talking about this particular issue Um, and so we welcome you to join us in that particular event Um, i also work with some other organizations that i always encourage people to check out which is just leadership usa Um, they are working to develop even more leaders throughout the country on a regular basis um, and their their website is just jlusa.org. Um, and there's just a host of organizations out there that are really doing some amazing things right now as it relates to policy work, um, especially around this education piece. Um, the Unlock Higher Ed Coalition, our, um, our, our site is easy to find, um, which is unlockhighered.org. Um, And we have some upcoming events that we'll be hosting. We host meetings every first Monday of the month. um, And those are usually at 12 noon. If that's something that people are interested in, they can feel free to go to the website and just log in to get information. And then updates will come um, as it relates to um, when our next meeting will be. And then again, we have this event that is coming up. 
It's um, under a specific forum called Centering Voices of Formerly and Currently Incarcerated Leaders in the Movement. And again, it's Dignity for Incarcerated Women. And that's going to be Thursday, March the 4th at noon. And it's via Zoom. And if you um, follow me, you will find the, um, the advertisement for that specific event, as well as the link if you're interested in um, just supporting. And I just would say, you know, any of the organizations, if you're following me that you see um, and you are interested in getting connected with, please feel free to reach out to me and I will make that contact happen. Thank you. That is outstanding. Our last question for you, Dr. Davis, today is how can anyone in our worldwide audience follow you on social media, stay in contact with you and get updates with you? Because we're going to we're going to support your presidential pardon for Dr. Zaria Davis. So we want to know how can we stay in contact with you, how we will follow you on social media, how we could see the movement through your eyes and support and support your presidential pardon and all the projects you're doing. How could we stay in contact with you? The best way to stay in contact with me, I made it easy for everybody. So all of my social media platforms, um, Instagram, Twitter, social, um, Facebook, as well as Clubhouse, they're all Dr. Dr. Underscore Zaria, Z-A-R-I-A. So again, that's Dr. Underscore Zaria. Um, for all three of those sites. And I also am uh, on LinkedIn, um, which you can just find me through my name, Dr. Zaria Davis. I would love the opportunity to connect with you and to support any work that's being done. Um, another, another thing that I didn't mention um, is actually tomorrow, um, we will be hosting Day of Empathy and that is gonna be throughout every state um, in the United States is hosted by um, Dream Corps Justice and I'm actually the coordinator for the state of Ohio um, and that is going to be again on March the 2nd and our event in Cincinnati well our event is going to be on Zoom but it'll be from 1130 to 1 but other states will be also hosting events throughout the day and then um, the evening event will be the national event so we want to also invite you to join us for um, Day of Empathy, which gives us an opportunity to really discuss the issues that are going on throughout the country and also the voices of the people who are directly impacted. So you will see me as a part of that as well. But again, I am Dr. Underscore Zaria on all social media platforms. And so I just look forward to hearing from you. Dr. Zaria Davis, this has been an outstanding time. We appreciate the time, the knowledge that you get shared with us, the just just things that I certainly didn't know, and I know that our worldwide audience are now more educated on. Dr. Zaria Davis, we appreciate and thank you for the time that you spent with us today. Thank you for having me. Once again, we have listeners from Pakistan, so I want to welcome you to the Second Chance family. Today we have a very special guest. We have the soon-to-be Dr. Kevin Johnson joining us today at Second Chance Coaching to talk about his book, The Stereotypes of the Black Male. So I'll give a little introduction to our, to our guest and then we, we will get into it with the soon-to-be Dr. Johnson. Kevin Johnson is the CEO and president of Johnson Management Group. Um, Mr. Johnson has always had a passion for sports. He is currently a doctoral candidate of business administration and sports administration, but I have to correct, he's no longer a candidate. He has successfully defended his dissertation and he'll soon to be Dr. Johnson at the end of this term. Um, Dr. Johnson's experience coupled with education has been a great asset to the sports industry for many years. His academic experience as a professor has led him to teaching a plethora of business administration and sports management courses. 
Dr. Johnson's love of sports was also displayed on the court as he was also a collegiate athlete and a collegiate head coach in basketball. He has, an, he has established a proven track record for a winning program on the court as well as in the classroom. In his professional career, he has worked for two major sports teams in South Florida. Dr. Johnson and the JMG team have represented many clients over the years from various sports, from the NFL, NBA, WNBA, and Olympic athletes. He is currently the host of his own podcast, Life After Sports, which you could hear on Apple iTunes, YouTube, and you can see it go live on Instagram and at very and in all various places where you get your podcasting platforms. You could also find him on Instagram at Dr. Kevin Johnson. That's D R K E V I N J O H N S O N. Also at Johnson M I G at L A S underscore podcast. And with that. We welcome the soon-to-be, and we're just going to say Dr. Johnson. We welcome Dr. Johnson, Dr. Kevin Johnson, to Second Second Chance Coaching to talk to us about your book, Stereotypes of the Black Male. We welcome you, sir. So please, we welcome you to Second Chance Coaching, and let let us know a little more about yourself that I might not have covered in your your introduction. Dr. Lewis, thank you, thank you, thank you for having me to, to be here tonight to just talk about the book talk about myself and i'm just it's a pleasure to be a guest on your show i just want to say thank you for taking the time and uh to reaching out to me and uh you've been a great asset in my life uh from all different aspects so i'm, I'm glad to be a part of the show tonight and and to go deep a little bit in, into my journey um and i'm excited to be here that's great that's great talk to us a little bit about this collaborative authorship project stereotypes of the black male talk to us a little bit about that <clears throat> so the uh the book um the publisher uh, her name is Sajay price uh she uh, dr Sajay price at that uh we actually went to college together and she reached out to me about a couple years ago about uh her writing a book um and she wanted me to be uh a co-author in the book and with along with five or four other gentlemen and when I say the each stories of each gentleman in the book is so important and so uh, impact is it's so it's it's so I don't I mean I don't even know how the words to put it but each story is different and is blended differently and so neither our stories as the as co-authors are the same uh, one of the authors he's actually uh, in the movie of uh, American Skin, which is um, a Spike Lee uh, directed movie. Um, and if you haven't seen it, please go out and see it. Um, but just to let you know that those are the different type of components or, uh, of authors that are in the book. Um, and it's just us telling our story from, you know, uh, the stereotype of the black male and what we've experienced as individuals. And our experiences are all different. Um, but the fact that we are all different as black men, but we've all experienced this situation no matter where uh, a point in our lives we, we, we've uh, um, have ran into uh, the stereotypes of being a black male in America. Absolutely, absolutely. This is, a, this is a pretty unique authorship because there was multiple authors and it was published, it could be published, you could purchase it under each author's name correct correct correct, okay. correct. and I love it that way um, dr. price actually gave us the opportunity to to be a part of this project but also to share our story uh, and also be able to uh, share the book with our name being on the book so if you, you can purchase the book on uh, uh, Barnes & Noble as well as on our websites we all have uh, access to 
um, being able to, to uh, receive um, buying from the book so if you would like to purchase the book we'll I'll definitely show you uh, where you can go on my Instagram at, at dr. Uh, at dr. Kevin Johnson and go to the LinkedIn bio and you can be able to purchase the book there but it's also on uh, on uh, other platforms as well okay one of the the chapter that you wrote in the book talks about underestimated but never divested so I read the <laughs> chapter it was very interesting <laughs> but I know for those of those those of us in the audience that will that will purchase and look at the book tell us about your contribution and tell us what underestimated but never divested means so that topic for me uh underestimated but never divested uh, I, that topic speaks to my journey dr lewis uh it speaks to my journey because i felt that i was always underestimated you know you apply for jobs you may you may be too, way too qualified uh to uh to qualify for the job based on your resume um, and then, you know, you, you get the job, <clears throat> you know, you, you, you feel you're underestimated, but then you're never divested. Divested, the, the definition of divested means to deprive someone of power, rights, or possessions. And so, yes, I felt like I've been underestimated in regards to my career, um, but never divested. I've never let, I've never let me be underestimated and let somebody take the power away or my rights away um, of where I should be. Uh, or who I think that I am, because I think that's important. If you are not able to understand who you are as a person, understand your identity, self-assess, uh, and understand who you are, then you will become what other people expect you to be. And I think that is so important because um, we live in a society today where, especially with the social media, everyone wants instant, instant success. They don't understand what delayed gratification is. And so uh, I feel like my life has been delayed gratification. I mean, if I can, uh, and I can talk about my doctorate degree. I started in 2012, uh, but I've also had my business uh, doing uh, Johnson Management Group, which is, uh, you know, um, working with athletes, helping them with management, marketing, brand development, and philanthropy. And my business took off. I started a doctoral program at University of Maryland, University College. I was there for a year and a half, but I was enrolled in the wrong program. Um, it wasn't for what I saw myself to be doing uh, later down in the future. And so I had to, uh, you know, take some time to rethink, is this really what I want to do? And then my business career took off. And then I, you know, with business, you know, you, you go up, you come down as an entrepreneur. You know that. that, it's, a that it's a roller coaster. Yes. And if you're not ready for the roller coaster, if you're not ready to put your seatbelt on and fasten and be ready for the be ready for this journey. Um, you know, then maybe you should not jump into being an entrepreneur. And I know a lot of people say, I'm an entrepreneur, but no, no, you're really not. You know, it goes a lot into being an entrepreneur because you put all your eggs in that basket. And if, and if it doesn't work, you're back at the total point, your starting point. Like, OK, where do I go from now? And so uh, I've had that, the ups and downs within that journey. And I said, you know what, I, I need to finish what I started. And so um, there was a slogan when I was at Broward College back in the days, finish what you start. Yes, yes. And so when you talk about finishing what you start, I decided, I said, I need to go back. I found a program that was beneficial for me at St. Thomas University, uh, a doctorate of business administration with a concentration in sports administration. And um, I knew the professors there and I decided to go back and, you know, 2016, I enrolled back in uh, fall semester. And to look back now, four or five years later, I'm finishing the journey. And so, you know, for those of you who are, may have given up on your dreams or 
uh, or have gotten sidetracked based on family, career, or other things that has happened, I want to be a testament to you to never give up on your dreams. And if, the, uh, you know, delayed doesn't mean denied, all right? Delayed does not mean denied, you know? Uh, things happen in your life for a reason and God is always watching and he's always gonna be there to see you through. So um, back to, you know, to, to the topic, you know, underestimated but never divested, I think that's just a testament to the experiences that I faced uh, growing up and, and in my adult career. And I just felt like that was just a, a great uh, topic to people to just look at underestimated but never divested. I, I, I'm confused. And so that's the reason how I was able to to pull those words together for that topic. That's great. And I love the underestimated but never divested it. I loved it when I read the book and I love it even more now with your explanation behind it and given that story. My next question for you, in that chapter, you discuss jumping from different schools when you were when you were when you were a child due to your behavior. And nothing nefarious, just as childhood behavior, stuff that kids do. And then you were misdiagnosed for ADHD. But I would say in my research, normally this type of behavior would be one of the foundations of having you be part of the school to prison pipeline. That would be the typical solution would be to criminalize the person and the behavior and build prisons with your name on it instead of prospective colleges you could go to. Now, you're not a returning citizen, you've never been incarcerated, but talk to us about how, how did your path take you from being the trouble kid, quote unquote, to having that positive outcome without becoming a negative statistic? That's a great question. And I think that the, the easy answer for that is mentorship and being able to go in the classroom and see black males as role models that were my, not professors, but teachers, instructors at that particular time in my early childhood. Um, when I, in, in the book I talk about it, I said early in my childhood, um, I'm in school with 90% of the, the, the teachers, or 100% of the teachers at that time was, were women. All right. Ninety percent of them are Caucasian women. And so when you look at that, you know, you get a kid that's coming from a Caribbean uh, childhood where he's just active. Um, you know, I'm, I'm doing the work. I'm finished with the work and now I'm looking for something else to do. And so if you're in a structure where you're you are working, uh, you're in a classroom, you're working on your work and then you're done. And the teacher's telling you to sit down and wait. Now you have to wait for the other 20 students to be finished with their work so that you can be able to move on to the next section with everyone else. When you really take a look at that, that's not how the real world works. You know, you may work for a company, but there's a job title to what you're doing and there's a timeline to what you're doing. So when you really look at the translation from your uh, learning at an early child, as an early child, say, hey, you OK, you finish your work, just sit down and be patient and wait. When you get into the real world, it's not like that. You work on your project, there's a timeline, you better meet that timeline so you can get on to the next project. And there's not one person, everybody's not waiting for your project. Your project needs to be done so that you can get on to the next. So saying that, you know, the, I was misdiagnosed at that particular time. I, uh, they asked my parents to, that I need to see a behavioral specialist. Um, coming from, uh, I'm a first generation uh, kid from two immigrants uh, that are that were born and raised in Guyana, my mom and dad from uh, Georgetown, Guyana in South America. Mm -hmm. And so this is new to them. You know, they they didn't have that going to school where, you know, it's either you get a whooping for what you didn't do and you go back to school and you do the right thing. Now they're, I'm being asked to see a behavioral specialist. So my parents, you know, went through the protocol and 
uh, went to the doctors and they said, hey, you know, maybe we put him on some Ritalin and then hopefully, you know, his behavior changed. I was on there for one week, Dr. Lewis, and my parents said, we got to get him off of this immediately because his behavior is not norm. He's way too quiet. He's not talking. He's not speaking. And so when you think about that, just the what that drug does to a kid, that's like a grown adult smoking marijuana. And it numbs you for a while. So if you're doing that to a kid that's a seven or eight years old, nine years old, and you're numbing them from their behavior because you want them to focus, they have to be something different in that, different measures. And I think that was just an early way. And we, we're, if we're talking about, you know, in regards to um, the jail system and how they're able to put kids, uh, and I think it's the greatest, third or fourth grade, they're able to figure out excuse me, depending on how many, you know, if the kids could read at that age, at that level, if they're going to be, they need to build more prisons yes, at that yes, age. Yes. And so when you think about it, that's third, fourth grade, and they're putting me on Ritalin at that particular time. I had professor teachers tell me at that time, hey, you're, you're going to be working at McDonald's because you can't sit down. You can't concentrate. You can't, you know, instead of saying, hey, these are the things that you're doing well. And for me, it was hard because I wasn't, I was going to school where I didn't see people who looked like me. And so um, until I was able to get out of that school, my parents took me off of Ridland after that week and I went to uh, a, a New River Middle School and I was able to see mentors, see coaches and people that look like me as black males. I think that's important as role models. We don't see that in the classroom. It's very hard for our black male students to be able to articulate well because obviously they don't see anybody that looks like them. So their behavior may be different. They don't see anybody that they can be able to ask for guidance. And so I was able to get that when I went to that middle school. And my behavior totally changed, totally changed. And I think it was because of the atmosphere. And I think sometimes parents need to be a little bit more cognizant of the atmosphere of where their kids are in regards to the school, not listening to one. If you went to one doctor and they said your kid needs to be on you know, whatever drugs to be able to suppress his behavior. I think you need to get that checked. Go to three different doctors if you need to. And that's all I'm saying because I think, you know, you get one, you know, if, if something happened to you, like I, I, I injured my Achilles, I didn't go to one doctor to be able to figure out if I needed surgery. I went to three different doctors. That's the same. I think that that same approach needs to be the approach to parents who are trying to figure out if their kid needs additional help. Okay. All right. Thank you. I've had... Kevin, I've had a lot of conversations with numerous people who have honestly shared with me, and I'm quite sure they've shared it with you, that especially in this day and age, they are tired of talking about, quote unquote, black issues and situations always being a, quote unquote, black thing. Why is it still important to address and destroy stereotypes regarding black males in today's society? Well, I mean, it's important to bring it up because it still is an issue. You know, we, we sit here and we talk, and I'm going to talk about that, but is, is redlining still an issue in today's world? Yes, it is. Yes. So <laughs> if redlining is still, ex- is one still of the, exists. One of the many issues still. Yeah, still. And so if that exists, and I'm part of this organization called Children's uh, Literacy Initiative, and, and pretty much the initiative is a mission to help uh, kids uh, that are African-American and Latinx uh, to help them in regarding to reading. And be able to, uh, if they're uh, underprivileged or underdeserved communities, to be able to help those communities and fund them so that we can be able to help um, 
those racial profiling in regards to why are we not moving the needle for those kids? Why are they not getting the same help? They're in a different community. They're not getting the same resources. And we expect them to be uh, able to do the things of what other kids that don't look like them to do. It's, it's totally different. And so, um, you know, back to the book, you know, I, I think those stereotypes still exist today. And so as I talk about redlining, if we don't bring it to the forefront, I mean, if we don't have, uh, you know, uh, mentors and, and people of celebrity status and the president and, 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 and them to, to push these different things that can be able to help uh, people of color, I think it makes it very hard. It makes it challenging. And I think the issues are going to still prevail. But if we're talking about it and we're trying to figure out ways to make changes, I think it allows people to have a, a, a bigger picture and to know that this, this, it exists. And we need to figure out how can we approach it to be able to help these students along the way. Okay, thank you. As a coach mentor to various athletes, what would be some of your important points in providing mentorship to black males? Hmm. That's a great question. It's a great question, especially from my coaching aspect. And I've coached women's basketball for 10 years and uh, um, felt like, you know, you're a father figure and a mentor to these young. I was coaching women's basketball uh, as a head coach and assistant coach. And when you talk about mentorship, and I know we, you said black males, I'm gonna say black males, black females as well. Um, uh, the important points of mentorship is that, you know, we need more people like me and you that are accessible and that are part of organizations that want to, we need to um, have people like myself and you to be a part of organizations that want to, want to help the majority. And the majority is, uh, you know, somebody was there to mentor me, Dr. Lewis. And if I didn't have those mentors in place, I don't think I would be where I am today. And so the, so my thing is, you know, if we could be able to reach one, to t reach one, teach one, take our hands and be able to help bring somebody else up as an individual. If you're just doing it for one person, I think if we all we all take that approach. If we can't find organizations, but if we can be able to stretch our hand backward and to be able to bring somebody up that, that we can see that needs the help, I think that we should do that. And so I was able to see that at an early age because my father would come to the school at Stranian High School and he would be a mentor to some of the students at my high school. And so it was so funny because I would see my dad at lunchtime. I'm like, dad, what are you doing here? I'm here mentoring uh, so-and-so, this kid here. And I'm thinking to myself, my dad has a full-time job. My dad is a minister. He has his own church. And he works full-time still. And he still finds time to make sure that he's dropping me off to school, making sure that I'm playing the sports that I would like to play. And he picks me up. And then find time to come and mentor somebody else's kid. And so I seen it. I seen the, the, the original blueprint from from my dad. And so when you talk about the, 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 the points, the important points, I mean, we just need to be out there, be more visible so that we can be able to help others. And I seen it firsthand. So for me, I will be doing the same thing when I have kids, you know, uh, or if I don't have any kids. But I mean, I'm going to go back to the schools and, and be able to help and be able to put my information out there so that I can be able to help another kid and, and give them the information and the keys and the tools to success because maybe they didn't have a black male role model to do that. Okay, that's great, that's great. 
Your dissertation, the dissertation that you just completed, addresses social justice and athletes. Can you give us more insight as to the, some of the details of your dissertation and why did you think it was, imp it was an important topic for your research? Absolutely. So my, my, my dissertation topic is the perception of professional athletes' social activism on their career, financial, social, and longevity. And so, uh, you know, we had a lot of things that transpired in 2016 with the Colin Kaepernick taking a kneel, uh, Eric Reed, Michael Thomas, Kenny Steels, Jelani Jenkins, and I'm, the list can go on and on and on, LeBron James, uh, you know, just different athletes taking a stance for something. And, you know, uh, the reason I did the studies because I, I was so enamored by the information and about the athletes who took, who, who pretty much laid their lives on the line for something that they believe. And we live in a country now where, you know, I know we, people stand up and they say the, you know, the national anthem, but do they really hear the words of the national anthem? And as a country, are we living up to what those words are as uh, uh, that is written in law, uh, the national anthem? Are we living up to that? And, you know, the reason that Colin took took the knee was because the words that were coming out of, you know, the person singing the national anthem wasn't a reflection of what was happening in the country. And so when you start to take a look at that and then you look at other people that came before Colin, you got the Muhammad Ali's, you got the uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, you have Malcolm X, all these other people who were talking about the inequality that was happening in this country in the 1960s. And then you talk about, you know, the Jackie Robinsons and, and sports has been a major component uh, in this world, uh, has been a major component for over 230 years. Um, and so when you look at the, the things that has transpired from the 1910 with Jack Johnson, and them passing the white slave traffic, uh, traffic. I think it was the Traffic Act in regards to people going from different, uh, different, different states. Different states. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it, a lot of it was athletes taking a stand or activists taking a stand, and uh, the Black Panther Party taking a stand for what they believe. Um, and I, I think for uh, as a country, we just need to take a step back and, and look at that. It's something that's been happening for years. And why is it coming up again? And it's coming up again and it's coming up again. And we start hearing these, you know, these about these uh, people would say accidents. I don't say these accidents, but these things that's happening where people are getting shot and killed. Um, the George Floyd, I mean, the Tamir Rice, um, the Trayvon Martin. I mean, the list can continue to go on and on. Way too many. And names. it's way too many names. And then mm -hmm. now you have people just saying, look, this this has to stop, you know, um, and, and LeBron, he said it and he's like, my kids are black. And they have to, I have to explain to them why this kid got killed, why Trayvon got killed. And I have to explain that Dwayne Wade said the same thing. And I think when it starts to hit close to home, you have people that make an uproar about it because they know that this is, this is way too much. And this is what the society, this is what we're raising our kids uh, in this type of society. And we have to start giving them information and giving them the tools that they need earlier than what we expected or needed to them to have or needed to be. But uh, with social media, it makes it so much... <laughs> It's a lot of information at one time. And so for parents that you know are raising kids, that they have to be able to give that information to their kids about what's happening with racism and systemic racism um, now. Um, so in regards to you know my dissertation, I just thought that it was I was I was passionate about it, you know, uh, about learning and understanding 
uh, this about this journey in regards to what's had what has happened and what has transpired from 2016 and then not only with the Colin Kaepernick but what has taken place in history and so in order to know and how to move the needle from what's going on now you need to go do your R&D research and development we'll go back and take a look at what has happened and transpired in the past so went from the 1968 Olympics with John Carlos and Dr. John Carlos and Tommy Smith Peter Norman all those guys and Dr. Harry Edwards that also played a pivotal role uh, in the uh, in the boycott movement in the Olympics. So that was my reason for doing this topic. That's what motivated me. I actually had a learning. I think I took it took me longer than what I expected to finish this process with this dissertation, Dr. Lewis, because I was enamored by the information and it just took me so time because I was invested in what I was in this artwork. I consider dissertation artwork. It is. It is. I was, I was painting in the canvas for four or five years. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to be able to come through now and, and to see the final product, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited. That's wonderful. Doc, um, one in three black or African-American males will have been incarcerated at some point in their lives, which is part of the bigger carceral problem in the United States, where we, the United States, are the home of 25% and unfortunately rising of the world's incarcerated population. After your experiences on this project, the stereotypes of the black male and, may, and other projects that you've done before, as you explained to us, what do you think would be the solution to balance our nation's desire to over-incarcerate as well as the disproportionate criminalization and incarceration of black males? I think we need, don't laugh at me for this response, but I don't know. I, I follow sports very big. I follow sports a lot. And um, I love what LeBron James is doing in regards to the I Promise School. And I think if we have, and and I'm he's not the only or the first person to start his own school. Um, Jalen Rose has his own academy as well. And there's numerous of other players who have started and they have their own charter school. But I think in regards to helping out, especially with the, you know, one in, one in every three black African-American males that are being incarcerated, you know, incarcerated, um, being able for uh, players that are African-American or of a different descent, uh, if they're going back and they're reaching back into their communities, they're pulling their resources that they have and they're pumping it back into the to the same uh, community that they were raised and they know that the things that are out there, the drugs, uh, the access to, uh, you know, being picked up on the street for all different type of stuff the you know the shooting and all the different type of things if you're if we're going back into those communities and we're putting back we're giving them the right resources to help those students to be able to go through those situations that were there before and it's always been there because of course of redlining um, which plays another impact into that but if we have players and celebrities and 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 these different um, if we can have some laws that could be able to be changed and I know it takes people of us like-minded individuals to be in those places to make the right uh, selections in regards to voting we can do that it, it would be able to help the situation in regards to um, the disproportionate uh, criminalization and, 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 and African-Americans being incarcerated. I think that's important. So people like me and you just being able to give back and be able to reach one, but also pulling our resources together. And that's why I, I am enamored and I, I look up to LeBron James in regards to what he's done with his platform, not only just on the social injustice issues, but the way he has given back to his community in Akron, Ohio, to be able to, to put back into the public schools there in Akron, I think is important. If we can be able to get people to do that in every state, we can change the world. 
Dr. That's Lewis, right. That's he right. Changed the world. He, so he doesn't just shut up and dribble. He definitely puts his money where his mouth Put, is. He puts his money where his mouth is, and I believe people don't think that he has the power, but I love the way that he uses it and he flaunts it and he does it the right way. Many people might not like him. I love him on the basketball court, but I love him even better as a man that is about his, you know, about action. And he's doing he's doing the work. He's doing the work. Because his impact off the court is gonna long is gonna be the lasting legacy yeah, that he's gonna has. supersede what he's done on the court. And what he's done on the court is phenomenal. Absolutely. Well, once again, the book is Stereotypes of the Black Male, Changing the Narrative for Misunderstood Black Males One Story at a Time. It is a bestseller. You could find it's by Kevin Johnson and a collection of other black male authors. So, um, and this is, and once again, you said this was a project that was put together by Dr. Price and the other, Dr. Price did the introduction and Anthony Durrell, Nigel Flores, Khalil Green, Anthony Hendricks, and of course, our guest Kevin Johnson was all a part of this great project. So you could find Stereotypes of the Black Male um, by Kevin Johnson. You could find it on Amazon. You could find it on Barnes and Noble. Yes. And so, so definitely make sure you support and show love. It's a, it's a, it's a very easy and, and it's a great impactful read. Um, but certainly, I, I'm so honored that that you decided to join us today. I have watched, witnessed your dissertation journey. I'm so happy to have been a part and honored and privileged to be a part of your dissertation journey. I'm glad that you're finished, and I'm glad that you are now. Part of the three percent club of the do- oh, of doctors. <laughs> <laughs> the three percent club, and I'm look, man. I'm I'm excited. I'm very excited to be a part of that club. And um, you know, I always tell people, and uh, in regards to you know, people say success. You know, I'm, I'm I want to be successful. Uh, I, my my purpose in life is to to bring value. And if you are a person of value, it's different than just being a person of success. You know, a lot of times people are chasing the money. I don't want to chase money. I want to chase a, I want to chase value. I want to be a person of value because if I'm a person of value, then I can be able to have the resources I need that I can be able to use to inspire and make change. Amen. So that. that is that is really what my purpose is, is to, is to inspire and make change. And you only can do that by being a person of value. Absolutely. Well, Ke- Dr. Kevin Johnson, he has his podcast, Life After Sports. So certainly feel free to follow him on either YouTube or Apple iTunes or wherever you find your favorite podcast. You can follow follow Dr. Johnson and keep in touch with him. But besides the podcast, how can our audience follow you on social media and keep in contact with you? You can keep engaged with me on IG. It's Dr. Kevin at Dr. Kevin Johnson. Uh, also, I'm on Facebook. It's Kevin Johnson. Um, feel free if you're if you would like to purchase my book, you can go on my uh, Instagram, um, go right on to the LinkedIn in my bio and you can be able to purchase the book. Now, if you're looking to have a book with my uh, if you would like to have a signed copy, you can just go ahead and send me a message in my in my direct message and then we can figure out the, the, the logistics from there. Um, but I, I'm very accessible. Feel free to just reach out. Um, and I love to hear people's story. If you know, if you have a story that I can be able to help or a testament to what you're doing, um, I, I definitely engage with with uh, with the fans, and I engage with other people who are just doing like-minded things to inspire and change the world. That's great, Dr. Johnson. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you again. I'm. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Uh, hopefully, I get a chance to come back. <laughs> oh yes, you're <laughs> always welcome. Thank to come you back. so much, and I think this was a great opportunity just to talk about the journey, um, but also to know pe- let people know that you have to fall in love with the process first. Well, it is the first Monday of April, 
And in the month of April in the United States since 2017, we observed the month of April as Second Chance Month. Second Chance Month is designed to raise awareness of the collateral consequences of a criminal conviction and unlock second chances, something that we do all the time here at Second Chance Coaching. And we will highlight throughout the month different topics that will continue to support Second Chance Month that was founded by Prison Fellowship. And you could follow them on prisonfellowship.org. One of the seeds that created the Second Chance Coaching podcast and, and was able to inspire me to, to, to find my voice and to be in this movement with you and to, and to, and to move forward with you is Mr. John Doc Fuller. Uh, John, or as I affectionately call him, Doc. Doc is a well-renowned prison coach, consultant, motivational speaker, and author. He is an outstanding individual, and as you'll hear me say in the interview, I definitely consider him one of my heroes, and it's not a term I use lightly or use often, but Doc is definitely one of my heroes. So here is my interview today with Doc, and I hope you enjoy it here on Second Chance Coaching. Welcome again to Second Chance Coaching. I'm Dr. Richard Lewis, and I'm pleased and I'm honored to be joined here by John Fuller, and I'm going to give a little introduction to, uh, about our guest today, and then we're going to get into a deep and in-depth conversation with John Fuller, who I affectionately call Doc. I told him before we started recording, he's one of my heroes. I don't use that uh, terminology loosely, but he definitely is. Doc is definitely one of my heroes. So um, let, let me introduce John, John Fuller to all of you today. John experienced the worst of humankind behind bars, but he refused to let that destroy him. He vowed that he would turn his life around and encourage others living on the edge to do so as well. As soon as John was released in 2002, he began coaching others who were facing incarceration about how to make the best of their time in prison. In 2004, he formalized his coaching by founding Prison Coach Speaking. He's the most sought after prison coach in the world. In addition to being a nationally renowned prison coach, John is also an acclaimed motivational speaker author and teaches criminal defense attorneys CLE courses so they can better understand what their clients will face in prison. John energizes his audience to live his motto, motivation, determination, transformation. John is living proof that no matter how bleak a situation is, motivation and determination can indeed lead to transformation. John is active throughout the country assisting organizations looking to implement prison reentry programs. He is also the author of two books, a Day in Prison, An Insider's Guide to Life Behind Bars, and The Ten Prison Commandments, The Ten Rules You Must Know Before You Enter a County Jail, State, or Federal Prison. John is an active contributor to ABC, NBC, Fox, Entertainment Tonight, and Hollywood Access. So it is my pleasure, my honor, to welcome John Fuller, who I'm going to officially call Doc the rest of the time that we're here. So welcome, Doc, to Second Chance Coaching. How are you doing today, my brother? Thank you so much, Big Brother. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much. Right back at you. You know, I definitely appreciate you as well. John, my, my first question for you is, explain to us what a prison coach is and what does one do in that role? Well, for the most part, they're very adept at helping individuals adjust to the prison system prior to incarceration by providing them with knowledge um, that will help them to refrain from gambling, getting involved with drugs, respecting their cellmates, and other things that go 
uh, hand in hand with preparation. Nice, nice. Can you share with us your history that gives us, share with us your history, you know, beyond what we talked about in the introduction, that gives us a deeper understanding of your commitment in the criminal justice reform movement? Well, as a prison consultant, that's um, when it comes to prison reform, abolishment, things of that nature, um, that has nothing to do with prison consulting. Um, that is strictly for clients, but I'm more into um, challenging excessive punishment, especially for children and people living in poverty, addiction, or some form of mental illness. So, you know, even after people are released from prison, you know, the, the parole conditions often require formerly incarcerated people to pay restitution, supervision fees, and other costs. So, you know, when you couple that with a loss of employment and housing, threatened immigration statuses, which is prevalent, in, particularly in the Federal Bureau of Prisons, um, and other things, you know, you then have disqualification for welfare, benefits, student loans, and you can't obtain licenses often. And so, you know, that will keep a person in their families in a lifelong system of poverty. So that's what I'm about when it comes to uh, the prison um, reform and, and right. being involved in the, all of these other things that have to do with prison. Amen. Okay. Our next question kind of ties into a little bit what you answered before. Right now, we're moving through this new age of a new awareness or being woke, as people would say, especially in this time of a pandemic and all this of, all, and, uh, and civil unrest. And there has been an ongoing debate pitting criminal justice reform against criminal justice abolitionism. What's your perspective on this? Well, that's a, um, a pretty broad question. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about abolition first. You know, and it's more, even though I, I, I stay out of politics, it's a political vision. That's not anything that could be handled outside of politics for the most part. Because, you know, when you talk about abolishment, you know, that deals with other things as far as policing, surveillance, and creating lasting alternatives to punishment and imprisonment. So it's not just, you know, simply getting rid of building prison cages. It's about actually undoing the society that continues to feed on and maintain the oppression of the masses of people through punishment, violence, and control. Because the prison industrial complex, as you know, it isn't an isolated system, so to speak. Abolition is a broad strategy, more or less. And so when we have to be building models today that will develop and represent how we want to live in the future, so it's both, you know, one might say a practical organizing tool in addition to a long-term goal, you know, because you think about how broad, particularly in the United States, the prison industrial complex really is. And that goes hand in hand with policing, surveillance. You know, they feed off of that, you know, reform. So with yes. each, each iteration, you know, they get bigger and more deeply entrenched into our communities and more powerful, you know? No, of course, of course. There are numerous collateral consequences regarding when one has conviction. 
what are some consequences that you would think can be eliminated immediately to provide one who's a returning citizen or formerly incarcerated individual, whatever one would call would call us, to have a more successful path to? Well, you have to really consider what other countries have done um, and use them as a model. Um, you think about the issues that happened in Portugal when they were in a drug and they tried what the U.S. has tried. They tried incarcerating their way out of um, prisons and thinking that that was the broad strategy. And so what they decided to do over 20 years ago, they got a, you know, what was his, Dr. Zhao Coelho? Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. got a panel of experts and they, they sat together and they considered all of the problems and considered the research of the country. And they did something which people thought was crazy. They just said, you know what? We're going to abolish drugs. We're going to decriminalize all drugs. And so when they decriminalized it, they created incentives at the same time. So what they would do, let's just say you had two people. You had Robert and Craig, and they both commit a crime together. In the United States, they incarcerate Rob. He's going through withdrawal symptoms. He gets 10 years for robbing the bank. And upon release, after paying $80,000, $90,000 a year to incarcerate him, and you have almost a million dollar bill for incarceration, he has to start from scratch. In Portugal, what they did, they said, okay, we're gonna give you morphine legally through a doctor. Seven in the morning, you're gonna get your shot of morphine, then we're gonna help you work. We're gonna give an incentive to someone to hire you, particularly when we find out what it is you love to do. So let's just say Craig wants to be an auto mechanic. They'll tell his potential employer, we're gonna pay half of his salary if you hire him. Then they teach him how to start his own business. And then they put him in psychological programs to a point where his self-esteem is so high, he no longer wants the drugs. So their approach was, we're gonna take this money and use it towards love, concern, skill building, and they pretty much uh, shot their statistics right into the ground and Netherlands copied it. So much so that in the Netherlands, they don't even have any more prisons. Netherlands has done away with prisons by decriminalizing drugs. And the prisons in the Netherlands that do house inmates they ha they're housing these inmates from other countries. So when you think about reentry, that's something that has to be planned before an individual is even incarcerated. You know, what direction, what blueprint do we have? And so police officers, everyone has to get involved. It's a community issue, not a, um, a court system in prison system versus an individual. Oh, that's interesting. That would be, I don't know if, we, I don't know if we're going to live enough of a lifetime to see that in the United States. Well, yeah, because, you know, unlike most countries, you know, it's a business here. You know, we make up 5% of the world's population 
yet we incarcerate 25% of the world's people in prisons. And so again, when it's a business, you, you can never really get rid of it, which is why reform has to be tied in because whatever goes on in the streets, as far as the way they incarcerate, the police treat youth, the way police don't come from the communities, all of that stuff trickles down into the prison system where the, the police don't live near the prison. They don't know any of the inmates and they'll treat the juveniles in the system the same way that the police treat the juveniles on the street. So again, that goes back to abolishment, prison reform. How are the police going to even speak to children under the age of 18? Are the police going to undergo and study sociology and psychology and be brought in from these particular communities? Because when you do that and there's an issue happening within the neighborhood, well, that's a problem that actually the neighbors can solve. When prisons are geared towards healing people, who is working in the prison? Are they qualified? Do they know the individuals there where it can be a systematic change? No, of course. Absolutely. Tell, share, Doc, share with us what are some of the projects you're working on right now? Well, <clears throat> now to entertain myself and make some money, I, I've started dabbling in Forex trading, which is trading currency, about uh, mm -hmm. four, four or five months ago. And I had no idea how easy it was to do. And I had really good mentors. So I'm, I'm really learning Forex trading. And um, I really enjoy teaching criminal defense attorneys uh, how they could better understand uh, their clients before they head into prison. So those are the two things that I'm, I'm really focused on and having a lot of fun with right now. Okay, great. Well, I'm, I'm not going to violate any confidentiality that you may have. But as a prison coach, because I remember even when we spoke, I really didn't know what a prison coach was. And certainly you've enlightened me and enlightened the audience about that. But do you have any, without putting any names out there, what, is, what has been one of your most unique experiences as a prison coach in consulting with clients or whomever, whatever in that role? I would say dealing with a, a professional athlete. Um, someone who has um, been catered to his or her own life, someone who's in the physical fitness, who's had millions of dollars um, and being a larger than life figure, just to sit down with them prior to incarceration and uh, having the wonderful privilege to uh, welcome them home after imprisonment. Oh, wow. And what was, what was some of the things that the athlete, any change? and him or her, what were, what were some of the takeaways that they had from their experience? Um, one was accepting responsibility. Um, so often people have no idea about the lives they impact, whether they have um, fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, wives still on the street, and how their crimes may have impacted um, family members. And so they go through, you know, prior to coming back home, they're able to make amends with their families and subsequently their communities. And then um, to be able to rise and get involved with the NFL uh, again and have a successful career, um, that can only happen when people have seen change and you've accepted responsibility. And now you want to be actively involved uh, in your communities. 
Because once you have an attachment to a community, very rarely will you destroy it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, how can people follow you on social media or how can they keep keep track of any new new projects and new 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 uh, ventures that you're getting into? Um, I'm probably the easiest one to find on the internet. You could put in John Doc Fuller, and normally I'll pop up. You could put in John Fuller Prison uh, on Instagram. I'm John Doc Fuller on um, Facebook. The Prison Coaches on Twitter. Um, I'm the Prison Coach, and so um, very easy person to find. No, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I have to, I know we said this before we were recording, so, you know, I have to say it again and, and let the audience enjoy, enjoy some of the things that we were talking about. I know Doc, I met Doc um, through the Fortune Society. When I worked in, when I, when I started working at the Fortune Society, I took over Doc's position. I replaced Doc. And so, of course, you know, when I, I, I heard of Doc before I met Doc. So, of course, when everybody talked about Oh, you're you're replacing Doc. I'm, you know, of course, I got the feeling that I was going to be replacing Big Shoes. And so, um, our friend David Williams, who has transitioned and is still an angel above us, you know, he he talked about you all the time. And then when I finally got the honor to meet you, I couldn't have met a more humble person, a more helping, a more giving person, and then certainly someone that was that was making my transition into replacing you in the position much more easier. And as we've gotten to be friends over the last 15, 16 years, that's why I use the term hero so much because I've seen the, the difference that you made in people that were there at Fortune. I've seen the difference that you've made now that you've been out and I see what you're doing in social media. So certainly when I try to sit there and, and go through that standard of excellence, you're definitely one of the people I try to emulate and follow. So I thank you so much for joining us today, Doc, and thank you for being who you are in my life as well. Well, thank you also um, for sharing, um, sharing that information, Rich. But let me tell you something. Not a day goes by where your name does not come out of my mouth. Um, you take the excuses away from men and women who come home thinking that um, things are impossible. You know, how many people can say, I have a, a, a felony and I'm a doctor, you know, that is as rare as an eclipse, brother. And so that is something you should, should cherish because, you know, there, there's not too much that I don't believe that I can do. Um, I, I believe that anything is achievable, but you've, you've pushed the limits on me once you've got not only your master's, but your PhD. And the thing that really impressed me about your struggle you never made it seem like it was easy to do, right? Whether it was or whether it wasn't, you never made it seem easy because you always had an obstacle, whether it was a person who was already a doctor, a college faculty person, they were always putting blocks um, in front of you, roadblocks, in spite of all of your success. Nobody who's become a doctor had to deal with the obstacles you had to deal with. If it wasn't for a felony, you would have been accepted as a dean, a professor, in all of these various institutions. But they kept saying, making reason after reason after, they fell in love with you. And then once they found out about the felony, it was like, 
check them off, check them off, check them off. So thank you for your struggle. Okay, sometimes it happens with the internet gives it gets a little wonky. So sorry about that, Doc. All right, yeah. the last thing you said was that I didn't make it seem easy, humbly saying that. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so what really impressed me about you, Rich, was the fact that you never once made it seem easy. Whether it was easy or not, you kept it to yourself. But to me, as your brother, knowing everything, and I'm sure you don't mind me putting everything I'm about to put out there, um, to throw it out there, but you know what? No doctor had to go through what you went through to be accepted to become a college professor. Um, you were qualified to be dean, you were qualified to be a professor, and you would go through all of this red tape, all of these interviews, prove yourselves for prove yourself for months. And then once a position became open, the felony conviction all of a sudden came up. And you never let it stop you. You never once used like, Doc, I got this thing going on over here. I'm going to take a shot at it. I mean, people from all, all over the country were trying to grab you. And for some reason, that felony kept popping up in spite of the fact that you had your PhD. It was amazing how they accepted you entrusted you with everything until you went for that permanent position. And then all of these obstacles would pop up. And I'm like, any other doctor would have folded, would have filed some kind of lawsuit, some kind of discrimination, you know, but we always talked about obstacles and they continued to put obstacles in you. I mean, this went on for years, for years. And you know, yes, you can't teach that. You can't teach um, that ability to stay focused, to stay resolved, to have that grit. It's that grit which separates the winners from the losers. You had already went through your transformation. You know, you went through that stage of being molded and to, to crawling to uh, literally learning how to fly. And they still wouldn't accept it. You know, and you just grind it anyway. So when I talk to people, I mention you because I say, listen, I'm not I'm not the college guy. That's just not my thing. I believe I could do anything there is to do in this world. But let me tell you something. This dude, my man, Rich Lewis, pushed the boundaries of my thinking. The studying that he had went to go through, just the loss of family members. Everything was hitting him, and he still made no excuses, man. Every time he got punched, he got back up off the mat. And, like, I'm still standing. You know, that's amazing, man. Anybody could come home from prison and get a job and go to college. Everybody is not cut out to get a master's degree and become a doctor and then get... um bamboozled, hoodwinked, ridiculed, sideswiped, um, sucker punched by his fellow peers and professional professionals at these colleges and, and other um, institutions. You put in the work. You don't owe anybody any apology, any apologies for anything, brother. And that's why I'm so proud of you, man. 
No, I appreciate that. I mean, you, you said it better than I did. <laughs> you said it better, better said it than I could, for sure. But I can tell you, it's the it's the encouragement of of and I and I've always said this is encouragement of people who are like minded people such as yourself, and then really family being able to speak love and put love into you. That a lot of that we know a lot of men and women who come home don't have that. And so when when we come in the role of saying, you know what, let's prepare you for what you're going to see. Let's prepare you for what you're going to see when you come home. I think that's so very important that and I tell folks all the time, I want to keep doing this so well that we put ourselves out of business so that I could go into Forex trading or just be a college professor and don't and have a less exciting life, so to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you something about the beauty of Forex trading, man. Not that that's one is plenty. You can start forex trading with a hundred dollars, man. It's amazing, man. It's amazing, man. It's like a guy could come out of prison and literally get into forex trading and and be very well off for himself in less than a year. You know, it's amazing. You know, and if I wasn't in tune with the young people and what they're doing out there, this would have slipped right by me. Because I have friends with seven series licenses and they know nothing about forex trading. So I keep my ear to the streets to see what the 20 year olds are doing. I'm like, how is all these 20 year olds millionaires? And I'm doing all of this kind of research on the internet and looking at all of these. I said, oh my goodness. And some of them that I can't, they had their college degrees and couldn't find a job. College degrees, they were working at Champs, they were working at and Chick-fil-A's, and then these opportunities come up and they're making $100,000, $250,000 a month. That's it. I want in. I need I need to, I need in on this. So it's a good learning experience. I'm having fun with it, man. There you go. That's what's up. That's what's up, Doc. Well, listen, I mean, if anybody wants to learn the Forex, they can definitely follow you on your platforms and they'll, they'll definitely learn. They'll definitely learn along with you or they'll just do it like like a lot of us did, learn from you as well. So no, I I, I appreciate you joining us on Second Chance Coaching, Doc. We'll we'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely, I love you, brothers. Te- um, take care of the fam. Do what you do. Keep on knocking down walls, Big Daddy. Absolutely, I love you too, brother. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Today we have a very special guest with us today, Miss Karen Lee, the CEO of Pioneer Human Services. I mean, I'll briefly introduce her and then we'll get into the conversation. As Chief Executive Officer of Pioneer Human Services, Karen Lee leads one of the nation's largest nonprofit social enterprise organizations in the United States. Under Karen's leadership, Pioneer successfully operates several revenue generating businesses that provide living wage jobs to mission related employees and helps fund its mission of empowering people who have been involved in the legal system to build healthy and productive lives. Headquartered in Seattle, Pioneer serves over 10,000 people a year through its diversion, treatment, housing, and job training programs. Karen is a graduate of the University of Washington School of Law and the United States Military Academy at West Point. So I say thank you for your service as always. And and with that, we'd like to welcome Ms. Karen Lee, CEO of Pioneer Human Services to Second Chance Coaching. Good evening, Ms. Lee. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I can't complain. I can't complain. We'll get, right, we'll get right to it. Can you tell us more? In the intro, we talked about that Pioneer is a nonprofit social enterprise organization. And I've never really heard that 
phrase used like that before, but can you tell us more about what is social enterprise and how does it address issues such as mass incarceration? Well, a social enterprise is, a, is an organization or a business that reinvests a majority of its profits into its social mission or its environmental mission if, it, if it's an environmental nonprofit. And, and so it's, it's as simple as that. Um, we don't have shareholders that we have to be accountable to. We don't have owners. You know, um, we're nonprofits. So, you know, our, our, our owners are the public and that's who we serve. Right. And, um, and that's, and that's a business and that's a social enterprise. You typically see them um, in the job training arena where um, you have a business that employs um, the demographic that you're trying to serve. And then that demographic, that client that you're serving also gets job training. If it's a job training social enterprise, or if it's like Pioneer, which we're both, uh, we have job training here. And then we also have a manufacturing business. We make um, aerospace parts. We make the uh, exit doors, which we call escape hatch assemblies and 737 aircraft. So if you sit in the exit row and you look to the door to your right or to your left, then that is that was one of the parts that we make here at Pioneer. We, we make over a million parts a year, but those are some of the more recognizable parts as we're what we call a, 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 a tier three um, aerospace um machining company supplier. So, um, but that's a social enterprise. You could also see them where um, they're, they're a lot in the food business. So uh, Ben and Jerry's, for example, um, the plant where they make the Ben and Jerry's ice cream that, um, that hires a particular demographic that they care about. So they're a social enterprise. Um, a lot of the goodwill organizations that we see across the country are, are social enterprises. So that's oh, the definition. You. Oh, no, thank you. I, I've always been a big supporter of Ben and Jerry's, but now I'm six foot three. So now when I get on an airplane and see that, and I always sit at the exit row. So I'll think, <laughs> about, I'll think about you guys now all the time when I sit at the exit row. <laughs> Please do. Yes, indeed. Please do. So you're, you're, you and your organization are based in the state of Washington, like we said, you're in Seattle. Um, as a returning citizen in your state, what would you say are the main obstacles as a returning citizen face in the state of Washington? The returning citizen in Washington faces the same thing that returning citizens face across the country. And um, it's, uh, and a lot of it's dependent on the length of time they were incarcerated and whether or not they have family in the area that can help them. But uh, I would say one obstacle is always um, being shunned and the stigma of former incarceration. I think our society is, is too judgmental. And, and I feel that uh, as Americans, we watch too much TV. So we watch Law and Order, we watch uh, Lockup, we watch the, you know, um, Orange is the New Black. And, and these are TV shows that dehumanize people. And they paint in the show, the, the bad guy in the show, 
um, is always a ho- this horrible person. And, um, and, and I don't, and I think that it's just, we have a generation of people that are hardened from what they've taken in from media. And so um, assuming someone did make a wrong choice at some point in their life, not only are, is the punishment um, oftentimes not consistent with uh, the type of behavior, we also don't look at that individual as a human. What happened in that human's life that, um, that caused their social development to occur the way it did? And it can be many things, um, but um, sometimes it's addiction. Sometimes it's uh, not doing well in school. Sometimes it's frustration with society by being disenfranchised everywhere you turn. So the streets become your home. Sometimes parents not available because they're working or um, for whatever reason. Um, and, uh, and sometimes there, there's an aspect of their personality that they just haven't learned to control. And um, so I think that if we, if we knew, if we could look into each person and see the trauma that they experienced, may, you know, maybe there is a second grader in that person that, that the teacher never called on them and expelled them from school over and over and made them feel um, because they were dyslexic that they would never be successful in school. So why go? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it's a person struggling with their um, identity and they don't feel comfortable in school. Or maybe it's because they, uh, um, you know, they can't afford a book. And, and then they don't want to go to school. And if you're not going to school, you know, it just, it spirals from there. Absolutely. You know, um, you know, most crime doesn't, you know, most crime, it's, it's, it's kind of gradual, you know, the behavior just gets more and more. And then the person's uh, circle, right. You know, our, our, our client circle of friends are doing that same type of behavior and it just becomes this um, this cycle that they can't really get out of. And then um, incarceration finally happens and they're incarcerated a long time. And we've had clients at Pioneer where they're, they're like one felony or 10, it doesn't matter. I, I mean, we might look at it from you know, the outside, but people that are impacted have told me that once you get one, you may as well have a scarlet letter. Yeah, you might You might as well have, like you said, somebody may have one, somebody may have 10, but you might as well have 10 if you just mm-hmm. have that one. So yeah, that scarlet letter, it's, it's a real phenomenon. And, and so I think that, so, so those are the obstacles in, in Washington, right? The stigma, but then also, um, you know, housing, there's housing discrimination by landlords that don't want to rent to people with the felony conviction. Um, and, uh, and even if they're willing, the information and the housing background check may be wrong. It's wrong 50% of the time in our state. So, um, okay. it's, so it's difficult to get housing. Um, it's difficult, you know, um, 
to have to be honestly considered for a uh, a family wage job or a job that has the potential for family wages. I think that other obstacles are the health care that people get while they're incarcerated in jail or prison is often not what it needs to be. So, you know, when you release, you got a toothache, maybe you might have, um, you know, a teeth that needs a tooth that needs to be pulled. You may have had um, an undiagnosed condition. Um, if, uh, you know, if the impacted individual used drugs, they had an untreated drug addiction. So uh, I, I think that obstacles are many. And then the result is poverty. Yeah, if your state only gives you $40 in a bus pass, that's not going to get you very far. True, true, very true, very true. My next question is, when the returning citizen arrives, let's say they, it's me, I come to Pioneer Human Services, what will that individual come to expect when arriving to receive services from you to optimize their second chance? Yes, that's a great question. And I would say it depends on the door that you enter at Pioneer. One thing that we're proud of is that there are many doors and we also have many partners. So if you are looking for a job and you come knocking on the door for Pioneer Industries, which actually happens, mm -hmm. um, you can apply for a position at Pioneer and your pass will not be held against you. It's all about can you do this job? Um, if you are not qualified for the job because our jobs are competitive, Right. You know, we make aerospace parts. I mean, that's a skilled position. Yes, um, yes. Then we can refer you to um, job skills training so that you can um, learn how um, to be an employee at Pioneer and learn the basics of being um, um, an entry level aerospace, you know, aerospace worker to make you ready to get to the first job in Pioneer. And the first job is what we call deburr. Uh, so Pioneer, we okay. are, we, um, we do a lot of machining. I mean, just a lot of what, you know, milling is the term. And it's when you're cutting metal and a lot of aluminum goes on air, airplanes, right? It's light. And so, um, and we have milling, we have, we have just banks of, of milling machines. They're large machines that are computer numerically controlled and, and they take programming. They also take, um, um, uh, workers to lift the metal, to load the metal, um, to take it out and turn it to check um, how the cutting's going. But um, once that initial part is done, you know, you you sand every part by hand. We do have deburr machines, but mm -hmm. but um, we have some that's done by hand, and that's where you start. And oh, that's, um, a, that's a that's a workout and a job. <laughs> it's a, you know you start in deburr, or it's going to be shipping and receiving. It's going to be something where you can, you know, see a shop and um, and then you progress and people progressed from, you know, an entry level position all the way. Our general managers formerly incarcerated. Right. Very nice. Um, and uh, and so we're, we're very proud to be able to offer career paths. The bad thing about aerospace is that it's a boom bust cycle. Mm -hmm. And um, and so uh, we are not immune from that. So if the public is not flying and airlines are not buying airplanes, then aerospace machining companies don't have work. So right now we're down a little bit um, 
in terms of our staffing levels, but typically we hire a couple a month Okay. okay. in better Very times. Good. So Probably. that's on the employment side. Then, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it also depends on your status, right? You know, um, when you come out of any type of incarceration, um, the first thing that should be done is attaching yourself to benefits the very best that you can, you know, um, you know, looking, you know, trying to get yourself, you know, um, signed on to Medicaid. So you have health insurance in our state that's supposed to happen, um, while you're in jail or right before you're released from prison. I don't know how other Uh states do that. And, um, and so, uh, so, cause we got to make sure that your health needs are taken care of. Absolutely. And so um, at Pioneer, if, you know, drug treatment is something that is needed, um, that'll come up and, and we can refer you to a partner that has outpatient treatment. Or if you need long-term substance use disorder care, we, we offer that. If what you need is housing, then, um, then you would um, walk, you know, to one of our housing facilities and you would see if we had um, you know, a room open to rent. So it kind of depends upon, um, what your need is. Some people are, you know, live with family, so Mm -hmm. they have housing, right? And some people, um, already have a job skill, so they just need resume assistance. Um, some people don't have anything. They don't have family. They don't have housing. They don't have a job skill. They don't have a degree. And, and we try to help in all those areas. So it really just depends on the individual. Okay, okay. You was talking about partners that you work with, and mm-hmm. when you meet or when you meet with or work with employers who could hire returning citizens or landlords who may who may rent to rent to folks um, that are coming home and that are directly impacted, what's your biggest challenges to convince the employers to hire? and the landlords to allow to rent to people who are directly impacted or returning citizens? You know, the uh, landlords, we either have landlords that are very comfortable in renting to um, a returning citizen, or we have to work to convince them, you know, convince them. And there's techniques that our case managers have to help build a housing resume, tell something about yourself, um, and, um, or we also try to clean up what's in the person's record, right? So if there's information that's incorrect about you, um, to try to clean that up. So there's a number of techniques, but it, it sometimes it takes a, a sustained effort to find housing for people. It's really, especially right now, because in our state, we have an eviction moratorium. So people aren't moving out and up. And so new people that are, um, returning, they're facing a pretty saturated housing market. So we have to work really hard to help people. Oh, absolutely. I get you on that. What's My next question is, what, what current legislation in the state of Washington um, currently provides the best path to reentry for returning citizens? And what would be the ideal legislation <laughs> in, that, you would, that you would want in your state for those that are directly impacted? What current legislation in the state of Washington provides the best path? So our state has been, it's starting to get a little more progressive when it comes to um, legal and financial obligation reform. And, um, and we at least reduce the interest 
It used to just be okay. like 20%. So, um, so we have that amount down. And then what they can charge the interest on. So we've made some um, progress there. We've made some progress on, on, um, on, on getting records vacated in our states. Um, we just passed voting rights in our state for people that are on partial confinement and on community supervision. Um, and I think that all those things are good. We've also had some um, juvenile justice legislation, which um, reduces um, sentences um, for juveniles. And then it also keeps young adults um, serving with youth rather than having an 18 year old go to an adult prison. So we've made some strides, mm -hmm. but we still have a long way to go. We just had a court case here called um, uh, the Blake decision, which um, um, changed um, the crime of possession, which is important. Um, we In our state, you didn't need to have intent to have a simple possession charge. So people were going to prison um, just for possessing a controlled substance, whether they knew it or not. If somebody planted it on them, it was, I know. And the Supreme Court just uh, struck that rule down. And then the rule that was established in, in its place requires uh, um, um, a, a, a municipal level diversion program for the first two times after uh, um, you've been charged. You know, with the and they also made it a misdemeanor as opposed to a crime. So those are all things in the right direction that I'm very hopeful about in our state. Um, uh -huh. But we still have have a lot of work to do. The next uh, big push that Pioneer is working towards is called housing justice. And what we want to do is to make it illegal for an, a landlord to discriminate against anyone who has a felony conviction simply on the basis of having of that status. Amen. We don't think that's right. We don't think it's fair. We think housing is a basic and universal right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Ms. Lee, close to 700,000 individuals return home every year from incarceration. What would be your advice to those who are listening and are about to come home? What would be your advice as to the, what game plan they should undertake in their first 30 days of reentry? The, the very first thing I would do is if you are currently incarcerated and as you're getting close to your, um, your, your, uh, um, your, your entry back into the community as returning citizen is to get yourself attached to your health benefits, to all your benefits, social security, Medicaid. Yeah. Um, you just, you just want to make sure that you are covered so you can get health care. Absolutely. The next thing that I would do is uh, is to work on your reentry plan. Some prisons have have um, employees that can do that with you. Some have volunteer staff. Some have nothing. Um, but um, you know, you uh, whatever resources that your institution has, you want to really start taking advantage of them and making a reentry plan. Um, when you exit that you know you know within the first week if you already have housing first thing you're going to probably want to do is eat chicken yes. <laughs> get a haircut 
Bicycle club, you know, I mean you you're gonna wanna see people. Or, or even or even McDonald's. When I first came home, McDonald's tasted mm-hmm. like Thanksgiving turkey when I came home. <laughs> <laughs> it tasted like that for us when I was in the army. We went we were in Germany, come back. I gotta come back to the States. I I need some McDonald's. There you um, go. <laughs> so uh uh so you know, I'll give yourself a couple days to, you know, you know, to to be loved upon by people that love you. And and then you kind of got to start, you know, get to getting, as we say. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, if you had a reentry plan um, that you worked on in your incarceration, you want to just tick off that list. And it really depends, you know, do you have documentation like your identification? That's got to be pretty early. You know, if you're on community supervision, you want to make sure that you are checking in. There's probably going to be a check-in um, pretty quickly. And, um, and then I would always recommend going to see a reentry navigator or a reentry organization. Don't feel like you have to do it on your own. The reentry navigators, coordinators, case managers, they're going to have different names depending on the state, but they have access to knowing, they have knowledge that may be helpful. Knowledge won't hurt. You know, maybe they know who the best employers are that are hiring. Maybe they know the best place to live where there's an opportunity for a great apartment. Um, may, you, you, know, um, you know, maybe they know the day to go to the, uh, the Department of Licensing in your state to get your driver's license. Or they're, they're just some, and they can also work through your reentry plan with you to make sure that you're um, checking all the bases. They can help you. They can take a look at your resume and see if it needs work. They can help you um, practice how you're going to talk about in your job interview, how are you going to talk about that employment gap? There's, um, you know, and um, and if you need training, they can recommend that. Sometimes they even have technology they can give to you. So they might be able to give you a cell phone or a laptop. Um, so those are some things that I would recommend um, to any citizen who is returning from um, incarceration or some type of stay in confinement. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, okay, so my next question, I'm going to get in your business a little bit. <laughs> um, what, what, brought you, what brought you to Pioneer and the criminal justice reentry movement? You know, uh, when I got out of the Army, I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. And mm-hmm. I wanted to right the wrongs of the world. And I really looked up to the civil rights, you know, leaders that we had in the 60s. And, and so I went to law school, graduated. I, then I went and practiced law and I said, ooh, this isn't quite that fun and it's hard. <laughs> I, mean, it's a, I mean, it's a lot of writing, it's a lot of reading, it's a lot of late nights and you're by yourself, right? And so then I started doing some pro bono work and I thought maybe I did want to work with people. So I left the practice of law and went into a management job. I just went into a management job at our, at our private utility here in Washington. And, um, and lucky for me, that utility was very good to me. And I, I had a lot of promotions early in my care in my career where I learned how to manage. And, uh, and once I got to um, a mid-management um, junior executive level, the state 
our governor was looking for agency leaders and um, someone told her about me and she hired me to run the, our governor at that time, Governor Chris Gregoire, and she hired me to run the Employment Security Department. And when you're running that department, it's, it's in Washington, it's called ESD, but it's the labor department in most states. Okay. You see the labor indicators because they come through the agency head. So every month I would see the unemployment rate, the people looking for work, um, average income. You, 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 you see the income levels at an aggregated level of people that have some college, no college, um, by their race, by if they're farm workers. And after a month or two, I noticed that all of the income levels for people that had been incarcerated and for farm workers were, I mean, under 20,000 a year. It was quite sad. Oh, wow. wow. And, um, and then you had people with the college degree or, you know, um, they're, you know, income is much higher. And then when you look at the race correlation, it was um, black and brown people, mm-hmm. right? Yes. That were that were in those categories, and and I just wanted to do something about it. So when you're in that role, the way that you impact people is is through policy and programs, right? So um, I worked really hard to make sure that um, our uh, temporary aid for needy family welfare type programs. Um, were very accessible. We had a lot of migrant farm worker programs and places for farm workers to live because that's a big problem here in Washington, how we treat people. And mm-hmm. every apple that you eat is picked by a farm, a migrant farm worker, every single one. Yes. And, um, and that's hard work. You have to climb up the tree to get it. And, and then we also had criminal justice specific programs for people. And uh, then the recession hit, all those programs got defunded. Oh, and uh, and and then and it was just not pretty. But at about that time, Pioneer was looking for a chief a chief uh, executive officer, and they um, um, reached out to me and asked me to apply. And I've been here for ten years now. Very nice. And I bet you the ten years go by just like that. It seems it like does. it does. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah. I've been, I've been in my I've been in my I've been at the college I work at for 13 years and I could still remember my first day like it was yesterday. Yeah. Oh it, yeah. like that. I mean, I I mean employees that um you know, I talked about the career opportunities in in our in our manufacturing um plants. You know, the guy that's our um so you have a general manager and the very next level is like a um uh, it's like a plant supervisor. So the general manager is over everything. And then we have two plants and then there's like a plant supervisor and our current plant supervisor, he started at pioneer the same year I did. I remember seeing him, you know, and I never saw him in Deburr, but you know, I just remember seeing him mm-hmm. and then, and he had experience before, um, where he was incarcerated, they actually had a, a jobs program there. So he had a lot of um, machine experience. He probably had 20 years experience when he got here, but turn around and he's like a lead. And then <laughs> I go back the next year and he's over here. And then you go back and he's, you know, um, running a cell 
And then he's in estimating. And then all of a sudden, it's like he's in charge. I was just, it's just, you know, and, and you know, they bought and sold two houses, got mm-hmm. married, showed me, you know, got married to somebody that had grandkids. I was just like, wow, you that's know. That's awesome. <laughs> and that's what you see. That's awesome. See, when coworkers like that, I told them, you can't leave with me because if you leave before me, I feel like I got to go. So, no, we're, <laughs> we're in this together. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. What what current projects or initiatives are you guys working on now at Pioneer? Well, from an advocacy basis, it's housing justice because um, it's the number one need we hear from people that want to access our services. And we can't house everyone. So many times people come to us for housing. We don't have any. Mm-hmm. And um, so and, and we think that there's just too too much discrimination so that's the number one issue that we're working. And then we're also trying to get our state to fund reentry programming. Yes. Right. Yeah, very so important. that there's a place for people to go that is specific for reentry, for reentry needs to help them have a healthy and productive life and an opportunity to, um, you know, to have um, living wages and a career that they love. That's right. That's right. Well, um, the last thing I want to ask is, um, can you share with us your or your organization's Pioneer social media contact information so we could follow the progress of what you guys are doing? And if you're interested in donating, please donate. These are people doing doing great work with great people and great things. So if we could donate and assist to your org's mission and follow your progress, share with your social media contact information, whether it be for you or the or, or Pioneer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pioneerhumanservices.org is our is our web is our website. And please come. We actually have a mass incarceration quiz we'd love for you to take. So it's pioneerhumanservices.org forward slash mass incarceration. Come take our quiz. You can follow us on Twitter, on LinkedIn. You can even go to my page, my LinkedIn page, Karen Lee. I post on my um, LinkedIn page sometimes. And um, and just get involved. Get involved us, follow us, everything. That's great. Ms. Carley, we thank you so much for joining us today on Second Chance Coaching. Please continue your great work and optimizing the return, the reentry journey for myself and millions of returning citizens and directly impacted people. We thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the last thing I want to say is uh, as soon as you can to all the returning citizens, um, register to vote. Amen. Because Amen. then you can vote for people that are friendly to what what you need. So register to vote and vote. That's, That's my right. parting message. It's been okay. such an honor to be on this show today and talk with you. Um, I'm such a fan of yours. So thank you for the invitation. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. And, and we will we'll be in contact soon. Thank you. I am excited and privileged as always to have such a powerful sister joining us today, Ms. Maisha Nelson. And I'll uh, give a little bit of an introduction to you guys, to her, and then we'll get into the conversation that we'll have about human resources and reentry and her role in the movement. Maisha is a human resources professional who blends performance improvement, operations, strategic planning, compliance, and organizational development together to successfully help businesses meet their goals. She began her career on Wall Street as the director of human resources for a brokerage firm and then worked at one of the largest healthcare 
systems in the United States for over a decade and resources for a nonprofit in San Francisco. Most recently, Maisha founded partnerships with purchased with purpose, also known as the rate of recidivism, specifically for people of color by helping to reduce the employment barriers that returning citizens face when attempting to enter the workforce. T-Squared works with companies to not only show them the benefits of working with returning citizens, but also to help establish a successful work culture that is diverse, non-discriminatory, equitable, and inclusive. Maisha is on the board of the, North, of the Northern California chapter of the National Association for African Americans and Human Resources, serving as their vice president of programs. She is also a member of the Society for Human Resource Management and holds the designation of a senior professional in human resources in SPHR from the Human Resources Certification Institute. On the side, she enjoys traveling, eating out, volunteering. On the East Coast, she volunteered at the Fortune Society the Northside Center and the Eagle Academy Foundation in New York, and on the West Coast at the East Bay SPCA and City Team in Oakland. So at this time, it's a second chance coaching. How are you doing, sister? Hello. Hi, how are you, Richard? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I am doing fine. I'm doing fine. So we'll we'll get right to it and start getting into your business right away. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Maisha, so... So currently you're a director of human resources for a nonprofit. So can you tell us what is it that you're doing professionally there and what sparked your interest in criminal justice reform and reentry? Sure, absolutely. First, I just want to say thank you, Richard, for inviting me to be on this episode of Second Chance Coaching. I'm very excited to be here um, and happy to have been able to connect with you in the last few months. Um, professionally, so yes, as you mentioned, I do work as the Director of Human Resources for the Immigrant Legal Resource Center in San Francisco. I've been here for about two and a half years, and I love the work that I do. I love being in human resources. I've been doing HR work for about a little over 15 years, and it's great because I feel like no two days are the same. And if they are the same, then I wonder if something else is happening that I'm missing out on and I need to be looped Absolutely. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I love the work that I do. I think over my career, you know, there have been times when HR hasn't been my full-time focus, but it's just been uh, a large part of what I do. Um, but yeah, I, I really do love it. And, um, you know, even as a kid, I always loved volunteering and giving back. I always thought it was something that was very important. Um, I think that, you know, as a kid, I didn't have a job. And so I couldn't give back as far as donating money, but I could give my time. And I think that that's something that's very valuable because it's something that you can't get back. Right. So to be able to donate your time to help people, I think, is just such a great way um, to go. And you really can't put a price on it. Um, and my interest in criminal justice reform and reentry, it started back in 2013. So about eight years ago when I was in New York, um, I started volunteering at the Fortune Society located in Long Island City. And it's a great organization. Uh, they do a lot of reentry work. And I just was there to join as a mentor. And I was, how did I get in touch with them? Oh, I was put in touch with them um, from one of the physicians I worked with at Mount Sinai. He had done a lot of work with him and he knew that there was an interest. And so he was like, oh, check them out. And I was hooked. <laughs> and I got to serve in a mentoring capacity, um, just teaching life skills, just to talk to people and just really helping them navigate what it was like to really re-enter back into just the home space and into workspace. And you know, now that I'm currently in the immigration space, I see reentry from a whole different perspective. Um, in particular, the consequences uh, and what that can lead to for deportation uh, for those who are immigrants. 
No, thank you. I, I definitely loved when I, during my time at the Fortune Society, we missed each other by about maybe seven, eight years. <laughs> by the oh, time man. <laughs> yeah, I was there from 2004 to 2006. So, and, but they do great work. I was, they were still in Manhattan when I was there. So they were, mm. they were long into Long Island City by the time you got there. Yeah, yeah. Yes. So as an HR professional, um, and we've, we've done, I've done this episode when I talked about um, last season, I talked about both sides of the conviction question, where I've talked about being a returning citizen applying for a job and also being the one to hire people, either, either hire them as returning citizens or admit them into school. But in your position as an HR professional, what do you look for when you're possibly hiring someone who may have a criminal justice history or be a return? Yeah, I think the first thing is transferable skills that the the candidate may already have, transferable skills. Um, I think that's really kind of the biggest part of it. And some of these skills really could have been um, obtained from when a person is on the inside. So I just figure looking for what aligns with what the employer is currently looking for is very important. Um, I think the willingness to learn, right? Like that's someone who's eager to learn to pick up new skills and just be trained, I think is also very important. They have to be passionate about the work, whatever it is that they're doing. I think a lot of people look at some jobs and say, oh, that's insignificant. It doesn't mean anything, but that's not the case. Every job is designed to contribute to the bigger picture and the overall picture. And I think that's important, just being passionate about whatever, wherever you fit in on that big, the grand scheme of things, just being passionate about that part. Um, And what job are you really hiring them into? Is a job that is it a job that fits within their skill set? Um, and what does that really mean? And sometimes, you know, depending on the position and the individual, some jobs do require background checks, but it really is up to the employer a lot of times to figure out if those types of checks are necessary and what to do with those. No, wonderful. Okay, thank you. And and when you're talking about with check with background checks, many companies don't hire returning citizens over concerns for negligent hiring lawsuits. What would be your suggestion for other HR professionals to properly onboard a returning citizen and maxim and minimize a company's exposure to a negligent hiring lawsuit? Yeah, I think first and foremost, look and see what your state's legislation is around that, um, because every state is different. You know, here in California, we're very liberal and progressive for the most part. And so we have a lot of benefits, um, but not every state is like that. So really finding out what makes sense. Um, Also, if you as an employer have the ability to have employment counsel, I think reaching out to those employment attorneys is very helpful because they know the law inside and out. Whereas I'm an HR professional, I know different parts of employment law, but that's not, you know, my skill set and area of expertise. Um, So if you have the opportunity to speak with employment counsel, I definitely advise employers to do that. Um, There's also like several bonding and insurance grants that employers can apply for, which is something that I learned relatively recently, but it helps also protect the employer from those negligent suits that might come up. Um, Working with the EEOC, um, that is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, um, it's a national organization, and they're part of the Reentry Council, which also partners with a lot of organizations that work with returning citizens. So if you're pairing up with another organization that specifically trains people, you're also lessening the chance of having a suit filed against you. And I think establishing a positive work 
culture is very important and one that encourages the um, employment of returning citizens and really educating your workforce, whether they are returning or not. I think a lot of people, they don't understand, they don't know, so they make assumptions and then those assumptions can later on turn into a suit or something similar. And really encourage open lines of communication between the applicant or the potential applicant and their subsequent hire and their manager. I think a lot of things happen because they're not open lines of communication. Um, so for example, if you can only work a certain shift because of things you have to take care of, if you have to report to your parole officer or something like that, try and be as transparent as possible so your manager knows and they can set you up so that you can actually succeed in the workforce. I think that's a big thing. Um, if the organization can provide resources such as EAP, so employee assistance programs, that's usually a great thing because it just provides another level of support, both for employees who are returning citizens and for employees who are not. Um, and really foster an environment of inclusivity. I think that's very important. Uh, and again, think going back to thinking about the type of work the person really is going to be hired into. And again, only do background checks when necessary. No, thank you for that answer. I mean, we always I always talk about the way in which we engage employees, that that our employee engagement as HR professionals should certainly be optimal, not only for the returning citizens, but for all employees. And mm -hmm. I think that, that what you laid out really, really speaks to that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Lynn, based on your experience and working in criminal justice reentry, and it's certainly you're, you know, you're highly experienced in human resources, what method, and since we're talking about employee engagement, what method or methods should companies use best to promote employee engagement in the workplace? Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the most crucial things is really setting up that, again, that goes back to those open lines of communication between the supervisor and the supervisee. So for example, at the Immigrant Legal Resource Center, all employees, this is in a pre-pandemic world, but all employees have a lunch, a one-on-one -on -one lunch just with their supervisor. So it's a great chance for the new employee to kind of help be onboarded and really get a chance to sit with that person kind of outside the work setting and get to know one another. So I think that's a great start. Um, making sure you have proper onboarding. So with us, you know, I do onboarding. We have our IT people do onboarding. We have, you know, the first couple of days, your schedule is pretty set of who you're going to meet with to help bring you into the culture of the organization. Um, at ILRC, we also have what we call culture circles. It's such a tongue twister, but culture circles, um, which are really designed to talk about the history of the organization uh, and understand why we do certain things and how decisions are made. And I think that really gives new employees a lot of insight on kind of what they're walking into and what the expectations are. Um, I think another thing would just be to have one-on-one -on -one meetings with other staff when possible. Just the more people can get to know one another in that work environment, the better. And I keep saying this, so I apologize for being repetitive. Open lines of communication, <laughs> they are really important and oftentimes underestimated. So yeah. Very important to say open lines of communication because we always talk about open lines of communication and we have to re reiterate it because sometimes that doesn't always happen <laughs> as much as we preach on it. Um, can you share with us what are some of the industry or volunteer projects that you're currently working on? Yeah, so for me personally, as you mentioned in my bio, um, I recently founded Partnerships with Purpose. And so, I mean, as we all know, 2020 was just 
a terrible year for so many different reasons. And, you know, it really underscored the displays of police brutality and violence that were inflicted specifically upon Black people. And we could really see that the laws um, and just in general, the sentencing for whites are significantly less than they are for Blacks. And the families face a real irrevocable damage and despair and people are returning home, especially in 2020, to a world that looks very different than it did prior to really mid-March of last year. And so the thing with Partnership of Purpose is to really work with companies to help them understand what they can do to make their workplaces more inclusive and more equitable. Because now everyone's talking about it. The buzzwords, right, are DEI. Everyone's talking about DEI. How can we get a DEI officer? But, you know, saying it and actually doing it are two very different things. And if you have, you know the desire to really create an equitable workforce, what does that look like? And are you still excluding certain people, in this case, returning citizens? So do you know how to work with a population? Do you understand what it means to be a returning citizen? There are so many different barriers that returning citizens face. And if you don't know how to help navigate that, how are you truly being inclusive? And so the goal is to really work with those companies to educate them and coach them and train them on how to do that successfully. Thank you. This next question is from my students. I think you may know in one of my day jobs, I teach HR. I teach applied concepts in HR. I teach training and development and comp and benefits. So starting this week, I start teaching summertime applied concepts in HR. And I always get this question from my students. So when I have them listen to my podcast for extra credit, they would, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this, this question. Can you share with us what do you think are some of the best qualities one should have as an HR professional? And then, of course, specifically for my students or anyone else listening, can you share with us what is the best way one can break into the HR industry? Absolutely. Uh, I think being a good listener, but also an active listener is probably first and foremost in my mind. Uh, You know, as an HR professional, you're constantly listening to people. It could be other employees, your colleagues excuse me, or it could be your employer, like the the people in the leadership team and things like that. So being able to actively listen is very important. I think being able to pivot and be flexible, you know, things are always happening, like fires always need to be put out, right? So just being able to stop, switch gears and and seamlessly transfer to something else, I think is key. Um, I think HR people, generally speaking, we're very curious, we're inquisitive, we want to know more. And, you know, HR, the rules and regulations are always changing. And And so being able to want to learn more, but also have the ability to be able to stay on top of those things, I think is very important. Um, And as far as people who are interested in getting into HR, so you mentioned comp and benefits, right? So there are so many different pieces to the umbrella, which is HR. So I consider myself to be an HR generalist because I dabble in everything, Um, but there's compensation benefits, there's labor relations, there's change management, organizational development. There's literally like a ton of things that are under the HR umbrella. And so I would advise people if they can take any sort of classes online, even through uh, Coursera or Udemy, find classes that they can take to see if, you know, what they think HR is actually is what it is. Um, If they have someone in their life that they can speak to about what HR professionals do, that's great. Or even if on the job or even on the campus, if they have an HR person they can talk to and pick their brain, I think that's important. I know when I was younger, 
I thought HR was just about filling out paperwork, <laughs> maybe firing and hiring people. Like I didn't understand that it's so deep and there are just so many different aspects. And so when you start to talk to people about that, they're like, oh, wow, I didn't know. And, you know, things like that. So I think that's great. Um, and if, you know, if you can intern somewhere, you know, I think that's a great way to get your foot into the HR door as well. And then even if you're applying, you maybe don't have the experience and it's an HR, an entry level HR uh, position to see what skills you currently have that are transferable and that align with what the HR uh, department is looking for, for that particular job that you're applying for. That is great. What a great answer. Listen, based on that answer, you know my students are going to ask me to, for you to come and visit the class via Zoom. So I, I, may, have, I, I may have to I may have to entice you again to, to do that. Okay. For us. <laughs> um, I, uh, oh, and the last thing I'll the one thing I'll say before I get to our last question, I um mm -hmm. I was texting our our common sister Shirley Renee Williams yesterday, mm -hmm. and I I'm gonna have to get her. I'm gonna try to entice her to come to our class too as well because yes, you know, yes, she, has, yes. she has a great story as well. Yeah, no, Shirley's great. Shirley's great. Love her. Oh, yeah, she's <laughs> awesome. She's awesome. Well, well, Maisha, you got so many things going on and so many interesting things going on. What's what's your social media platforms that people could follow you on or follow Partnerships of Purpose, follow your journey, follow your follow the things that you're doing? Where where can people follow you at? Sure. Um, so I <laughs> need to do better about uh, being in the social media world, but... <laughs> On Clubhouse, you can find me at Ask NASA, which is, I understand, a very random handle, but it's A-S-K-N-A-S-A. -A -A. Little side story. Uh, growing up, I always wanted to be an astronaut. And so I was like, if you want to learn about me, ask NASA. So just yes, there you go. There you go. <laughs> um, and then on both Twitter and Instagram, my handle is the, the letter P, the number two movements. Um, and then the website is the p2movement.com. Um, but I'm also reachable via email. So that would be Maisha at the p2movement.com. But yeah, that's All it. Right, that's that's me. That's great. My sister, Miss Maisha Nelson, has been our joy, our privilege, and our honor for you to have joined us today on Second Chance Co Coaching. Thank you for all you do. Please keep in touch. When I come to San Francisco, I will look you up and yes. you be, a, be my local tour guide. I want to see all the local. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a foodie, so I need to know all the good local eateries. That's what I need to do. I will and start putting a list together. There you go. And we certainly look forward to your continuing and dynamic journey. Thank you so much, Susan. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me. Thank you and be well. I'm very excited as to who we have with us today. Uh, Ms. Michi Morello will talk to her, talk to us about her journey and her program, Cell Dreamer, or her guide, Cell Dreamer. And uh, I'll give a brief introduction, and then we'll get into the conversation with our with our esteemed guest today. Michi Morello is a John Maxwell certified coach, mentor, and acclaimed keynote speaker. With her enthusiastic attitude, she is dedicated to creating confident and successful youth, and has also helped everyone from business executives to people in all walks of life discover the freedom to be their healed and best selves. Her unique style of teaching attests to her creativity. Her communication skills start with active listening, which also leads to profound understanding and empathy for others. Her personal story, which we'll get into today, is proof that success is not only about resources, it's about being resourceful and creative in difficult situations. It's about convictions to charge ahead in spite of the challenges and critics. As a spirited entrepreneur and aspiring philanthropist, Mishi is committed to transforming the lives of incarcerated youth and providing them with the strong life skills that, that she has learned and discovered in her own journey. And her message is quite simple. 
You look forward and embrace change. She empowers students and adults to embrace change and do more with less. Her story is proof that success is just not about resources, about, it's about cat, having the dreams and catching those dreams. She's created a, a program, an eight-week guide called Cell Dreamer that prepares youth to re-enter their lives after incarceration. And it's really designed as a deep conversation between her and the reader. And it gives youth the opportunities to, to discover new coping methods and behaviors while reflecting on past mistakes. And her ultimate goal is to have the youth look at their time as preparation and tap into their leadership abilities while also preparing them for re-entry back, back into society. We are so excited and we welcome to Second Chance Coach today, Ms. Michi Morello. How are you doing, darling? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we talked a little bit about, we said that you had a backstory. So, you know, I, I gave I gave you the great introduction. Well, the introduction you gave me to give you, which is a great introduction. And now we want to hear a little bit more about you. Can you um, share with us what your backstory is? So my backstory is that I went from juvenile delinquent to author. And before I became an author, I was in and out of juvenile detention centers from the age of 14 to 18. Um, unfortunately, I got myself into drugs. I got myself into skipping school, um, selling drugs, using drugs. And unfortunately, I found myself in the system. And I'm originally from New York, Manhattan, Manhattan, New York. And my mom moved me and my sister to Boston, outside of Boston. And, and the reason she actually moved me outside of Boston was because she was trying to give me a better life. And she actually left my father because he was just so caught up in drugs, using drugs. So she wanted to give me a better life. And, and unfortunately, I followed his footsteps instead of following my mom's footsteps. And, and I remember at one point, just just trying drugs because my mom gave him the option. Hey, it's got to be either me and your girls or, 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 or just you and your drugs. You cannot do this anymore. And at that age, I felt like he chose drugs. You know, and it's unfortunately, unfortunately, Richard, because at the age of 15, 14, you don't realize the impact that those decisions have on you. So when I see that my father's not around, I realized that, wait a minute, he chose drugs over me. So that stirred up curiosity within me. And I wanted to try. I wanted to see what was better than me. You know, so I got into cocaine. I got into selling drugs. And, and that was his drug of choice. So I remember just trying it and then just doing it. But I think I was doing it more out of, from a rebellious state versus a conscious state, obviously. And, and I got myself in and out of juvenile detention centers just because I was skipping school, using drugs, selling drugs, and my mom wasn't having it. You know, I moved, the way she looked at it was, I moved you out of New York to give you a better life, and now you're doing these things. And, and it's unfortunate, but like I said, it's one of those things that as an adolescent, we have to, as parents, as, as, or even adults, we have to make sure that what we do don't affect our children later down the line, Absolutely. because it affected me in a way that I felt like he chose drugs over me. And like I said, it, I became rebellious. And thank you for sharing that. Now, in every restoration story, I, in my podcast, I talk about my mom all the time and you started off talking about your mom and I, and I could hear what she did for you. And, and your sibling, what, 
was it your mom that saved you or was it anybody else in addition to your mom? How do you find your way out of that, out of that dangerous behavior pattern? Well, I, I seeing my mom cry, literally seeing her cry every time I got locked up. I'm 39 years old. So this is back when I was 14 and eight, between the age of 14 and 18. Like I said, I was going through a revolving door, but I remember her giving me a book and it was a book that I, she wanted me to read and, and, and just seeing her efforts, seeing her praying, seeing everything that she was doing for me, the older I got, the more conscious I became. So I, I just wanted to make my mother proud, you know, and I saw, like I said, that she was praying a lot and, and it kind of broke my heart because I was conscious an 18-year-old conscious person, now I was like, well, wait a minute. My mom left my father because of X, Y, Z. And now I'm putting her through this. So I made the conscious awareness to say, you know what, I, I've got to stop. This, 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 I can't do this anymore. So I did it with the intention of wanting to make my mother proud. You know, by the grace of God, he gave me the grace, right? Mm -hmm. But those were my intentions was just to make my mother proud. Amen, amen. Now, let's jump ahead a little bit, and you have the Cell Dreamer um, guy that we talked a little bit about in the intro. What was the drive and the thought process behind Cell Dreamer? Explain to us a little bit what Cell Dreamer is, and what was your drive and thought process behind creating it? Okay, so Cell Dreamer is an eight-week course that I developed, um, a personal development course for incarcerated youth, and the thought process behind it um, as a former juvenile delinquent, I remember volunteering as a speaker at a juvenile detention center. And I remember one of the kids just looking at me with so much despair and discouragement and just kind of looking at me like, well, you get to go home. And I remember at that age, I, I acted the same way. It was one of those things that I was like, well, you know what? They don't know, they get to go home. So I remember seeing me within that kid and it just dawned on me, even though my words leave, my voice leaves, my words will stay. So I decided to create this curriculum because I want to serve them. I don't feel like I was well served when I was locked up at that age. I was just told to do my time. When I got out, they told me good luck. When I came in, they told me welcome back. Okay. So it was, there was, never any accountability there was and there was never any life skills that they taught me on hey this is the do's and don'ts so i figured you know what i really believe that everything happens for a reason everything's in divine order and now i am to these kids what i needed at that age i needed someone like me i needed a book like cell dreamer that is gonna get me through the process that is gonna get me self-reflecting on what it is that got me there to begin with on self-awareness, getting the emotional intelligence so that when I am, so that when I was angry, I knew how to navigate through these emotions, you know, and these are adolescent behaviors. They don't know all these emotions, especially with these hormones, with these females and even male, right? They, they go through all these emotions and they're never taught how to navigate through them is, Hey, don't be angry. How about, Hey, wait a minute. How about the proper tools for when they get angry? So, like I said, when I created this book, it was, what did I need at that age? What did I need to listen to? What did I need to read? So it was more me serving them based on what I needed back then. Okay. 
Huh. Okay. Now, when looking at the Cell Dreamer program, and you and this is for youth, you, you said that, right? It's just targeted for youth. Yeah. So from a big picture standpoint, what do you envision that these that the youth gets out of Cell Dreamer? And and what kind of impact are you hoping for them in the future, you know, beyond incarceration? What do, what's what do you what are you um, envisioning for them and what impact do you hope it leaves with them once they once they once they leave or while they're there and then once they leave? Yeah, well, the book is called Cell Dreamer Freedom Starts Here because I think that I really believe that freedom starts right where they are. You know, they do not have to leave this jail cell in order to find their freedom. That's that's actually I don't think that's a a, a good mindset to have. And I actually instill that in them. Freedom starts seeing the reason being is because I'm equipping you. I am preparing you so that you're able to look at this as a preparation season as opposed to a punishment. So what I see within them is is becoming their best selves. And the way that looks like to me is is there's so much talent that's locked up. Okay. Who would have thought when I was 14, 15, 16 years old that I would have became an author? But within that little girl, that lost little girl, there was an author. There was a writer. So I really believe that if I work, if I continue to work with them, I help them discover who they really are. Because the truth is, is they're pretending to be someone they're not because they don't even realize you know, they, even adults, sometimes there's self-discovery that needs to be made. So at that age, they don't even really know who they are. And there's so much talent. There's basketball players that are locked up. There's singers. There's, there's so much potential. But they haven't realized that based on their environments and everything that they have been through. Thank you. As an educator myself, there's always been the debate as to what we're teaching the youth or what we're teaching people in higher education or in any stage where, where someone's learning. Um, when you're te when you're teaching cell dreamer, what have you noticed is the biggest difference between what you teach, especially to the youth and what they're being currently taught, whether it's been, whether it's in an institution or, or in a, in a school setting. Um, well, what I'm teaching is not being taught. I'm teaching life skills. I'm teaching personal development. I'm not teaching math. I'm not teaching from an from a literature point of view of history or anything. I'm teaching life skills so that when you're able, when you leave there, you're equipped mentally, emotionally, socially, spiritually. You're writing down your goals. You're meditating. You're breathing. You have a release action plan. Um, right now, I am in about five states. I'm in Delaware. Um, Massachusetts, Missouri, Florida, and and everyone who has seen the book is has said the same thing. This has not been done before, you know, because I am bringing something from a juvenile, from a former juvenile's perspective. And like I said, I know what I needed, and this is the reason I'm bringing it to the table now. Okay. What were you doing before you created Cell Dreamer? We we see I always I always tell people we're 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 always a work in progress. We're not a finished product. Right. But but the work in progress that you're in right now, what were you doing between the time that you said, Okay, I'm gonna stop doing this thing and then you started Cell Dreamer? What were you doing um between during that time before you well, started Cell Dreamer? Well I went to school, I went to Job Corps and I picked up a graphic design trade. So I was, I was a graphic designer for 20 years. I was actually the one who designed all of Cell Dreamer. 
um, wrote it, self-published it, designed it. The only thing I did in design was the barcode, but those skills came in handy, not realizing that it was going to be used for these youth. So I've, I've, my background is gra a graphic designer. And after I became a graphic designer, I felt like it wasn't, I wasn't fulfilling a purpose. It was more about the paycheck versus the passion when I was a graphic designer. And I figured I wanted to do something different. And that's when I became a, a John Maxwell certified coach. So that, I, so that I'm able to not only teach these youth, but I'm able to also instill hope and inspire them. One of the two, one of the things that I know that um, you probably talk about and that I talk about in the coaching and consulting space is that the changes really start with you, with your mindset. It really does start in that, in that place. Um, given where your journey has, that you shared with us, where you've come from and what you're doing now, what are, what, are some, what are two or some of the biggest changes in your mindset that you've gone through in the last 10 or 15 years? I would have to say character transformation. You know, um, I think character transformation is important. I think that people act out of habit. People are habitual humans. So for me, I think that I've always wanted to become better. I've always been one to want to wake up before the sun, rise before the sun, I've always pushed myself to a limit that most people won't do, right? The only people that I've seen do what I do is people who are athletes or, 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 or are doing things for like the Olympics. Like I'll literally wake up in the morning and I will grind and, and, and it's, it's a mindset. I have a winner's mindset. And that's the reason I wrote the book because I want them to see and tap into their own power, right? And once you tap into your own power, I think life becomes limitless because you know what you're able to do. The mind is such a powerful, the mind is so powerful and, and whatever you can see, you can achieve, you know? So I've created this book because I, I, I saw it way before I even created it. So I knew I could do it. So I think that um, mind, um, character transformation is definitely one of them. I think I'm always, like I said, I'm always looking for ways to improve, you know, um, and just pretty much being aware, just being aware all the time, like consciously doing things. Like I'm, I'm actually, I consciously love, I, consci I am consciously here, you know, and I think, again, we act out of habit. We do things from a place of autopilot all the time. So I think those are the two things that have served me the most is making sure that I'm always chipping away the things that don't serve me so that my character could always be poised. And also so that and also my mindset, like, is one of those things that I need to always become aware like I'm always aware of, of, of who I am, what I do, those consciously there. That's great. What do you see Cell Dreaming, Cell Dreamer becoming over the next five years? I see it in every single state, every single region, every single city um, within now. My goal, one of my goals is to have a certification program to where those who were incarcerated are now able to facilitate the course to those who are in, 
incarcerated. So that's one of the things that I definitely want to work on. So in the next five years, I could definitely see Cell Dreamer being a, a, a coaching a coaching program to so again so that the so that those who are incarcerated are now teaching those who are in, in the system. Okay, that's great. How was John Maxwell? I'm sorry. Kind of like a John Maxwell. I'm yeah. a certified coach, so mm -hmm. I want I want to do it so that they're a certified cell dreamer coach. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, like you said, with the mindset. You put it out there, then you'll definitely achieve it. You'll definitely achieve it. Thank you, thank you. What, how has how has been the youth or the people that service the youth that you've been serving, How what has been their reaction and reception to the to Cell Dreamer? The youth love it. I had one kid tell me I was oblivious to my behavior until I wrote it down on the exercises. And that made me feel good. Because when I created the book, I actually said that. Once they write down what they've done, because I have a section of the book that says, what got you here? And it's one thing for the judge to tell you what you did, but it's another thing for you to write it and have to see it with your own handwriting. So I had one kid say, I'm a, I was oblivious. I feel like I could fly now because I have never been more aware than now. You know, so I think I'm opening up that curiosity level to where it's like, well, wait a minute. Has this what I've been doing? Has this how I've been acting? I, I, I also have an, an exercise and it's who deserves your apology. Okay. And once you write down who deserves your apology, it hits different. Because you're like, well, wait a minute. This person deserves my apology. But then I go as far as asking, why do they deserve your apology? Right? You know you did something wrong. So I, I have you write it down that so-and-so needs your apology because I did this. So giving them those thought-provoking questions, what happens is it raises their awareness level to where it's like, oh, well, wait a minute. I need to change. I can't believe I did this. But even though they're working through that, I also say this. Now you got to have self-compassion and forgive yourself. So now write yourself an apology letter because it's okay. Yeah, they, they deserve your forgiveness and you need to apologize for what you've done. However, you also need to forgive yourself. So it's, 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 it's a lot of healing as well, Cell Dreamer. I would imagine I, when you talk, I love what you just said about who deserves your apology. How many of, that, how many of those youth actually say, I deserve to apologize to myself. How many of them did actually would say that? Oh, they've done it. They've okay. been doing the exercises because again, they've done it. I deserve an apology. This person deserves an apology. So there's a lot of healing there. I find that there's some boys and they tell them, they've actually told me, oh man, this book is making me mushy. Uh -huh. That boy they said, it's making me mushy. But I love the fact that they're allowing themselves to be vulnerable so that they can continue the course because they want to become better, you know? Wonderful. Well, we've talked a lot about Cell Dreamer. Um, do you have any other projects on the horizon or Cell Dreamer is what your focus is on right now? Right now, Cell Dreamer is my main focus. My main focus. Once I get to at least 50% of the state, 
then I'll work on another on a different project. Um, but right now, Cell Dreamer has only been out for about seven months. So it's 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 fairly fresh. Uh-huh. And like I said, I'm on a mission to get it in every single detention center around the world. Well, we thank you. When we talk about our criminal justice system in the United States, as you know, I know, a lot of us know that it affects, it doesn't affect just the person that isn't, that is detained. It doesn't just affect whoever might've been affected, who might've been the direct uh, recipient of what caused the detention. It affects a lot of people, a lot of people. And certainly you see what's going on with the youth in a utopian existence. What would you think are, what fundamental change do you feel our criminal justice system needs in the United States? I don't think they should be incarcerated, right? I think that they need to go through a program, okay? There's a reason that they're behaving like this. You can't just smack these kids in the hands and say, don't do it again. You can't do that. I think it's a, it's a matter of, of, like, that's one of the reasons why I created this program. I'm actually working with the courts from Missouri so that it could be a mandatory course so that they're not incarcerated. Okay, so take this course, eight weeks, personal development, let's heal, let's do what needs to be done so that you can go ahead and not get locked up. And, and so I think that incarceration, I don't think is the key. Isolation is not the answer. You know, we can't use these punitive boot camp approach thinking that they're going to change. It's, it's having that compassion and understanding, put them in a program you know, in a mandatory eight-week program, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it takes. But what happens is when you lock up a kid, they feel like they've been pushed out of society and they're no longer wanted, okay? Uh -huh. so now they've been pushed out of society. Now they're locked up based on a mistake. So what are we teaching them? So every time you, there's a mistake, you get pushed out? No, 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 no. I think it needs to be accountability, not punishment. Absolutely. I get it. I mean, I think that a lot of times when we look at our system, our system concentrates a lot on punitive measures yeah. and we don't concentrate on accountability and more so, like you said, we don't concentrate on the healing because there's a lot of healing that needs to take place behind the scenes. Absolutely. Uh, Mishi, sister, I have really loved this conversation and really got my mind going about Cell Dreamer and I'm quite sure it's done that for our audience as well. Um, how could the audience keep in contact with you via social media, support your support the Cell Dreamer um, project that you're doing right now? Share with us how we could keep in contact with you. So the website is celldreamer.com, www.celldreamer.com. My Instagram platform is all Michi E. Murillo on every single page. That's M-I-C-H-Y E. Murillo. On Instagram, I'm on Instagram and Facebook. Okay, all right, that's good. Well, I gotta make sure we get connected on Instagram then. <laughs> For Absolutely. Sure. Absolutely, I'm surprised we're not already connected. I know, I know. We've been speaking so much. I'm surprised we're not already connected, but I'll make sure that happens. I'll make sure that happens today. Well, Mishi, thank you so much for joining us again on Second Chance Coaching. I have absolutely enjoyed the conversation and certainly keep in touch with us. Let us know what's going on and let us know how we can be of assistance in any way possible. 
Thank you so much, Richard, for having me. I appreciate you, and I look forward to doing future work with you. Absolutely. I look forward to it as well. Thank you, sister. Today, we have a great, great treat for all of the, all of us today here at Second Chance Coaching, and we're joined today by Miss Susan Slotnick, and I'll give a little introduction to Susan, and then we'll get into the conversation and really um, be on uh, the way of getting onto Susan's journey and learning more about her and the work that she's doing. Susan Slotnick is a social justice act activist and inspirational change maker. For the past 25 years, Susan has gone behind the walls of correctional facilities every week to bring the joy of modern dance to incarcerated men and boys. Her choreography dealt with serious themes geared to improve, to inspire audiences and students towards social justice activism. Susan is also the author of the book Flight, The Dance of Freedom. The book details Susan's stories and takes readers behind the walls of their correctional facilities, providing insight into the correctional environment and what happens when people are given a second chance. With that, I would like to welcome and be so excited to thank Susan Slotnick for her time and joining us today on Second Chance Coaching. Susan, good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Could, could, Susan, could you share with us a little bit about your upbringing and how did it shape the work that you do currently? I was raised as a privileged white Jewish girl in Scarsdale, New York. However, my background was my father was an autistic savant and my mother was mentally ill. So it was an incredibly strange dynamic. And at that time in upper class neighborhoods, most of the people had uh, maids and most of the maids were people of color. And when I was a child, I thought everybody else in the house was a baby and a black woman in a white dress. But our maid, whose name was Pat and lived with us, she kind of taught me black history starting from when I was in the second grade and taught me about black music. And because she seemed to be the most sane person in my household, I became at that point very interested in racial issues as they were presented to me by her. And then by the time I got to junior high school in White Plains, New York, and saw the institutionalized racism going on in the school, for example, if a young, very intelligent person of color wanted to go to college, the guidance counselor would say, there's going to be a quota. Blacks are not accepted at college. So don't take an academic course, face reality, take home economics or auto driving. And so they had absolutely no reason to try to do well in school. They were told they weren't going anywhere. So a lot of them cut school. And I was kind of at that point, a bit of a juvenile delinquent myself. So I used to cut school with them and hang out in the projects. That was my second education about race in America. And then I started to read. I actually later on flunked out of high school. I, at the end of my, my sophomore year, I had five Fs and never made them up. But at the same time, I was interested in Shakespeare. I was voraciously memorizing Victorian poetry. And I was especially reading volume upon volume of books about the Holocaust. And in my mind, I was able to tie in race in America with what happened to the Jews in Germany. And it absolutely put me on fire. Now, the first oil painting I did, because my, my work in college, I majored in oil painting. When I was 14, I did an oil painting based on the Holocaust, where I did about a whole painting of many people sitting on a couch, about maybe 20. And they all had numbers on their face and on their arms. 
And about two years ago, there was an art show, a prestigious art show in New York City about the Holocaust. And I put that painting in and it was accepted. And I went down to this very prestigious gallery and there was my 14-year-old painting. And for the first time, there was a black man I noticed in the painting. I had put a black man into my Holocaust painting. So it was my bizarre upbringing, quite a bit of abuse as a child, uh, what I learned from Pat, what I saw in junior high school, and the Holocaust studies that all combined to make me want to do something for social justice generally and for black people specifically. Wow, thank you. That's extraordinary. We could almost end right there. That's that's a great answer. <laughs> that's a great answer. Thank you for sharing that with us. Thank you so much. Um, my next question was, I know that when I looked at your background and I saw what it is that you do, you have um, formal training in modern dance. Can you give us a little more about your, your formal training in modern dance and how I saw, we talked about your upbringing, but how did your formal, talk to us about your formal training in modern dance and how did that become a part of your social justice advocacy? Well, uh, for a little white girl, a little white teenager, I never liked the Beatles. I never liked white music. I never liked um, any kind of heavy metal rock. All I liked was R&B. And that was the music I would listen to. At the same time, the only dance that I liked was Black-influenced dance. So I started out taking a lot of African dance, and then I studied with Alvin Ailey with the Alvin Ailey Company. And the basis of the Alvin Ailey Company technique was Lester Horton technique, who happened to be a white man, but black dancers flocked to his style of movement. It was very dramatic, very ballistic, very much like black music, the movement. So I studied Horton technique, and my interest in dance was, again, tied to my interest in black culture. So I danced all the time. One of the stories that I seem to always wind up telling is that I was raped at the age of 18 and I came home from that experience to my crazy house and I danced all night. I danced to a song by the Drifters. Now you're too young to remember this or maybe you like this music, but by the end of dancing all night, after having had this experience, there was no such thing as date rape at the time, but that's basically what happened. I felt fine in the morning. I danced the whole night to R&B music and felt great the next morning. And then forever I wondered, where can I bring the freedom and the healing of dance where people need it the most? Having said that, I have to tell you the evolutionary biologists and evolutionary psychologists have now determined that slow, beautiful, controlled movement to luscious music changes your brain chemistry and brings out the same chemicals that antidepressant medication does. So many, many years later, I looked back at the incident of the rape at 18 and said, wow, there was science involved in this. It was something I always thought was just my own personal magic. So I taught the kind of dance in the prisons, slow, dramatic, beautiful, controlled uh, movement, almost exclusively to either Black-influenced movement or movement that should have been Black-influenced because it had the same dramatic and beautiful, deep resonance as Black music. 
So I, I used all kinds of music, but primarily black music. Are you familiar with the song by Kem, Each Other? No, I don't. Oh, my I'm heavens. Not, I'm not particularly familiar with it. No. Oh, you've got to listen to that. It's all, it's this beautiful piece of R&B music about all the horrible things humanity does to each other and how God is the answer. And I choreographed that for 20 years in the prison. And during that piece, the men acted out some of the violence that they either were victims of, because I think it's important to know that most men in prison are not only perpetrators, they're very often victims. So the song is about ending the violence that you do and ending the violence that was done to you, and they acted it out, and then it ends in this very beautiful transformation from violence to peace, and actually ends with a piece of Christian imagery that I didn't realize until after it was choreographed. It ends with one being man lifted up with his arms outstretched by the whole group. And it, you could see it was on, he was on a cross. And when somebody, when somebody pointed that out to me, one of the men, they're very funny in prison. Mm -hmm. A lot of the men have great senses of humor. They Mm -hmm. said, do you realize you just ended our dance with the crucifix and what kind of little Jewish show woman is doing that? The the imagery was in my head. It was in the vernacular. It's in the culture. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's an absolutely beautiful piece. I I don't know if it's on my website. It might be. What's the name of the piece again? I'm sorry. It's by Kem and it's called each other. Okay. 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 And it's, it's just, it'll level you. You'll, you'll be in tears just listening to it. And, and when you realize men in prison not only heard that piece of music 7,000 times during rehearsal, but danced to it hundreds of times, and it transformed their brains just by doing it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You, you go into a little bit about describing your modern dance program in the prisons. Can you give us a little bit more detail as far as your, your methodology or curriculum as far as how you do the modern dance program with, the, with these men and boys in, in, in the prisons? Well, first of all, I want to say, since nobody knows what prisoners are like, even though they keep asking that question, one of the worst things that I would hear is, oh, how'd you get them to dance? Captive audience, ha ha. Well, they were never a captive audience. They all volunteered for the program. Yes, indeed. Because they wanted to use whatever tools possible to transform their lives. So I had studied for five years with a Russian mystic in my adult life named uh, Gurdjieff. And it's all work that now is considered mindfulness. In my vernacular, it was work on attention. It was very deep work about transforming negative emotion, changing the personality. And I know when you people say changing the personality, people get very sensitive, but we are not our personalities. We're what's underneath them. So sometimes you have to get your personality out of the way to get to the essential human self that you are. So I taught a philosophy based on the Gurdjieff work as the cornerstone of the dance program. And then the practice of the philosophy of mindfulness and attention and getting your personality out of the way, which Gurdjieff would say is a false personality. I wouldn't use the word false because a personality is a necessary persona, a mask that we have to have in order to protect our real spirit self. 
So I don't think it's false. I think it's necessary. But when you get it out of the way and you dance while feeling your feet on the floor and maintaining mindfulness and presence and attention, what you see is amazing. Sometimes I would show video of the men in prison dancing to former members of the Alvinelli company, and they would say, well, who are those people? Is it retired people from our company? I'd say, no, it's men in long-term incarceration in prison. What I think bothers me and what I loved about hearing your podcast at the beginning is nobody really knows the quality, the heart, the talent, the beauty, and the wish of many men in prison. Not all. There are some people we, that, you know, for public safety, we can't let them out. But one of the best things that was said to me about my book was this woman wrote to me and said, I've been visiting someone at Attica for 30 years and listening to his stories. And this is the first book, movie, poem, documentary that has ever really revealed what they're really like. If you want to know what they're really like, you read my book, and I do not mention their crimes unless they tell me them. If they want me to know what they did, I will listen, but I've never asked. And yet I've presented them for who they are when I knew them, not who they were as teenagers. Of course. Wonderful. Now, since you started talking about your book, can you tell us more about your book, Flight, the Dance of Freedom? Well, I did a lot of inner, inner, inward trying to figure out how I wind up in a men's prison. Why not a woman's prison? Why did I want to wind up in a place that primarily had blacks, Hispanics, and immigrants, and a smattering of white people, but very, very few in New York prisons, unfortunately. It, this is our system, and we all know what it is, and we all know how it got that way. But, I'm sorry, you asked me about the book, right? Yeah, about the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so what I wanted to do was to figure out what happened in my life which was so different than their lives, which was similar, which made me able to understand them and them to understand me so that we could create works of art. So I looked at myself having been a victim of sexual abuse about five times before the ages of 18. And I looked at what happened when my father was robbed by what turned out to be a black man in his store. And I looked at what it was like to grow up with everybody telling me that I was barely educable, that I had a low IQ, which is crazy because I've done these amazing things. It still makes me laugh when someone calls me a genius. I feel like showing them my transcript from White Plains High School. What do you mean? I show my students my transcript all the time. I said it did not say future doctor on it. So <laughs> Amen. I, I, told, I okay. told them that all the so time. So you see, it just <laughs> happened. Yes. What my book is about just happened in the present between you and me, which is we have things in common in the culture now. We're not finding those commonalities which would bring us to understanding and love. So the first half of the book is my story, very personal. When I wrote the memoir, I said, I'm, if I have anything negative to say about anybody, it's only going to be about myself. And believe me, I had plenty of negative things I could have said. Mm -hmm. But I was only going to talk about myself. And then the second half of the book is all about the prison program, 
the men asked me to tell their stories in the book. So of the five men who continued dancing on the outside and formed their own dance company, I recorded their stories, and their stories are in the book. And then, because COVID happened, I wrote a part two, which is kind of humorous and funny and um, poignant COVID uh, essays about what was going on in my life during COVID. But I had to make a decision. And the decision that I made was that if I wrote the book, I was going to lose my volunteer status to be in the prisons. But after 20 years and being 76 years old and COVID throwing all the volunteers out, I had written the book years ago, but it was way more important to me to be in the prison working with the men than it was to publish my book. So I had the book on a shelf. But then when... When the break happened, the, the horrible prison break in New York, um, everything sort of stopped in the prisons. The morale was very bad. I had less volunteers. So that was the first thing. And then COVID happened. No volunteers were allowed in. And then if I waited the 18 months, my assistant had gotten another job. So I said to myself, who are you now? You're not going to be teaching in prison for another 20 years. It's time to publish your book to inspire other dancers or other poets or other painters or other people who just know how to be kind to go into the prisons and work with a gifted population where you get back way more than you could have ever imagined. Amen. Amen to that. Do you now, Susan, are you in New York right now or that's, that's where you live right now? Yeah, I live in New York. Okay. Now, do you, did you work with a specific correctional institution or institutions in your area or, or just state or federal or both? Well, I worked with, um, in two maximum security prisons. I got kicked out of one, which the men told me when I got kicked out of Eastern, they said, that's a badge of honor. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you must, have, gonna, done, you must have, say, have done something right. I was going to say, you must be a good troublemaker if you got kicked out. <laughs> I said, they said, you must have done something right. Then I worked in Greenhaven for a very short time, which is a very serious supermax here with mm-hmm. incredibly gifted men as part of a theater slash dance program. But most of my time I spent in a high medium in Woodburn, New York, uh, working with the same men. Some of the men we used to laugh. They'd say, you've got a long bid. You got, you came here 10 years ago. I'm still here. You're still here. Oh, wow. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you, you, you talked to us earlier, Susan, about, um, the mass that we have or the mass that the men have. And I know that, you know, especially when you're in an environment such as prison, the establishment of trust is something that's very important. It's really hard to get to. Can you give us a little bit of an insight as how did you create trust with you and your program when you were working with these men and boys? Well, first of all, I want to tell you, and this is an aside, I am an extremely talented person at inspiring people. The men would say to me all the time, it's a good thing you're a good person because you can convince anybody to do anything. So let's set that aside and then let's (laughs) talk about them. Mm Mm-hmm. We all want to take off our masks. We have a deep yearning for authenticity. It's part of our desire for holiness, for unity, for God, however you define it. So they were anxious 
to be able to be part of an endeavor where the mask was gone in a place where the mask was unbearable. Prison is a place where the mask is unbearable. So I used my talent, which I'm not really responsible for because it's a, um, it's a heritable quality. I didn't work to become talented. I was talented. I used my talent, but the amount of desire they had to take that mask off, and somebody came in and did a radio documentary that I think is on my website during dance class and interviewing the men, and they talk about taking off the mask in a way that is mind-boggling. They were interviewed, and this is on CBC Radio, and it's called Figures in Flight, and it won the highest award a radio documentary can get. It was done by a wonderful Canadian man, and it can be listened to on the radio by anybody, and you're in the dance class hearing the men talk about taking off the mask and what dance has done for them. They're the stars of my program. I went in there with a toolbox, and I'm not ashamed to admit I have exemplary tools. I can teach like nobody's business, and I can choreograph, and I can paint, and I can write. I have all these abilities, but I was not the star of the program because I don't care who you are. A teacher is only as good as their students. A teacher in front of a class with all the gifts in the world and students that are sleeping is not going to accomplish anything. So these men were by far, out of the thousands of students I've had on the outside, these men were by far my best students and brought out the best in me. And I know you've shared a lot with us so far. And, um, and I know sometimes people may, may take in at, who are listening to hear all the things that you're saying and what we're talking about with each other. But sometimes people want to say, okay, well, what was the brass tax? If that's what they, that's how they want to put it. Like, what was the goal that you were seeking for, for the man? It may be, it may, may not, may be obvious, but certainly I wanted to see what, what, what was your goal being sought as far as helping them? Well, the goal changed. The goal, mm-hmm. the goal started out with my situation when I was raped. I just want people to feel free. I want them to move in beautiful ways. And then as they were able more and more and more, my goals got bigger and bigger. I could see the dance was healing for them. I could see that working on attention was going to stick with them. A man just called me who was in my program 15 years ago, and I used to teach attention equals love, that attention is the verb in love. I would tell them, what do you care about? Oh, I care about my daughter when she comes to visit me. I said, okay, try caring about it without being present, without paying attention. I said, the verb is in, in, in life. You can't, love is a concept. The verb is attention, is giving your attention and your presence. I had a man after 15 years call me last week and told me a day doesn't go by when I don't practice attention equals love. So my goals, as they became sponges for the philosophy, and by the way, I'm not that great at it. They would laugh at me. I would talk about paying attention. And then every time I I left the dance space, they'd say, you're leaving your badge here. You're going to get in trouble. You're leaving your hat. You're leaving your coat. You just walked into a wall, attention lady. So I didn't, I didn't present myself as any kind of guru. And if they called me guru, which they did a lot, because they were getting so much out of it, I would say, I'm nobody's guru. 
don't put me on a pedestal. It's a very shaky place. I'm sure I'll fall off of it very quickly. But they were sometimes even better than me at embodying the philosophy that I was teaching. So since the philosophy plus the dancing was transforming their lives, my goal became I can help them transform their lives because they showed me that the work was doing that, not because I felt I could do it, but they showed me it was doing it. One thing that was very important to me about being a volunteer, and I want to say this to anyone that might be listening that thinks of being a volunteer, don't you dare go in there thinking you're going to save anybody's life. People save themselves. If you teach someone to build a house, you come in with great tools and you say, here's this tool, here's that tool, and they build a house. Who built the house? You or them? <laughs> you did. <laughs> if, you, if you don't, yeah. So they did all the work mm-hmm. just using the tools that I gave them and they were and the talent. Well, I knew from the time I was 11 years old listening to only R&B music, I knew there was a certain coloration. That's an interesting choice of word. A certain coloration <laughs> in the amount of talent in black culture. That was very clear to me as a as a young child. Oh, thank you. Thank you. We've spoken and, and we've spoken. We we we've established we know that prisons are are a place where people come in with a certain level of trauma and trauma could continue to be manifested there. What would be, based on your experience, what would you think would be an ideal shift in in the way in which in the way in which um prisons provide programming or or programs or whatever the case may be to more so promote healing? and better mental health for those that are inhabited in the prison. Well, I'm going to start off by telling you that I met some amazing corrections officers that were doing not only the job, but going way beyond it. I met an amazing, amazing director of programming at Woodburn. Her name is Jean King. I don't mind mentioning her name. She was amazing. She was on the side of everybody, the men, the officers, the administration, and the men to this day tell me she was exemplary. So I want to say that we need more people like that, for starters. We need to train them to be more like that in the current system that we have. So I'll start with that. (coughs) Excuse me. We need to train them to be mentors to be listeners, and to care about the men. Now, having said that, that's also a minefield because I'll tell you a story. One corrections officer told me that he really became friends with a man who was his porter, really cared about the man, was delighted when the man got out. The man comes back a few months later, and he says to him what happened, and the guy has a whole mitigating circumstances list of excuses But then this corrections officer went on the website and found out that during the course of this robbery, the man had also raped a 10-year-old girl. So you have to be sensible. Most people who have never been in prison or encountered prisoners or corrections officers, they're either all one way with rose-colored glasses or all another. So the first thing is you have to be sensible. There are people, unfortunately who can't come out for the sake of your daughter and for the sake of other people's daughters. It's just the way it is. It's horrible. 
They always have mitigating circumstances of injustice, long histories of things that happened to them that were wrong, that created who they were. That out of the way. De more decent people working as corrections officers. And then programming has to not be for the few, but for the many. So that let's say there's a college program. And sometimes the college program, in order to look good, has a high level of people who are intelligent, who enter the college program. It's very competitive. And they take people that they know will do well so that their program gets funded. This happens quite a bit with private college programs in prison. That's not right. College education should be for all. And there should be courses for people to take of things they're interested in. The arts, of course, are wonderful. They also need a tremendous amount of preparation for dealing with the outside that they don't get. They don't get the right kind of preparation. Many men come out of prison if they have really availed themselves of programming on all levels open to them. They come out overqualified for the jobs they can get. There's one man who has been depressed since he left, and he left about 15 years ago. He was a star in the theater program. He was a star in the dance program. He availed himself of every program. And when he got out, the only thing he could be was a dishwasher. He was overqualified for that job. So a lot of returning citizens have to start at a place that is really not utilizing them in a way that will help them stay sane. I'm not saying stay out, because there's too much emphasis on that. And the emphasis is coming from fear. We need yes. them to be happy when they come out, yes. to have good lives, to have meaning in their lives, to be able to use the skills they use. You know, can I just tell you one quick story? Because I have so sure. much to say about it. Sure, this. absolutely. No, no, take your time. We're, we're, I'm enjoying this. And I know everyone who's, who will listen to this is enjoying it as well. So I, went, I got kicked out of the boys' prison, too, by the way. That was my second prison. It's a very funny story. It's in my book. <laughs> it's, it's a light bulb story. I had a mm -hmm. big show coming. I'd been working on the show for three years with the same boys between the ages of 12 and 18. A lot of them had children. You know, all the years people talked about unwed mothers in the hood. Well, the unwed mothers obviously had an unwed father. The fathers wanted to be good fathers. I had 16-year-old boys crying themselves to sleep because they weren't with their babies. These are the things people don't know. So I would mount these big shows, and then I'd invite their families and their children. So there was a big show. There were 200 people that came, and there were no lights on the stage at this facility. So I said to the correction officer and to the rec director, we got a big audience coming. Got to put the lights on. Well, that's not in my union contract. You got to get the maintenance people. So I said, okay, we got a couple of hours. Call them. It's the weekend. They're not here. So I strong-armed, because of my ability to convince anybody to do anything, I strong-armed the corrections officers to get on ladders and change light bulbs. And that was curtains for me. I can imagine. I can yeah, I was imagine. kicked out right after that. It was the last show I had there. So anyway, long story short, I also, in my book, I had this whole period of time that I was working for the Catholic Church. That's too much to go into, but it's interesting, and it's in my book. And when I got kicked out of the boys' prison, I started to work doing dance with um, AIDS survivors through the Catholic Church and cancer survivors. 
Actually, it was a black man who was formerly incarcerated, dying of AIDS, who inspired me to go into the prison in the first place. But I had done all of this work. And I decided to, I was on my, oh gosh, this is my whole book. I was riding to New York on the bus and there was a man sitting in back of me and there was a nun sitting next to him. He didn't want to sit next to the nun. I turned around, turns out I knew the nun from my Catholic period. I asked her to sit with me. We got to talking and I told her about my dance program in the boys prison and that I'd been kicked out. And she said in this very sweet voice, she said, Miss Susan, come to the convent and talk to us about your boys' prison program, and we'll pray that something will open up for you so you can continue your prison ministry. Well, I don't know how many Jews you know, but Jews don't have ministries, but I just let that go by. (laughs) (laughs) I said, her heart's in the right place, including Mm -hmm. her saying to me, you know, our Lord Jesus was Jewish. And I've heard that so many times, and I didn't want to say to her she was so sweet. You know, to us, having known that many, many Jews were killed in the name of the Christian God, I'm not all that excited about that. But it was I realized it was the best compliment she could pay me, so we talked. I went to the convent, and I brought some pictures of the boys dancing, some video. And they were crying, the nuns, and saying, such beautiful young people, what can we do? What is your biggest wish for your prison ministry, Miss Susan? So I figured, all right, they want a big wish, I'll give them a big wish. There you go. They didn't know what they were asking for, right? <laughs> I said, I said, I want, I want a million dollars of funding. As each man that was in my prison dance program gets out, I want to buy a building in New York City where they come from. I want to house them. I want to get a therapist for them, a doctor for them. I want someone from Alvin Ailey to continue giving them dance classes. I want to put together shows, and I want to tour prisons all over the world with my dance performance, showing what these men have accomplished and giving everybody else that's watching them hope. So they go, okay, we'll pray for that, but somebody already did it. And I said, somebody already did it. I was the first person to teach modern dance in men's prisons in in the Western Hemisphere. Somebody in England was teaching contact improv in a prison. And then there was the human rights violation of teaching thriller, branding the men in the Philippines and forcing them to dance till their feet bled. And everybody liked that for a while till Amnesty International took it on as a human rights rights violation. So I'm the only person to do this. So I knew nobody had done it. So they said, well, it wasn't exactly what you wanted, but it was somebody that did theater in prison. Her name is Catherine Vokens, and she has an organization called Rehabilitation Through the Arts. Why don't you get in touch with her and see if she can get you back into the prisons? So I got in touch with her. She's a lovely woman. She came up to see me. I made lunch. I showed her the boys dancing. I gave a pitch. And she said, oh, no, this isn't going to happen in a men's prison. You're not going to get men in prison to dance. Well, I knew she was wrong. Because from the boys' prison to the men's prison, all you had were the child inside of us that's always there, but in an older body. I knew I could do it. Same demographics, same amount of talent. Same victimizations that they had suffered. Many men in prison were sexually abused themselves. That came out at various times in philosophy class. Or victimized in some other way. And all of them victimized by society. So I I, um, knew that I was working with the same people just in older bodies. 
So then she says to me, okay, I'll reconsider and I'll ask my board of directors. So she goes to her board of directors and they say, no, no, not going to happen in a men's prison. She'll never get people to dance in a men's prison, which I, as I said, I knew wasn't true. So that was going to be the end of it. But then I went to my mailbox the day after she came for lunch and someone sent me a letter that had been to the boys' prison performances. And in the letter, it said, I've moved to Florida. I haven't seen you in a long time, but I was reading this article and I thought you should try to get in touch with this woman. And it was a letter about Catherine Vokens, who had just been at my house for lunch. Okay, so in Hebrew, we call that beshert, which means something arranged in heaven. So I called up Catherine Vokens and I said, I just got a letter about you and it's beshert. You have to let me into the men's prison to work with the men who volunteer to do theater just once and I will get every one of them passionate to continue. And she let me in once and I was there for 14 years, I think, in that one facility. Oh, that's incredible. That, that gave me chills just listening to that story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there any, and I, I can look, Susan, I can listen to you all day, but is there any? Well, I can talk all day, so yeah, don't that's, that's, Listen, we're New Yorkers. <laughs> that's what we do. That's what we do as New Yorkers. Yeah. <laughs> and any? also, it's talking to you, too, because... I hope that you'll understand this in the purity that it's meant, yes. but I'm not in the prisons anymore. And there's something called prison vision. Have you ever heard that? I have not heard that, no. Well, the men used to talk about this, the things from being inside that you learn. You have a special kind of vision which follows you throughout the rest of your life. They call it prison vision. They can see things in people. Well, I don't get the opportunity to talk to a returning citizen that often anymore, who happens to be a black man. So I'm loving this podcast more than most of them because I'm so simpatico with your story and who you became. And I'm, I'm so impressed with what you're doing. And I don't know what you got a doctorate in, but you can, you can be my cardiologist if you want. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Is there, is there anything that um, we haven't covered today that you'd love to share with our audience today? Well, are we on a time limit? No, we are not. Okay. <laughs> we are not. <laughs> then I want to tell the story of Dave Navarro, and I'm going to try and tell it without crying, which so far I've not been able to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dave Navarro, he joined the prison program, and he was not born in this country. He didn't go to school, didn't speak English, was an abused child in every conceivable way, wound up in prison, wound up volunteering for the dance program. In prison, he learned English. He learned fluent sign language and became the sign language interpreter for the entire prison. And he loved the dance program. And he loved especially that I re-choreographed the first movement of Alvin Ailey's masterpiece, Revelations, the I've been buked section, which is about I've been buked, I've been misunderstood, I've been marginalized. And he loved this. Anyway, he was in prison. He did, he did have a murder, which he told me about. And he was in prison for, I think, 28 years or 30 years from the water in another facility, he got a virus that he became asymptomatic from, but all the other men got treated because they got sick. 
From this virus, eventually he got stage four stomach cancer. And he was given a short period of time to live. And he, was, he stopped coming to the dance program for a little while. And then he came back. And he had gotten permission to have a new parole hearing to be paroled because he was dying. A mercy parole. I forget what they call it. That isn't the word. I think it's compassionate release or something. Compassionate release, something like that. Mm -hmm. They turned him down. Oh, my. He had months to live. And he had a lifelong girlfriend that I had been in touch with, against the rules again, by the way. And um, they turned him down. So I had gone against the rules. In my book, I write about all the rules I broke. And one of them was when the... Somebody came in to do a radio documentary. She had a camera, and the camera could take video. And she said she was not allowed to take any video. Docs had told her no video. And I said, look, you've got to take a video of I've been buked. Because I need to have it for the rest of my life and my old age to look at. I've come here. This is my pay. I haven't been paid in 14 years. I need a video of this. She took the video. Against the rule, she sent it to me. So after Dave Navarro was turned down, I sent the video to some lawyers. I did not hear back from them. But I heard from the girlfriend 24 hours later. She said, I don't know what happened, but three lawyers came to the prison and are taking his case pro bono. Oh, wow. Wow. Because of his dancing. Because of the beauty of his dancing. I can, I can send you the video. If you give me your email address, I will send you that exact video when I get off the podcast. Sure. Oh, I love that. Yeah, my, it, he, it's Richard at secondchancecoaching.com. Okay, and he's right in the front. It's a, it's a diagonal, and he's the person in the apex. Mm-hmm. They came in. They took his case. They got him a parole hearing in the, in the hospice. They released him into the care of his girlfriend. As soon as he left, he called me. I heard the wind with the windows open, and I knew he was out, and he called me. And then I had to go and do a program, an artist-in-residency program in the Adirondacks, so I couldn't come back right away. But his girlfriend said he just wants to see you before he dies. He wants to see you as a free man. And the first time I was going to go see him, she said, he's too sick to see you. And then we made it for later. It's all in my book. I had this harrowing experience driving to Long Island on the highways there. I almost died. I got to the hospice. I was with Dave two days before he died. And we had so much fun breaking the rules. He wanted me to get into the bed with him. You know, and I, I put my put my arms around him because we were not allowed to touch them. You know, we can't touch them when they're inside. Mm-hmm. And then he gestured, and his girlfriend said, "He wants you to put your legs on him." I put my legs on him, and we acted like he wasn't going to die. He was sleeping most of the time, so it was really my chance to be with her. But two days later, he died. And he died a free man because of my dance program. And if I die today, that's in the top three accomplishments in my life, getting, getting Dave Navarro free because I went into the prison and taught dance. That's, that's extraordinary. I don't even know the words to even give to that, Susan. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. Well, he lives through my telling that story. 
Absolutely. All Absolutely. right. I have to write down your Richard at Richard at second chance. So Richard at second chance coaching, all one word, Richard at second chance coaching.com. Okay. And the last thing I'll ask you, Susan, is how can our audience keep in touch with you, whether it be social media or your website or whatever the case may be? Because I know there, I know I'll keep in touch with you and I know people will keep in touch with you as well. Well, everything's on my website, my paintings, the prisoners dancing. I also have a newspaper column for somebody who was told they were almost educable. I've been teaching, I have, have a newspaper column that I've written since the 1980s for the local paper here. Everything's on my website, especially the men dancing. I always want to help young people. You can contact me through the website. There is a mechanism for just getting right to my, my contact and writing me a message. Uh -huh. And I will help any young person that wants to volunteer. I'll give them my own little orientation so they know how to talk to the Department of Corrections. Because if you act like you're too much loving, wanting to help, they won't let you in. <laughs> Oh, no, I can imagine. So is, is your website susanslotnick.com? Yep. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. So so everyone listening, so susanslotnick.com. And, and also the book is, there is a link right to the book. Mm -hmm. And the book is very inspiring. The, um, the reactions to the book are amazing. I'm trying to get the book out there. So I would love to have people want to purchase the book oh absolutely so the, the, the so the website is susanslotnick.com right book is flight the dance of freedom but it's right on the website it, right you can just website. click it and it comes right up wonderful that is great susan i i i have so much enjoyed speaking to you today i admire your extraordinary story your extraordinary work and it, it, it has been just an absolute joy to speak to you today. Hopefully, it won't be the last time you and I speak today, but for today and joining us on Second Chance Coaching, thank you so much for the time and all that you've shared with us today. And thank you for everything you're doing, which I'd like to hear more about. Oh, absolutely. We'll def after this call, we'll, we'll, I'll definitely share. I'll definitely bore you to death. Okay, can <laughs> we talk a little bit after the call? Sure, absolutely. Okay. All right, thank you. Okay. Welcome back to Second Chance Coaching. I am so excited for you to join us today. I want to especially thank and welcome all first-time listeners to the Second Chance family, and of course, an enthusiastic welcome to all our returning listeners. Today, we are particularly privileged to be joined today by one of the state of Florida's extraordinary attorneys to give us her perspectives and a conversation on her journey and the space of criminal justice reform. So I'll introduce our guest and give a short bio, and then we'll get started. Um, Yesenia Rosales is the managing attorney and owner at the law office of Yesenia Rosales LLC in Tampa, Florida, which is a firm that focuses on family and criminal law. Yesenia is a first-generation lawyer and received the Rising Professional Award from the Federal Bar Association Young Lawyers Division in 2019. Um, she she is also an advocate on their legal all. She's also an advocate on various nonprofits legal all star teams in 2020, 2021, and 2022. She was also recognized for her superior qualifications of leadership, reputation, influence, and stature as a top 40 under 40 trial by lawyer by the National Trial Lawyers Association. She's an active member of the Federal Bar Association, American Bar Association, and has previously served as the chair for the Diversity and Inclusion Committee of the Clearwater Bar Association and previously a board member of the Pinellas County Latin Bar Association. So with all that said, 
I like to wonderfully and enthusiastically welcome Miss Yesenia Rosales Esquire to Second Chance Coaching. Yesenia, it is so good to see you again and welcome. It is good to see you, Richard. Thank you for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, you're so very welcome. So at, after that outstanding biographical introduction, which I know there's so much more that, that a top 40 under 40 has done, is there anything else that, what, what else um, fun facts about you that you want to share with us that maybe not have been covered in the intro? Fun facts. Um, I, I think you covered most of it, um, other than I have two daughters. Um, and recently I have um, ventured off into real estate. I just... Um, well, not just, I've had my license for a while, but I am doing commercial um, real estate also. So those are two things that I'd like to add to the bio. Um, I was formerly chair of the Florida Justice Center. I'm no longer uh, under the center too. Um, I think you covered everything else. Okay, wonderful. Well, I also think, but you are, you're, off, you're, you're originally from up north, right? You know, from the northeast? Yes. Okay, um, so that's, 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 the, that's the best part. That's the fun fact. <laughs> That's a fun fact that everyone covers for me. Um, I forgot. Yes, I am originally from up north. I grew up in New Jersey. Um, I came here my senior year and went straight to uh, college from um, high school. So I did grow up in um, New Jersey. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. We won't hold that against you, but Northeast is all, all the I'll way cool. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone asks, well, why did you move to why did you move um to Florida? I said, yes, because the tropical winters in New York and New Jersey were so wonderful. I could, I had to get away from it. I had to get away from it. Truth be told, I got kicked out of my house and <laughs> shipped away. <laughs> and shipped away, but I turned out all right. It was the best move um for me. I turned out all right, went to school, went to college. Um Maybe if I stayed up north, I would have not been where I am today. Well, well, let, let's get into that. Sometimes things that happen in the moment, we can look back on it and laugh on it. At the moment, you're probably not laughing. But at the, when you look back on it, you're like, you know what? I turned out all right. We did okay. So we're all right. Exactly what I so, thought. Yeah. So, so let's start um, this conversation. So tell us some of the critical points. Like what, and what were some of the critical points that brought you onto the journey to becoming a criminal defense lawyer, you know, and now that you're doing family law, what were some of the critical points that brought you to that, to brought you to the place where you are now as a lawyer? Um, Richard, I really like your question because usually, you know, I've done interviews before where they, where they ask you what made you want to be a lawyer, but yours is very specific as to a criminal defense lawyer. Um, mm -hmm. And I like that because um, truthfully, I always um, wanted to be a prosecutor, never criminal defense, right? So I always say criminal defense chose me um, through personal experiences. Um, and then once I actually went into law school, um, some professional experiences there and, and experiences with the system itself. So um, growing up, I wanted to be a prosecutor, lock up the bad guys, right? So it wasn't until I matured and learned later in life that not everyone in jail is really a quote unquote bad guy. Um, you know, people make mistakes um, as a result of different life factors. So when you learn that and you see it firsthand, um, you want to help those people in need. So that's what made me switch from prosecution to defense. Um, not a lot of people know my um, youngest child's father actually um, went to prison while I was pregnant with my youngest child and in law school um, for some offenses. right? Um, and he wasn't a bad person. I, I didn't know anything about it. But once I saw him go through that experience being pregnant, I 
have actually been in a person's shoes where you are going to prison to visit a loved one. You are taking a newborn child to visit their father for the first time. I've seen um, the whole process while being in law school. So that I would say was a critical turning point in my life when I was in law school um, that made me switch from wanting to be a prosecutor to a defense attorney. And then once I actually entered the field or let's say graduated law school studying for the bar, um, I still applied to be a prosecutor and I was um, declined. <laughs> and I you know, started putting the pieces together and saying, maybe this isn't the route for me because I was um, denied and I ended up taking a my first defense case uh, was a juvenile um, who was going to be direct filed as an adult. And just seeing how they handled a 17-year-old who could um, you know, potentially be behind bars for the next 10 years of his life also played a critical um, role in my decision-making to stay defense. From there, um, I don't know, uh, I'll just share. I went solo straight from um, being barred. So a month after I was sworn in i picked up the case now, now now let me interrupt you when you say okay. being barred that not being barred from anything that means being admitted to the bar correct i mean being admitted to oh, the bar okay, okay. thank you <laughs> no problem because when somebody hears us like what happened we want to know about that yeah. i'm like okay so i'm yeah, sorry yeah, no it's it's fine um that's like when i talk to my mom and i'm like mom i'm going to jail she's like what do you mean you're going to jail <laughs> i mean to visit a client you're right thank you for that correction um so no, I was licensed. And then a month later, um, someone entrusted me with their 17 year old. And I just, I, I didn't take that trust lightly, um, you know, for them to have that kind of faith in me just showed, um, you know, that they believed in me. They believed in my work ethic. I was newly licensed. Um, and, and from there on, I just continued with defense work. So I really Currently, I have a passion for it. I work hard to understand my clients, their mentality, their background, upbringing. Um, like I said, I grew up in Jersey very differently than the life I'm living now. So I try to tie in all those factors and, and understand how they landed in the situation that they're in. And um, I honestly wouldn't, I don't think I ever see myself switching from criminal defense. Um, so I think those are critical um, points and factors that played um, in me becoming a defensive lawyer and remaining a, def a criminal defense lawyer. And following up on that, um, we we have we have um, met each other in spaces where we talked about uh, extensively about criminal justice reform and social justice movements and how how those things matter. Or maybe they they've they, not say maybe they've always mattered, but I guess now they seem to matter more now than ever. Um, and getting cases, sometimes I, I know that when I've spoken to friends of mine who are lawyers, they, they always say that, well, the cases choose me. I don't always get to choose the case. But in your case, and in, in in the conversations we've had, I've noticed that there's always been a, a, a commitment and an understanding of what criminal justice reform and social justice means or what it means to you. And you shared a little bit about that with us. Um, can you share a little deeper with us as far as your commitment to criminal justice reform and social justice movements and and I know you talked about your your situation and, and talking about one of the first cases you got, but give us can you give us a, a deeper understanding as far as your commitment to these movements, to the to these um dynamics that are going on in society right now? Sure. So there's been a few different um, social justice movements. Um, I'm sure uh, in June, excuse my dog in the background, um, excuse. Um, so, you know, in, in 
um, the uproar of the George Floyd uh, incident um, that, that had occurred, there was a lot of protests that went on. Um, so that was a big movement nationwide that I, I think everyone's pretty familiar with um, or should be, um, where people were exercising their First Amendment rights. And, you know, there was a huge debate whether it was peaceful protesting or unpeaceful. Um, a lot of peaceful protesters were arrested, um, and in my opinion, unlawfully, um, right, if they're exercising their their rights. Um, so m my participation in that was um, I volunteered pro bono to assist a lot of those who were arrested. Um, I was probably assisting more pro bono cases than I was um, on, on, paid, on a paid basis. Um, so that's the involvement I had with the social movement when, when that came about. Um, but it didn't just stop there. So I felt very um, strongly motivated to assist those because those those individuals, a lot of them, or a lot, at least a lot of um, the people that I helped that were unlawfully um, arrested were mainly college students in their 20s. Um, so sure, I assisted, um, you know, with their charges and through the system. But what happens when you get their case dismissed um, to the arrest is it still stays there. So from there, another movement that I, um, you know, engaged with was the formation of expungement clinics. So not only was the, the individual arrested, but then I, at the time, I didn't have um, time to take on the case, try to get it dismissed, and then proceed with the expungement process. So that was something that I did after I was done with um, the cases themselves. Then I reached out um, to anyone who needed a sealer expungement, of course, they had to qualify um, and did that. Um, I would say another criminal justice reform or social movement that I involved myself in um, was the restoration of voting rights. Um, with so, so each of these projects were with different organizations and some were by myself. Um, like the, the cases themselves were through my firm. Um, but I think that, well, I know that I was the first Tampa Bay attorney to do that on on. Um, this side of Florida, um, I mean, we were on the news all the time with um, protests, um, you know, building owners locking up their businesses. Um, I had a um, strong pull in the community to try to um, tell members of the community that this is not the right way if it was not peaceful um, and they would listen. But as far as the peaceful ones who were being arrested unlawfully, um, I assisted them. So it was kind of a median between the community um, and the, between the public community and the legal community um, that I tried to, I guess, bridge the gap, quote unquote. No, thank you, thank you. Um, you know, we've had um, numerous conversations where, we, where we've talked about, you know, certainly my reentry journey and, you know, now I'm learning more about you as far as the, the, the view you've had not only as someone who's been affected by it, but certainly as being an advocate. But you know that um, as someone who's not been formally incarcerated, but you're an attorney, so you know there are numerous collateral consequences that come with someone having a criminal conviction or even something as little as an arrest. Um, from your standpoint, um, being not only that you're an attorney, but I, I could say an advocate as well, what are some consequences that you feel? And I guess we could st start with our state. Um, or nationally, whichever one you want to do, what are some of the collateral consequences that you think should be eliminated immediately um, for someone returning home to provide a more successful path to their reentry? 
Um, that's a very good question because some of the things that, that can be removed immediately, um, people don't think about and, and then they find themselves in the same situation. So if they are aware, they can work on that as soon as they come out. So um, some of the simple things can be, um, you know, not having a license that will end you. Uh, land you back in jail if you are, let's say, on probation and you violate. Um, so I think that I've assisted, I, I forgot to mention, in driver's license reinstatement. That's very big in Florida. Um, I have a lot of people who go to jail for being stopped, driving on a suspended, they're on probation, um, and it's a trickle-down effect. So I think someone coming home um, that knows that or is aware of that, um, or even if they have family on the outside right now that can take care of the issues that are holding up their license, could make that um, re-entry process a lot smoother because not only um, do you not risk violating probation, do you not, you, you, you have a valid driver's license, you can um, drive, you need to drive to be able to work, right? So um, that's something simple that can be um, fixed immediately um, or maybe even prior to you um, re-entering re the community. Um, Job search, um, you know, that can obviously end homelessness because a lot of people tend to um, recommit some offenses um, or we see that because um, they lack the resources or, um, you know, don't don't know what to do. Um, so I think re-entering into any social services um, can help anyone re-entering the community. Um, really, uh, community service, I think that you know, people you do sometimes do community service because they're obligated to um, as part of the conditions. But I think that um, you should really take advantage of it because if you're re-entering, you know, that's how you can network and build. Um, and that can be something that's immediately done. You don't know who can lend a helping hand, um, you know, and while you're incarcerated, I think um, take advantage of the programs that are available. Um that can help you, um, you know, further your education so that you can take care of that immediately when you get out as well. Um, I think that's driver's license. Um, make sure you get a job. So housing as well. Housing, right. Right. I know, I know there's a lot of housing challenges that come with, come with that as well. And certainly, you know, when, when people are looking and that's something that I see when working at the college where people talk about, I live in my car, I do this, I do that. And I'm like, wow, if someone just had a place to live, that almost establishes the baseline of being able, the baseline of stability. It's like, I have a, I have a roof over my head, so to speak. Or at least not saying to provide for the roof, but to at least have, give someone that could very well pay for it, have them have access to being able to live somewhere. Right, right. Well, Yesenia, um, Share with us some of the things that you're working on now. I know well, I, I, I won't I won't make you share everything that we talked about before we hit record, but, but, share, some, <laughs> but share some of the things that, that you're working on now. I mean, I, I you know, it was when I read your interview, I always knew that you were younger than me, but when you say top 40 under 40, I was like, yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. But um, but yeah, share some of us some some of the projects that you're working on now that we'll see you about know, in the <laughs> There's one project that I don't want to share the intricate details, but I'll give you an idea because you just mentioned something very important that, wow, if, if somebody had a roof over their head um, or they're living out of their car, that would help a lot. Um, 
because so it, it has something to do with that. But I um, something I really want to work on in the future. And, I, and I've started digging in deeper is. Um, how can I say this about disclosing it? Right. Um, is providing um, transportation um, services so that you don't have that issue on. Um, I don't have a vehicle and I can't get to work. Um, so then I'm going to lose my house. So it is a project that I'm working on because there's a lot of social um, services out there and different nonprofits that can provide reentry services as far as, um, you know, getting you ready for an interview and getting your job placement. Um, but once you get the job placement, it's up to you to get there. So how are you going to get there if you don't have the money for even public transportation um, all the time on a daily basis? So that's a project I'm working on. It has to do with that to make sure that um, if uh, recently um, released individuals or formerly incarcerated individuals um, need to get to work that we provide those services. Um, so I think that that's a big project um, that you know, a lot of people can take advantage of and um, employers can make sure that they have um, their new employees there. And we can make sure that formerly incarcerated um, individuals don't end up back in the system. Um, something else I want to do is uh, maybe you can help me with this is I want to teach a class in prison. <laughs> I really do. So okay. I don't know. I don't know how to go about doing that, um, but that's something that I want to work on um, is teaching a class in prison um, because I think that those that's very helpful. Um, and if you have um, a much younger person, not to not to say anything to, to older people, but um, that it it can set um, an example that you know you can change your pathway. Um, those are projects that I want to work on um, that I just started diving into. But currently, I am mentoring um, some interns from um, a summer youth program. I am speaking. I have been invited to speak to um, a group of high school students and um, law school students. So I think that um, there's students that want that don't um, see the need for college. So that those are projects that I'm working on too. Is speaking to um, students whether they're high school students, law students, um, college students. And um, let's see what else? My own pro bono clinic. I have a list of things. Um, yes. My own pro bono clinic. I just have to find the time with balancing the cases. And, and um, But those are projects that I'm very passionate that one way or another, they will be done. Um, so if anybody wants to join and help me, I welcome it. Um, as it relates to prison, I forgot to mention um, anger management is something um, is a program that I want to develop for Spanish speaking um, individuals because it already exists for um, people who speak English. Um, so if you speak English, you qualify for that program for um, domestic violence. You can get into the program. You do. I think I think it's a 12 week program and you are released. Um, it doesn't exist. However, if you don't understand English, if you can't read and write in English, you don't qualify for the program. So that's something that I think is unfair and it needs to be um, leveled out because, you know, from the, from the inside of the jail, um, one individual is saying how we're, you know, we're charged with the same thing. How come he can take this program and I can't, and it's just because of the language barrier. So that's a project that I, um, I want to work on to make it even and equal. 
Um, so I have my hands full, but those are some projects so far. Oh, well, that's great. I may, I may, I may give you some more hands. More, I may give you more things to make your hands full. I didn't get a chance to tell you this before we started recording. I'm, um, I'm going to be teaching. We we've created the well, not we. The college has created a, a through their workforce development office a diversion program in cooperation with the state attorney's office here in Broward County, where they are giving clients the option of basically incarceration or college. And um, I was asked because it's funny when people when you put yourself out there, people know what it is that you do, then they come to you. And they were, I was asked to teach the student life skills course about, you know, to the students, probably more the second half of the summer and give them an idea about what college is like, what they should be doing in college, what, what they should be, what majors they want to guide themselves towards, you know, that, that are not criminally disqualifiable. Um, and just basically, you know, set the foundation as they go into programs such as automotive, um, supply chain management, um, definitely other technology um, um, majors in which they could utilize those skills to basically get some sort of employment opportunity in a short amount of time. So I may be, I may, I may not um, say get a top 40 under 40 lawyer to actually come to Broward County, but certainly maybe on the Zoom call one day, talk to the, <laughs> talk to the students one day. And, you know, don't worry, I'll, uh, I, I, you know, we, we don't, we don't do anything for free. If worse come to worse, I'll get you an Amazon gift card, you know. <laughs> That's a 40 minute flight. I don't mind going. <laughs> if you're in okay. person, I'll, I'll, I'll fly. My brother lives okay. in Miami. I was there twice this month already. <laughs> oh, okay. Awesome. Awesome. So I don't well, mind meeting them. If I can help, by all means. Listen, I, I listen. I knew you would say yes, and not because the recording's on, because I just know that's the that's the type of person you are. I, I really thank you for that. Thank um, so, so when people want to know what's going on with you, and God forbid if they have a case and they need they need a great lawyer that could sit there and you know put the system to their knees, what social media platforms can they follow that people could follow you on? Um, I have I have Facebook. I'm not very active on it, but it's just my first and last name. I am very active on Instagram, um, which is, I almost forgot my Instagram. It's Senya, S-E-N-I dot uh, E-S-Q. Um, so and, I'll, and I'll definitely put it in the show notes, your Instagram, so people could follow it and stuff like that. Absolutely. All right. Well, Yesenia, it has been awesome to see you and to hear you and to talk to you and to catch up with you to see how you're doing. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Welcome again to Second Chance Coaching. This season, we want to intentionally highlight some of the great work happening nationwide and worldwide in the criminal justice reform reentry and, of course, empowerment spaces. As I've talked about in previous episodes, working with my students at the college and teaching speech, one of the principles I emphasize with them is that maybe you cannot sing or dance, but the one thing that we are all born with is a voice, and it's up to you to channel and project your voices and to bring attention to what matters to you what you treasure, and, and to take your place in this world. Today, we're highlighting the great work by, by a group that is so innovative in helping individuals from across the country to channel and project their voices. This work is being done by the Prison Journalism Project. So tell us about, we, we talked a little bit about the Prison Journalism Project as far as in my opening. Um, tell, us, tell us about uh, PJP. What is it and how long has it been in existence? 
Yes, so PJP has, um, you know, we think about our official start as um, April 2020 when we launched our uh, publication, Uh, but uh, we actually got to start a couple of years before that. My co-founder, Shaheen Pasha, who is uh, a professor at uh, Penn State University right now, she was visiting San Quentin on um, related to her Neiman Fellowship. And uh, we just, you know, we talk about how, um, you know, we hit it off. We were both teaching inside prisons and uh, thought, saw a lot of potential and opportunity to, uh, to um, expand prison journalism throughout the country, uh, c- help support the creation of more prison newspapers um, and, and bring, you know, college level prison journalism education inside. <clears throat> and, um, And so we started the first iteration of PJP was very much focused purely on the educational aspect. And um, and Shaheen um, brings a really personal story to this. She, uh, one of her best friends in high school, was uh, sentenced to 150 years in New Jersey State Prison. And, um, you know, that really appended her perspective and um, understanding of of all the the issues that you know we all know about criminal justice and, and the prison system, and so um, you know she that that's you know we like we talk about that as our origin story. I mean that really brought um, it, you know made what we wanted to do real. Um, the right her friend is is one of our our um, leading writers now, and um, and he's always helped us make you know make sure that we're doing things that. Um, are relevant and real and not just theoretical or, you know, conceptual. Of course, that's great. That's great. So in, in telling us that as far as Shaheen's experience with her friend who's, who's incarcerated and the two of you meeting to teach, um, was anything else on, on your end or anything else that, that inspired you to start this project? Yeah, you know, I think it's, um, like I said before, I was covering Silicon Valley companies, some of the world's, you know, wealthiest companies and people who dreamt of um, changing the world. And, um, but, and, 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 and that was exhilarating to cover, but that's not why, you know, that's, I think there are a lot of us journalists, um, you know, we come in to um, bring voices to light that might not otherwise come to light. Um, You know, Apple doesn't need help bringing their voice to life. Yes, yes, indeed. And, yes, indeed. Um, and so, so I really, you know, it's, it's not why I had become a journalist. And, um, and I, and, and really the experience teaching at San Quentin, my first day at San Quentin, I, you know, I, I remember it like it was yesterday, and it just appended everything in terms of my understanding of a lot of things about the world. And, you know, like, as, as, as an educated progressive person I mean I know I know all the issues but you don't really know them until you you meet people you see people you see this world and what I saw was that there were a lot of people um inside that were you know that were driven ambitious and smart and that there were so many stories inside that were really important for people outside to know that they should know and um and then the realization that you know I'm not the person that should write them that these stories need to come from inside, you know, for several reasons. One, because I can never get inside in, in the way that um, that these these writers are part, you know, live. 
And um, two, that it's just, you know, they're not my stories to tell. And so, um, so maybe, you know, my role is to support that and, and, and help shepherd them through using all the advantages that I've had in my career and in my education. <laughs> well, you know, it, we, we, um, our publication started because of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Shaheen and I, of course, have, um, have friends who are inside and are connected to people inside and we stopped hearing from them. And I was, you know, a lot of my friends were at San Quentin and uh, San Quentin, um, if you remember, is had one of the worst outbreaks in the country. Yes. I think the, it, it spread through um, uh, a number of uh, prisoners who were brought in, uh, transferred in, and some of them had COVID. And, and before you, by the end of the summer, I think something like 70 to 80 percent of the of the um, the population was um, had COVID. They had tents out in the in the yard because they couldn't accommodate all these all these uh, sick sick people. And so, you know, we were getting not, you know, we weren't getting any information. And this was also, you know, it's <clears throat> I think this was pre George Floyd, but I think we were still rolling towards this this you know national reckoning, if you will. And um, we were looking at the situation and thinking, you know. Here's yet another, everybody's talking about this being a historical moment, and here's yet another historical moment where they're leaving out the voices and experiences of a very, you know, of a community. And that, you know, what can we do to make sure that they're at least there for the historical record? And so we just put out a, a story, um, a publication on Medium um, just to see what would happen, put out an ad in Prison Legal News, um, which a lot of people subscribe to. And the story started rolling in about what was happening. And, um, you know, in some ways it was a really surreal experience because once we started getting the stories, we we understood what was going on inside. And so while everybody was feeling isolated, we were feeling quite connected. Um, <clears throat> and that was, you know, and that was an interesting moment, but the stories were real and they were important. And so we just started editing them and getting them out. Um, then George Floyd was murdered and we were like, oh, we need, um, you know, we need other stories. And we didn't even have to tell anybody because our writers just started shifting their stories and writing about that too. And, you know, how they were George Floyd before George Floyd, similar experiences, how they felt about it, all that. Um, and so by summer within months, we a outgrew our website, our, our medium publication, but B, Mm -hmm. we realized that we didn't even understand how much journalism could be done inside and how many stories there were and how, you know, they're not just for inside consumption. It's their stories that they can be supported in the same way that newsrooms out here support journalists out here. Um, then, you know, they, that there, there's an opportunity here to help writers inside uh, tell tell stories and report on what's happening inside in a credible way and be a part of the national conversation about criminal justice. And, um, and so, um, and, and, and that led to kind of bringing in our initial intention and, um, and having this mission that we train incarcerated writers to be journalists. We train them in the tools of journalism and we publish their stories on our website and in collaboration with mainstream newsrooms. And so that is kind of our, you know, our um, our mission, our intention, and our um, goals rolled into one. And um, and what that what that means is that we want to help support to to identify to, um, 
writers um, who want to do this work and help support them so they can be correspondents in their prisons. Okay, wonderful. So when I go on your website, which is, once again, for our listeners, is prisonjournalismproject.org, um, it clearly tells us right away that the PJP is looking to create a national network of prison journalists. And and when you talked about some of your objective and goals, you already talked about a national conversation on criminal justice that comes from the people that are there, that are directly impacted in that moment themselves, and, and training to be journalists. Um in addition to that, so it's, so it looks like it, it gives purpose while they're there. But um, of course, if some, I, I, do you guys do anything? Do your objectives and goals also stretch to anything outside of like if someone's released or, or reentry? Do they continue doing work with you guys? What are some of those some of those other objectives and goals that you guys do? So uh, absolutely, the, the the quick answer is yes, yes to all of that. Um, mm-hmm. The reality is is that we're still. Um, two years out of the gate we think of our you know we think of this year as really our first year that we've become an organization the first two years being kind of pilot um the pilot phase and uh, we're not fully funded yet uh we have our, our big end of the year crowdfunding campaign coming up but um, we're not funded yet and so we have to we still have to be focused and, and make sure that we're fulfilling our main mission but the ambition has always been kind of end to end so you know certainly um, bringing stories to light from uh, formerly incarcerated people, families that are impacted by um, by the criminal justice system. I mean, I think a, most people in this country don't know that uh, there's a good, you know, almost a third to a half of this country who have working, bringing stories to light from the formerly incarcerated people is... Um, you know, it's such it's such a challenge, and and I'm sh- I'm sure that you talk about this in your podcast all the time. But it's such a challenge to come out, and we see our you know we see our friends who've come out, having to you know it's it's um, you know check in with their parole officers, yes. find a place to stay, find jobs, find you know figure out health care, reconnect with their friends and family for the first time in sometimes decades, and it's so th- there's so much stress that asking them, no matter how interested they are, to do a piece for us is feels like such a, a tall ask. And so we've been having conversations about, you know, like how, how do we do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, the message is, is that if you are a writer and you want to talk about your experiences, um, if, if you have, um, you want to put down on paper what that first day was like, you know, what that first experience is like to go into a store and have all these choices and, and be overwhelmed or, you know, being able to sleep in a real bed for the first time and how, however knows what that first meal is like. You know, we would love those stories. I mean, we would just love, love, love those stories. And um, and if you go to our website, it'll tell you exactly how to um, submit to us. Um, however, um, I think as an organization, we need to do a little bit more research and and to figure out how we can bring those voices to light without being like that the straw that breaks the back or or putting undue pressure on on um, people because you know we know that our writers you know because we're asking them to write about their own experiences it's it's you know it's it's um it's hard people really you know they care about what they're writing they want to spend time with it they want to be thoughtful about it and you know, maybe you're in a halfway house and you can't get a quiet moment to yourself. And so, um, you know, it's, um, 
I'm not sure. We're, you know, we're not sure how how to um, how to work with that, but you know, we want to figure it out. But even as I tell my students, and I'm listening to you talk this talk about what's going on, the journey is just so new and exciting because there's so many possibilities that are there. Mm-hmm. So I, I I love listening to that. With that said, with so many possibilities and everything that you talked about, so. On the typical day when you're not talking to someone like me, what does a typical day look like for you? <laughs> it is it is crazy. Um, a typical day um, hopefully includes some editing. Um, I am, we're very blessed to have an incredibly talented and dedicated staff, um, small. And so um, a lot of times we're discussing things. You know, right now, it's um, it's interesting. The first two years, um, you know, Shaheen and I were doing a lot of the work ourselves. We were editing. We were getting stuff out. We were trying to fundraise. We were, we were trying to build curriculum. And we've gotten to the point where we can, um, you know, we're, we're a nonprofit organization now. And, and we've got a small staff. We don't have to do it all, all ourselves. And so this year very much has been one of trying to organize ourselves. So we're creating a structure to be able to do this work more broadly and to serve more writers more quickly and, and be intentional. And so one of the things that we did um, over the summer was we, we are um, finishing up a handbook. It's going to be about 100 pages. Uh, we call it a handbook on media writing. And it has everything from journalism instruction to um, primers on your rights as a journalist, even inside, style book, um, you know, how to, how to take care of, uh, you know, wellness related to writing because the editing process can, process can be uh, emotionally exhausting. And, yes. and, yes. How, <laughs> and, and um, you know, just support on you know how to think about your how to assess your own risk um you know some people who are inside are willing to take all the risks to get their stories out others not so much and it really depends on on your personal um you know where you are personally and so you know it'll include a quiz to um, help you understand um what you need to about yourself and the kind of stories you want to write um and um and it includes a lot more it's uh, it's also we tend to also include 10 blank pages that people can use for writing because we know that not all prisons um, allow, you know, writing paper freely. And so um, that's something that we're, we're looking to roll out. We've created the six stages of writer progression as we, as we talk about it. And so if stage one is your first submission, stage six is, um, is correspondent. And so um, giving ourselves a metric and, um, and, and accountability uh, so we're moving writers through an intentional progression. Um, you know, um, we, we don't talk about this uh, publicly in our, in our communication inside because um, I'm not sure how it would land. But, you know, we think about it as a career progression. Okay. Well, once again, we're here on Second Chance Coaching, speaking with Yukari Kane, who's a co-founder and co-executive director of the Prison Journalism Project. Once again, you could find them online at www.prisonjournalismproject.org. Um, my next question for you is, um, I saw online, and we talked about this before we started recording, um, I see so many great projects you're doing, the, the J School, the Pit, the Mighty Pen. So do you mind speaking to us about some of those initiatives or any other things that you guys are doing that you want to highlight? Yeah, um, so you're talking a lot about our PJPJ school initiatives, uh, and so part of the, the part of what we're always thinking about is how do we get instructional information to as many writers as possible in 
in institutions with various restrictions. And so, you know, some of it is trying stuff out. Um, one of our most successful is PJP Inside. And so from the beginning, our writers wanted a way to read each other's work. And um, as soon as we were able to get that funding, um, we uh, created a, a print newspaper. It's about eight pages with the best stories from our site. And uh, we've turned it into an instructional newspaper. So every story has a tip on, on how others can write stories like this, what we liked about the story. And then there's a few pages that are, um, that are, are we call them um, learn, and um, we'll do annotations, we'll break down a story and, and um, we'll um, provide some training and instruction on how they can write um, different kinds of journalism stories. The next issue that we have coming out um, has an interview with Dwight Betts, um, the poet, about um, you know, how, the, how he started writing inside prison. And, um, and so um, it's won a couple of journalism awards. Um, we are, it's something we're really, really proud of. We, we, we are, um, you know, humbled to be acknowledged and, and, and proud to be acknowledged by the journalism industry as some, as, as um, a community newspaper um, with um, a meaningful contribution. Um, and then we have, um, you mentioned the pit and um, pit is short for the point is this. Pit is also jargon in the journalism industry to talk about um, a part of the newsroom where uh, a lot of um, of um, you know stories are, are short stories are, are done and, and and go through and are edited and um, and this was started by uh, an old mentor of mine, a former editor at Reuters, and um, and it was just meant to be kind of three page again, bite-sized, instructional, practical um, material based on some of the, some of the, um, uh, the, story, the, the stories that we were seeing and, and areas where we felt like a lot of people could use some extra training. And, um, and so that was an experiment. We've since transitioned, transitioned that to The Mighty Pen. Uh, which is, uh, we believe it's a first of its kind. Um, it's, it's an e-newsletter bite-sized e-newsletter through JPEG, GTL, and others. And so the idea was, you know, the starting place was all of us out here are getting newsletters, e-newsletters in our mailboxes all the time. And why couldn't we do that with people inside? Um, you know, PJP Inside comes out, uh, this year came out twice a year. And that's, and in between, so many of our writers like, well, you know, we want to learn some more, give us some more, give us some more, give us some more. And we wanted to find a way to uh, be able to do that without, um, you know, with the, without really um, draining our resources. And <clears throat> we thought, well, you know, what if we could just even once a month or twice a month send out these bite-sized um, tips again? And so we've got a professor at University of Massachusetts in Amherst, uh, Roz Seedy, who has taken that on. And um, so far, it's gone over really, really well. Um, our biggest challenge always is that, you know, our writers inside are so passionate and eager and, and, and they always want more. So they're like, it's too short. And we're like, well, then you talk to GTL about your 15, you know, their 1500 character limitation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could tell you, I, I loved it. I actually today subscribed to the newsletter and I got the oh. email I got the email a few minutes later and it was really it was really good work. I shared it I shared it with my speech students because they were because even though we're not doing journalism, I shared it with speech because talking about really because I always talk to them about your voice, your voice, because they always get worked up about anxiety and things of that nature. So I'm 
be done. Um, we're unpacking whether the should is actually should all the time in, in various things. And so we want a PJPJ school that is effective um, and, um, and that we're intentionally bringing our writers through from that stage one first submission to correspondence at a steady rate. This, this work is hard. It's competitive out here as well. And so not everybody is going to make it, but we want to make sure that we're giving voice, not just to, you know, not just to people who already come educated, but people who might have never written, but just have this really incredible insight or observation or just passion and are willing to do that work. Um, and that we're bringing those, um, those writers with us and that they reflect the full diversity of the community. Um, you know, I, we think that's, that's really, really important. You know, we, we, we know of some publications that are work in this criminal justice space and they say, you know, like we're having trouble getting diversity. And, and part of that is because their bar, you know, they set such a high bar, right? <clears throat> Yes. And we think, and we, you know, we, we support that. We, we don't believe in lowering the bar, but we think that the piece that we can provide is to make sure that more writers are, you know, have the support they need and the training they need to get to that bar because nobody does it alone. Um, and so, um, and so then we have a full scale newsroom that can not only support the work that our writers are submitting to us, but that we can start developing story ideas with them. And so part of the promise for me as a journalist and the opportunity is, you know, how do we provide the support so our writers can um, help connect the dots between what is happening in isolated prisons? Oftentimes there's a trend there that nobody sees because it's happening in isolated locations. Um, so how do we connect those dots to create stories um, that that should matter out here? Um, as all these conversations are taking place. And then the second is, what kind of potential um, can we bring forth if we combine the inside of, inside reporting with really good outside reporting by journalists? And mm -hmm. so writers inside have, you know, their, their competitive edge, so to speak, is that they have unparalleled uh, first-person experiences and direct observation and direct interviewing abilities. They don't have internet. The I think the the, the edge for um, the outside reporter is, of course, you know all the experience that they have, but also their ability to report outside. And so, we think that there's there's probably some amazing stories to to bring forth if you combine them both. And so, how do we provide that support? And then, what we really want is we want you know this is an ambition for you know for our writers, but we want them to. Um, we want them to work with PJP, learn from PJP, and use the PJP publication to gain the experience and the credibility, and publish in mainstream newsrooms too. I mean, we we don't we don't we're not looking for exclusive relationships with our writers. We encourage them to to start writing as much as um, where their ambition takes them. Um, one of the things that we're real we've realized um, early on, and, and we realize all the time, is that. People inside are so resourceful, and um, and we don't want to control what they're going to do with the tools that we give them because they have so much initiative. And so, you know, this past year we had um, uh, a pilot program in reported essay writing, and we invited twelve students to participate in that. And a bunch of them were started teaching the course to other people around them. And, um, you know, some of them started pitching the stories uh, successfully to outside publications on their own. I mean, they're taking it in directions that that are right for them. And we think that's the way it should be.
That's great. That's great. What can we do as a public to help or be involved with what you guys are doing at PJP? Uh, so many ways. Um, <laughs> one of the ways that um, you can be involved is to read our story, sign up for our newsletters. Uh, we are also work using newsletters to try to figure out, you know, what are what are um, what are the, how can we tell stories in a relevant way and an interesting way. Um, Social media, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we um, final words. I mean, I think that. Um, Writing, I mean, writing for me personally has always been a powerful way of giving voice. And, um, and you know, we, we think that everybody can write, everybody can learn to write. And, um, you know, we, um, and, and, and writer or not, we'd love, you know, we encourage you to, to start writing, regardless of whether it's for PJP or not. Mm -hmm. um, and in the meantime, there's so many stories inside that are, so important, so memorable, and um, and really engaging to read, and um, and so we would just love for you to start reading. And um, over here, and um, and if you could follow us on Twitter at, at Prison Journ, and on Instagram and Facebook, we're at Prison Journalism. Um, that would be awesome. Okay, that'd be great. Once again, Yukari, I want to certainly thank you. Thank you. You and Shaheen, two powerful sisters doing so much great work. And so I'm very in this empowerment space. So it means so much that you joined us here, here at Second Chance Coaching. Thank you for all the work you do. We'll keep in touch. I know Shaheen had a birthday recently, so tell her happy birthday for us. And, uh, and thank you so much again for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you again for joining us here at Second Chance Coaching. In addition to coaching services for individuals and businesses, I'm also available for speaking engagements and workshops on criminal justice reentry, human resources, as well as organizational culture and leadership. Feel free to email me at richard at secondchancecoaching.com, as well as connect with me on Instagram at the Dr. Richard Lewis. Remember, every day you are given this opportunity for your second chance, and I know you'll make the best of it. I love you all, and I look forward to connecting with you next time here at Second Chance Coaching.